Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Erdemble Shag, along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly, and I am happy to be back together to do this, buddy. How about you? This is the fifth episode of Who's Who, but is the 14,000th hour of podcasting we've done about this series so far, Shaq. That's true. I think that is actually mathematically correct. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I rounded so, down. <laughs> so it has been since July since we covered issue number four. However, you've gotten a uh, Who's That? You've gotten an Aquaman family special in between there. So we, you know, we've been feeding you Who's Who info. And again, I mentioned this last episode, Rob and I are trying to drag this out into our retirement is what we're shooting for to make sure we don't finish up the series before then. So... Wow, we've got a lot to cover, so we probably don't need to spend too much time chit-chatting. Um, why don't we um, – well, yeah, why don't we do the in-stock trades pick? Why don't we do that first? Rob, this episode – in case you were wondering, Rob, uh, this episode <laughs> of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. It is? In-stock- it is. I know. Shocking. InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So what did you bring this time, Rob? Okay. Well, this issue uh, is a special Bat Villains issue, and the cover feature is the Batmobile. So I just simply went to InStockTrades.com and plugged in the word Batmobile and see what I got. <laughs> and surprisingly, there's a book I've never heard of. It's from Mad Magazine. It's Don't Let the Penguin Drive the Batmobile <laughs> by Jacob Lambert and and Tom Richmond, Mad Magazine knows there are more important vehicles to protect in this 100% unauthorized parody of Don't Let the Penguin, the Pigeon Drive the Bus. While Batman is busy fighting crime on the mean streets of Gotham City, it's up to us to keep an eye on the Batmobile. The only problem? The Penguin really, really wants to drive it. Should we let him? In this all-new start from the usual gang of idiots at Mad Magazine, the best-selling children's book, Don't Let the Penguin Drive the Pigeon, I keep saying Penguin, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus is parodied with the heroes and villains in the world of Batman. How cool is this? I I had no idea this existed. That's insane. It's normally $14.99. In stock trades price is $8.69. That's 42% off. What better tribute to the Batmobile than there is a book all about it for, for children? Like that's how famous a ride the Batmobile is that you could do this book. And the cover features this really great cartoony drawing of the Penguin. I love it. This looks like so much fun. Well, it's absolutely the perfect pick for this episode, too, because this version, or this issue of Who's Who not only features the Batmobile, it also features Penguin. So, I mean, that's it's right. a perfect setup. Perfect. Well, I leaned into the into the bat villains as well. You know, looking at this era, you know, your Alan your Alan Grant and Norm Brayfuckle era of Batman is when this was coming out. So I found a trade paperback from those gentlemen. Um, Batman Shadow of the Bat trade paperback volume one. So this collects Batman Shadow of the Bat issues one through twelve. If you remember this era, I mean, Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle, uh, Brian Stelfreeze covers. These guys were firing on all thrusters. It's a fantastic story. It starts off with uh, in Arkham Asylum where Batman's actually captured in there. It's uh, as I said. 
think 320 pages. Full color, you can get it for $24.99 normally, but InStock Trades has it for 42% off, so $14.49. If you only ever read their Detective Comics stuff or you only ever read their Batman stuff, you don't know what you're missing with Shadow of the Bat. Be sure to pick this up, and it's a great way to celebrate it. And, uh, you know, since the last episode we did, we, we've lost Norm Brayfogle. Um, yeah, that's very awful. sad. That's just very, awful. very sad. sad. The, the sadly now late, great Norm yes. Brayfogle. So this is a great chance to review some of uh, some of his greatest stuff. So be sure to check that out. Go over to InStockTrades.com and pick up your copies right away. So now, I do realize we jumped right into the InStock Trade thing. Sorry about that, folks. If this happens to be your first episode, welcome aboard. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. Why? Why, are you, why is this your first episode? Right. Well, we've been on a mission to cover all of Who's Who. We started with the original miniseries. We're all the way now into the Loose Leafs. And uh, we're going to cover it entry by entry. Now, a little bit about this version of Who's Who, the Leafs Leaf, uh, is it was a 16-issue miniseries. And the retail price was pretty darn high for the time. Just think about it. This is 1990, and you're paying $4.95 for this sucker. Wow! You could buy a car back, back then. then. Uh, probably. Well, you could buy a Batmobile. Uh, but it's a special, loosely format. No one had ever printed anything like this for comic books before, so it's really special. had 24 entries per issue. You've got the cover, which is – we're not going to talk about the cover as uh, because we will when we get to the Batmobile entry. But uh, in, in this version of Who's Who was really, really focused on the current DC universe of that time rather than the entire history. And when you get to the individual entries, the, the front side of the sheet would be a pinup of art, gorgeous, gorgeous art with this great logo. The back side would be all this text with some inset images with, you know, your personal data, your height, weight, the history, powers, all that kind of stuff. And each sheet is – this is Rob's favorite part. Each sheet is labeled with this color border <laughs> identifying how you might catalog the entries. Red is for hero, black's for villain, and, and, and so on. And I'll get – I'll say these as we go through the episode. And uh, people cataloged their who's who in different ways for that purpose. And it's, again, Rob's favorite thing in who's who it doesn't drive him crazy at all nope <laughs> and our goal is as we describe this is to describe it in such a way that you don't have to have the entry in front of you one of the things i'm most proud of is we see in the comments a lot how people say as we describe it they can visualize it perfectly because they remember the entries because these things are just classic i mean many of these deserve to be in posters honestly they're so beautiful and uh we're excited to bring it to you folks now if you want to participate if you want to talk about it if you want to share your thoughts either go out to our website rob what's that website fireandwaterpodcast.com. And what will be on the website for them to look at? Wonderful images from this very book. We have an accompanying gallery post, and you will see some of the some of our favorite pinups from this very issue. Yep. Now, we don't do them all, so no. you know, don't come sue us, DC. We just do some as the smattering. And uh, you can also go on the social medias, use our hashtag poundfwpodcast, and talk about it. All right. So we got the preamble out of the way, right? So I want to talk about something else before we start getting into the, the actual issue, Rob. I recently went to the Baltimore Comic Con. It was awesome. Had such a great time. All of my friends were there. Every single friend I have. There were none of my friends missing. So, um, come on. I'm, I'm throwing you a bone there. You got to say something nasty to me. No, I, I don't. I, I'm, I don't want to bring the show down, but it, suffice it to say, there is never a good time for your dog to go blind and incur thousands of dollars in vet bills, but oh it's gosh. especially not a good time a couple of days before you're ready to go to the Baltimore Comic Con. <laughs> Let's put it I that way. So, I am so sorry, Rob. So, all, all kidding aside, we, we all sorely missed Rob very much during the event. But uh, I did get a chance to hang out with lots of commenters on Who's Who. Folks like Luke Dobb, Little Russell Burbage, Stella, Keith G. Baker, Darren Sutherland, Tim Price, Derek Crabb, Jim Hendrickson. 
and his jacket. That's right. Gene Hendricks and his jacket and Gene Hendricks's family. Tom Panarese and his son. Tom Zoller. Michael Lane. And I know I'm forgetting others. I'm so sorry. Anyone else that I'm forgetting. We had such a great time. Now, uh, what does this have to do with who's who? That's your, why don't you ask me, Rob? <laughs> you don't even need to do this show. I don't even need to be here. You can just do it all on your own. That's pretty true. So the reason this matters is because there were a bunch of folks that have worked on Who's Who that were at the Baltimore Comic-Con. Oh, my gosh. I met lots of guys and girls and got autographs. Of, and I'm just going to rattle off some names here of some amazing creators I got a chance to say hi to, tell them how much I appreciated their works. I met uh, Mark Wade. I met John Ostrander. I got him to sign my Firestorm Who's Who page, which he wrote. I met Jerry, the extraordinary Ordway, Paris Collins, Walt Simonson, Barry Kitson who signed my Firehawk Who's Who page, Kevin McGuire, Art Adams, and, oh yeah, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And uh, now, there were a few more I'll tell you about in just a second, but... um, now, there were a few other legendary creators i got to mention. Uh, they weren't necessarily Who's Who related, but i just I got to mention it. Uh, from the Aquaman side of the family, I got to meet Ramona Fraden, and I actually got to have a nice, long conversation with her, which Isn't is that wonderful. Isn't wonderful? Yes, yes. She was so sweet. I actually got her to sign a uh, Aquaman back issue where Mark Wade had written an article about her. And so she signed that, and she, she asked me, she's like, I've never read this before. Can I borrow it? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> she sat there and read my comic book. Uh, and then I took it over to Mark Wade to get him to sign it. And I told him the story, and he's like, he like freaked out and started reading it. I'm like, don't worry. He didn't say anything bad about her. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> also got to meet Jeff Parker, a uh, guy who wrote Aquaman just recently in the in the Rebirth era. Such a nice guy. I, I, the, uh, he's like my favorite writer nowadays. Uh, on the Firestorm side of the house, I met Jamal Eigel and Stuart Moore, which was awesome. A few other legendary creators I got to mention. Joe Staten, Louise Simonson, June Brigman, Bob Wyacek, John Beatty, Tom Palmer, Bob McLeod, Mike Zeck. It was unbelievable. Now, on other shows, I've told you a couple of stories about my the, the, the two comic books that made me a comic book collector. One was Star Wars number 50 with that amazing Tom Palmer painted cover. And the other, Secret Wars, uh, volume one, issue number two. You know, And I got a chance to tell the stories of how those comics made me into collectors and what it's done to my life in a, in a positive way. I got to tell that story to Tom Palmer, Walt Simonson, Louise Simonson, and Mike Zeck, all people that were affiliated with those comics. And they all really seemed to appreciate it. So that was a really special for me. That sounds very exciting. I've had a chance to do that a couple of times, and that's very rewarding. And uh, Ramon and uh, connected to Ramona Fraden one time. Ramona Fraden remembered my name outside of the context of a comic con. Really, and that was like one of the most exciting moments of my life because I was like, you know, I mean, of course, that I mean, she's she's like ninety two now or something, and she meets a thousand people at these conventions. But I ran into her in a parking lot. Like and she was like, "Oh, hello, Rob." I'm like, she remembered my name. I, I felt oh my so, gosh. I felt so good about myself that the great Ramona Fraden had enough space in her brain to remember who I was. I was I was very pleased with myself that day. Well, it's all those posters in the in the post office that she recognized. But. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes. Now, other than me just waxing on about how awesome my life is, there is a point I'm getting to. Was that while I was at the Baltimore Comic Con, there were three other creators I got a chance to talk to about who's who. And specifically, we're going to hear a little bit of audio, just from a minute or two of each, from these three folks. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Carl Kiesel, who I talked to about the Newsboy Legion entry he did, which was awesome, and I got him to sign that. We've covered the Newsboy Legion uh, entry in a previous episode of the show. I got a chance to talk to Tom Grummet about the uh, New Titans entry that he did, and we'll talk about that in a future episode, that, that, that entry, but you'll hear the clip in just a minute. And then I got a chance to talk to, oh yeah, our favorite, John K. Schneider. The third, uh, specifically about Ultra the Multi Alien. Can you believe that? That's that's incredible. In fact, my collection 
is now missing in Ultra the Multi-Alien entry, by the way. That went to your house. <laughs> anyway. Yes, <laughs> You're no. going to get a thank you or something. I don't know. Whatever. I thanked you publicly. No, no, no. Of course, you, <laughs> yes. A couple of days later, I got the Ultra page signed by John K. Snyder, which is an amazing gift. Thank you. I, John K. Snyder, like, doesn't have a Twitter account, as far as I know, and, like, isn't on Facebook, as far as I could find. So, like, I just had no idea how you could contact him and so the idea that he was even at a comic-con at all let alone one that we would have access to was so exciting and and as you you all hear from this audio he was really delighted with that you that shag you remembered that he drew this and like your kind words about it and then he loves the character too so i mean i I, sometime i've got to meet this guy because again i'm a huge fan and just his love of ultra the multi-alien just made me oh i got all cartoon hearty about him (laughs) Well, off air, I told him all about you and uh, how much you love this entry and what it meant to you. So uh, he, he knows that, too. So awesome. with that, folks, why don't we just, uh, Rob, play the clip? So I was curious, you know, as, as the Who's Who assignments, did the, was this part of doing the Titans? Did they tell you, ask you to do these? Did you ask to do the entries for Who's Who? Uh, no, they, they pretty much came to me and because I was the, the artist on the book yep. that they would, you know, provided... I was, you know, all up on my de- deadlines and all that kind of thing. They pr- they would prefer to have the people associated with the characters at the time doing the Who's Who entries. Gotcha. Now, did you? A lot of the characters got redesigned costumes of that period. Did you? Yes. Did you do that, or were they? Did. You did do the redesigns. Okay. I redesigned that one. Uh, I did. That night, design night his wind. costume. Designed Phantasm whole cloth, so to speak. Hers too. Uh, the new cyborg, yep. Panther, complete redesign. Uh, this one, I not. Yeah, I think I simplified Troya's costume as well. So yeah, this is all part of the deal. And were there any characters for Who's Who that were unusual that you requested to do, or that you just never got a chance to do that you wanted to? Uh, no, during the time, I think it was mostly Titans characters or Titans-related characters. Okay. And there was no requesting. <laughs> it was like, do you want to do this? And I'd go, okay, <laughs> basically. That's how it worked. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. No problem. First of all, absolutely love this Who's Who layout for Newsboy Legion. Split decision was absolutely beautiful. Did, were you given some direction on it? It was entirely derived by you. Did, did you ask to do the Newsboy Legion? Oh, yeah. I asked to do the Newsboy because I loved, I loved specifically Kirby's Jimmy Olsen stuff. Obviously, here it is. Yeah. Um, so I asked to do the Newsboy, and, you know, I was surprised to find out no, no one else had asked to okay. do the Newsboy, Newsboy Legion. So they gave it to me, and, um, yeah, I came up with the idea of splitting it so that they could go from one era to another. Um, you know, I, actually, they're clones here, now, yeah. but still, the idea worked. And, and I, I personally like the name Boss Moxie. I thought that was a great name. <laughs> we, love the, we love the newspaper now. It just says Hitler. <laughs> it tells you everything, it tells you, everything you need to know. It's everything exactly you need right. to know. Yeah. That's right. And you got, you know, the Guardian, the old Guardian, the new Guardian. Yep. You know, I, I um, yeah, I have a huge fondness for the Newsboy Legion. So, and maybe that's why my favorite comic right now is Paper Girls. Oh, okay. Which, have you read that? I haven't read it, but I've heard great things about it. It's really good. Okay. I, I'm convinced. I don't know Brian Vaughn, but I'm convinced he goes, I can make the Newsboy Legion work. We'll just make them girls. <laughs> and Because really, everything he's doing, you could have done with the Newsboy Legion. Okay. It's, this is my own personal theory. Personal All right. Theory. 
Anyways, but I, I, I love this piece, and I'm glad you brought it back. Well, and I love that you've been posting uh, the, the drawings on Facebook, like you did uh, you did Punch and Julie also, if I'm not Yes, I did yes, do and Punch and, and Julie. Did, and, oh, let me put that in there for I forget. Okay. And uh, you uh, you posted the original pencils and right. for that. It's absolutely gorgeous. Did, did you, like, did they ask you for that one, too, like Punch and Julie, or did you seek that one out as well? I, well, I, I asked to do that one only because what John Ostrander was doing with them in Suicide Squad, these were characters I never had any use for, and John made them hilarious and fun and uh, involving and yeah, so I said, yeah, I want to do Punch and Julie, you know. Two years before that, I wouldn't have believed you if you had told me I was going to do that, you know. But it um, shows you that, you know, there's, you just need a good writer to make a character interesting. You really do, you know. Absolutely. So, so was there anybody for who's who you didn't get to do that you wish you could have done? Maybe, but that was a long time ago, so I can't remember for sure. Okay. You know, I mean, I got a lot of good opportunities through the different who's who's to work with Kurt Swan, to, you know, ink Jack Kirby a few times. I really can't complain. I mean, you know, Carmen in, in Vegito's Flash, so yeah. that was a real high point. Yeah. No, I can't think of any, any regrets. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. Really appreciate it. We do a Who's Who podcast. Oh, okay. We talk about the Who's Who oh, entries. Oh, okay. He was just telling me about Oh, okay. It. All right. And your pieces, I mean, just are so stunning and so different. Oh, thank you so, so much. Unique. Thank you. So, Ultra, how did you end up with that assignment? Uh, well, actually, uh, I requested it. Really? Uh, yeah. I uh, I was a big fan of Ultra, the multi-alien, uh, when I was a kid. Okay. I found uh, some old copies of, uh, and I remember the ads in the uh, other comics, and he was such a unique character and very appealing to me as a kid because in the 60s... That was when, like, the famous monsters craze was, you know, yeah. the monster craze was really big. And he, you know, was such an unusual-looking character that it immediately appealed to me. And he only had a handful of appearances. So, really, I, it, it, not until I was older at a comic convention did I find, you know, the actual appearances. I just went off the ads that I would see. <laughs> so when we, they were putting together the Who's Who, uh, I asked Michael Yuri, who was the editor at the time, if I could do Ultra. So that was, uh, you know, that was really a, a, a blast. I really enjoyed doing that. So I really put a lot into it. I wanted to do, actually had talked to um, Mark Wade at the time about doing, uh, he was editor on Secret Origins. Right, right. And there was a period where, uh, you know, I was talking to him about doing a uh, Secret Origins uh, Ultra. Oh, so, my gosh, that would have been amazing. Yeah, if you look on the back uh, there, uh, yeah, those are, like, I'd already had in mind, like, a, an approach to how to do it. And, uh this, and we, we talked at great length about this, just this panel alone. Yeah. The whole, just doing it all in pictogram was brilliant. It tells the whole story I right was, there. I was already, I was ready to go. That's oh. how, that's how I, that's, you know, so that was a little bit of, like, if you had, that's an idea of how it would have looked if I had uh, actually done that story. Oh, man, so, what could have yeah. been? That would have been amazing. Right. This this piece inspired so much love from a lot of us. I mean, really? Of us no kidding. It, well, the original piece was beautiful as well, and the old who's who, you know, right. the first bit. And then this one, though, just blew everyone away. Uh-huh. And it suddenly, we all became ultra fans from your picture. Oh, thanks you know, a most lot. Most of us didn't even have access to the comics. Well, I mean, he's a really unique character, and, and frankly, uh, when I did that piece, I thought there was a lot of potential for him. I think there's a lot of potential for him now. I think if you see the uh, movie studios, they're, they're, you know, unusual picks. Right. Uh, I remember when uh, Disney first got Marvel, the, my first thought was, they're going to start doing the monsters, you know, as opposed to all the other major characters. Sure. So it's no surprise to me that Groot is now, like, a household name. Right. And I could see Ultra be in the same way, and I was so amused a few years back when Conan O'Brien had singled him out. Did he really? Show. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, just, uh, just Google, Google that. that. Yeah, because yeah. uh, you'll get a big kick out of it. Because oh it even gosh. caught his eye. Okay. Because he's such an unusual character. That is Anyway, that's funny. very gratifying here. I'm, I'm glad everyone enjoys it. They do. they do. Well, thank you so much. 
Wow, Shag, that is that is an amazing series of clips. They all sound like really fun guys. I wish I had been there, obviously, for for multitude of reasons. But you guys sound like you had a, a really really good time, and that's that is that's. I love that they that those guys remembered that they did. Who's I mean, these are guys <laughs> that have done like a thousand pages of comic book art over the years that they would remember doing this job. I mean, these comics are, you know, what, 28 years old at this point? Yep. You know, they still remember these. That's just so – that's very heartwarming. Well, I, I had a blast, and uh, it, it, it was really great. I'm glad I could get something at least to contribute to the show. So, awesome. All right. Well, I think it's time to do this, isn't it? I think so. All right, folks. We're going to be talking about Who's Who in the DC Universe issue number five, cover dated December 1980, but was on the shelf October 30th, 1990. Ironically, at the date of this recording, that's 28 years ago today. Exactly. How crazy the spooky Halloween. Uh, I've already mentioned the price, $4.95. Ouch. And um, it's, a, it's a glorious cover. It's a spe- uh, special Bat Villains issue, as Rob mentioned. It's the Batmobile. We'll talk about that more in a second. You got on the left-hand side all the various entries that are going to be in here. Let's get into it. Uh, the first thing, when you get inside, is the letters page. I, and I don't really have much to say about the letters page, Rob, other than there's an acknowledgement by the editor. I assume, Michael, you did the letters page that they were planning a who's who in the golden age as a follow-up to this. Yeah, that's on the and, inside back cover. That made me yep. cry when I saw that. Exactly. Except my heart breaks that that never happened. Oh, could you imagine? Because they would have been getting like Mike Parabek and everybody to draw oh, the golden yeah. age people. Oh, would have been so good. Oh, well. So we will just enjoy the entries we have. So, yeah. And that first one is our cover entry, Batmobile. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous Norm Brayfogle Batmobile picture. The Batmobile is roaring at you. There's bats fluttering around it. The logo's a little weak, but that's okay. The Batmobile itself, is it's the current contemporary Batmobile from 1990. Very, very stylized. Now, I got to think, and maybe you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I got to think that in 1990, the, the Batmobile would not have gotten the cover of this entry, if if this book, if it hadn't been for the movie. In oh, sure, of course, of okay. course, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Okay, so when you flip it over on the backside, you've got the the border. Rob's favorite is yellow for technology, <laughs> and, uh, supernatural. The writer, no, it's technology. Uh, the writer is Mark Wade, who, who's done a vast majority of them. And as it's a really interesting piece, it, you know, the art-wise, I'll talk about that in a second. But the text talks about the speed of the car. It goes uh, up to 225 miles an hour. It runs on 97 percent octane air uh, airplane fuel. Oh my gosh, I don't know where Bruce is going to go by that. He's not driving down to the you know the Circle K. Uh, and but now, if they kick on the afterburners, it gets up to 350 miles an hour. <laughs> my eyes bugged out of my head when I saw. I know. I mean, 350 miles an hour. Driving down the, you know, the dark, creepy streets of Gotham at 350 miles an hour? There's how, no way in hell. How does one turn a car that's going 350 miles an hour? Dude, if you turn the steering wheel even like a fraction of a, 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 a degree, <laughs> you're going to go flying off into a ravine or something. There's no way. I mean, you think about race cars are going around at what? Just shy of 200 miles an hour, I think. I don't I don't watch NASCAR. Sorry, folks. But, I mean, there's just no way. It's crazy. Now, it does go 0 to 90 in 5.2 seconds, much like me on Dyer. Mountain Dew, which is great. And um, so on the back, it does show all the different – well, I don't know if it's all of them. Uh, it shows no, five it's not all. It's certainly oh. definitely not all of them. It shows us uh, six different versions of the Batmobile. You get the classic one from the 40s. Then you get the one that's more like a sedan with a bat face painted on there. Then you get kind of the version from the TV series. Then you get – I don't know what that version is on there. Um, and then you get the one from kind of what I call the Super Friends version. Some people call it the Superpowers version. Yep, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yep. And then in the bottom, you have the contemporary one. What is what is that fourth one there? I don't know. I'm not familiar with that design. I'm not, that looks like it's the pre-version of the one that's got the listing because it's got it the yellow. It does, yell. It looks very similar. Yeah, yeah. It looks very similar. So, yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite of the, of the five, at least, or the six that you see here? Uh, it, it comes down to nostalgia for me. So, and it's not the one you think I'm going to pick. I'm not going to pick the TV series one. Sorry, I'm picking the Super Friends one. That was the Batmobile to me growing up. Was the Super Friends version the the, the fifth one in the on the drawing there? And I love it. I absolutely love that version. What about you? Uh, I I don't think it surprised anybody. I love the '40s one with the giant head and the fin in the back. I think oh, there's really a, yeah. Oh, I love that's such a boss ride. I think that there's a reason why uh, that's the Batmobile that Batman is driving in the Killing Joke. Even though mm. that's a contemporary mm-hmm. story, you had Brian Bolland drew him pulling up in that thing. I just love that design. I think it's just so amazingly cool looking. Although I will say, the more I look at it, the sedan with just the bat on the hood yeah. is growing on me. And it like I think like if they did a Batman series that was like Batman without a costume, like he was like a detective, that's the car <laughs> he would have. Like that's well, the sure. Rockford yeah. Files Batman Batmobile. It does look sort of like that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing I noticed is the entry doesn't mention the the guy, um, and I don't remember his name, but he was – I want to say it was in the original Who's Who, or maybe I read it in a, in one of the source books or something. But somewhere there was a guy who was attributed to designing the Batmobile and in the fictional universe, and I don't see right, his name. Right, like a race car driver or something. Or something, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know they, there's not a ton of history here. Um, I will say you look at the front piece you know the artwork mm-hmm. and that is the coolest electric razor anybody's ever going to own uh it's really <laughs> awesome looking. no 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 i'm kidding of course as we all know the, this batmobile is the uh ship that was sent to the genesis planet which uh spock emerged oh my from gosh. no no i'm kidding of course no uh no i it's it, it okay norm brayfogle everybody loves norm brayfogle we're all it's just somebody to say sad that he passed away much too young i don't know anybody that doesn't like his artwork but Brayfogle had a style, and, and again, I mean this totally as a compliment, but he had a style that's, like, ridiculously stylized. And okay. I think if any other artist or many other artists would try to pull it off, it would look stupid. But in, mm. in, in sort of Brayfogle world, it works. Like, this car is absurd, the design. All this pokey <laughs> stuff. Like, there's no reason to build a car like this. But it just looks badass. And I also love the way he draws bats. That bat in the lower right-hand corner is just done with a couple of quick mm. ink lines and a couple of little sketches. And it looks awesome. And there would be a lot of other artists that would try and pull that off. And I think they can't. But Brayfogle could. This, like, to me, this is like Batman living in the Brave, Earth Brayfogle. That's what it looks like to me. So I agree. I think the logo is a little weak. I wish they had maybe tried to make it more like the Batman logo. That aside, I just – just the way it roars in. I like that the headlights are kind of bleeding a little bit. Like that's a great little detail. Mm-hmm. It's – for drawing a car, it is a, it is a fantastic piece. I love it. And it's worth it's worthy of the cover. I mean, it's yes. it's that good. It's that gorgeous. I I think it's funny that living in a very full universe. That's cute. Uh, I think you're right. It, it's sort of like Perez. You know, Perez did amazing costume designs that only he could draw. It's same sort of thing. Right. Other artists who try to draw his costumes and they just look stupid. And then Perez does it. You're like, no, I buy it. Yeah, so I'm sure if we looked at whoever was drawing the other Batman book, you know, that Brayfogle wasn't, I'm sure we would find this version of the car and be like, hmm, maybe not so much. Uh, heck, it might have been a Paro at this point. I'm not really sure. Maybe so. But, I don't know. But yeah, this, I just, it's so great. And again, this car is so famous. I think about it. They, they even make a joke about it in one of the movies is the car. Chicks dig the car. Like, right, that's right. how famous this car is. 
It's true. So, and it worked out conveniently that it was the first one alphabetically, too. Perfect. All right, so uh, for more information on this version of the Batmobile, you might want to check out the Batman Nightcast here on our network where they are covering the post-crisis version of Batman. And at this point, just to give you a perspective on where they were in the Batman universe at this point, Detective Comics number 623 was on the shelves at the same uh, same month this issue was out. And this is when they were doing those Dick Sprang issues where, like, Dick Sprang was drawing, like, a nightmare version of his characters in the book. It was like Batman was having hallucinations or something like that. I don't remember the details of it. But uh, so that's kind of where they were. And I should have mentioned the first appearance of the Batmobile – Batman number five is back in 1941. Oh, amazing. He knew how all to right. accessorize early on, you know. It will, like, yeah. Do it. Bruce is all about the branding. All right. Next entry is uh, Chemo or Chemo, depending how you say it. And this is the enormous, like, you know, multiple stories tall creature. Actually, I think, you know what? I can look in the back. It probably tells me his height, doesn't it? Uh, it does. 25 feet or taller. He's the giant sort of plastic creature who's shaped like a man but filled with chemicals. And he's smashing into a building like he's knocking it over as he walks through. And he's got this great sort of plastic sheen done uh, in highlights and purples with his green, bubbly, gurgly body. I, I absolutely love it. What do, what do you think of this? Co- this uh, I always call it the cover. Sorry. What do you think of the, the art? Oh, it's awesome. It's funny. When I was rereading this issue, like it said all bad villains issue. And I got mm-hmm. to, I'm like, wait, Kimo's a Batman villain? And those were like, <laughs> no, the whole issue isn't Batman villains. This just has a lot of Batman villains in. Like, oh, okay. Uh, I've always loved this character. I think it's one of the great designs. Like, I don't know who des- – I don't know who – created chemo doesn't give us any credits here i'm assuming it might have been at least visually ross andrew because he drew the metal man early on i just love the simple design um i am confident on the inset piece on the back done by mike mignola that this is probably the only who's who listing that features the villain vomiting on his uh, arch nemesis um <laughs> by the way it's important rob just mentioned i forgot to say who drew the entry yeah, so my, yes my mike mignola drew yeah. this entry perfect yeah, perfect it, it's just I, said, I think it's a great character i love the idea that he is kind of not, I don't think they suggest that he's he's not stupid because he doesn't he's not sentient really. Yeah, I don't think he's sentient. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me give the history real quick, and then maybe we can talk okay. about that real right, quick. Go ahead. So, so the gist is uh, first of all, his, his occupation is destructive force, which me I absolutely too. Love. <laughs> he is he is essentially he was a human shaped trash can basically for this failed uh for failed chemical experiments from the scientist and it was, he kept the scientist kept it to represent to himself that this was all his failures and it would drive him to succeed well come on folks this is comics surprise the human shaped chemical thing came alive and now spits deadly chemicals at people and can grow as we said to 25 feet tall and he fights the metal men quite frequently that's the major villain so that's that's just a little bit of the backstory there so and and um, by the way he's obviously a villain. He's got the black border and all that. So you were saying, Rob, I'm sorry, you don't, he's not sentient. Absolutely correct. Right, yeah. The, the way his, at least all the stories I've read him in, like, he's not, he, I mean, yes, he's destructive, but he's not like, oh, I'm going to kill. He's almost like the Borg, kind of. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in that the Star Trek, uh, the, the, with the first contact, like, if you just stand still and the Borg don't regard you as a threat, they don't come after you because they're just, they're not thinking about you. That's how the read I get on Chemo. Like, he will just walk through and smash stuff. And unless the metalman or somebody else gets in his way, he would just ignore them. And I, it's kind of an interesting angle. And again, the design is just so pure and beautiful and uh, i i don't know i always i've always liked this character plus he's uh, he's 5700 pounds so that's fun <laughs> i always think of him more like a galactus um not at a galactus level threat but just kind of a a force of the universe that doesn't really have regard for you and if he kills you it's there's no malicious intent involved he's just trying to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish so but yeah he, he's it is classic because he's just so it's simplistic and yet he looks great again the the 
green gurgling, bubbling chemicals with, again, the plastic sheen and that sort of domed, almost like a missile, missile type head. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's, it. it's super. Yeah. Yep. All right. So his first appearance was in Showcase number 39 from August 1962. And at this point, uh, the last time we'd seen Kemo was three years ago in Action Comics number 590. So I'm not entirely sure why they threw him in this Who's Who issue, other than he's super cool and he's you know relatively recent, at least post-crisis. But I don't know, maybe somebody had an idea for Metal Men because, again, no idea why Mike Mignola drew this either. I did some research on this one, and no- nothing leads me to see why he drew this, other than he probably just loved it. I- I'm betting. We have to interview maybe when we get to the end we have to do an interview like with michael yuri like a full-on interview about who's who because i i, I have so many questions <laughs> to yeah. ask him and like yeah. this feels like one of the lists and again this is just total like off the top of my head hunch like i feel like there were characters that didn't have any real great reason to be in who's who but they were like well look is there some superstar artist that likes them and we can sure. get them in the book like mike mignola if we can get mike mignola in who's who We'll just give him a character that nobody cares about because we have so many pages to fill, and we get that gives us Mike Mignola, and he, Mike yeah. Mignola. My, I, this is totally a Mike Mignola type character that he because he likes drawing big monsters, mm-hmm. so I could see that being as kind of like you know, we have this list and we have this list. Is there any crossover? Oh, there is. All right, Mike, here you go. Do camo. Have fun. <laughs> well, it's just it's kind of like John K. Schneider the Third doing uh, uh, your buddy uh, there, the Ultra. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. On to our next entry, folks. Uh, the next one is Cyborg of the New Teen Titans. So this was this is a pretty marquee character. It's almost a little surprising he didn't get the cover, really. I mean, yes, Batman, but, I mean, Cyborg was pretty big at this point. New Teen Titans had been huge. Now, it's, it's interesting. The time period in this, um, this, this issue came out the exact same month as New Teen – or New Titans, number 71, which was the beginning of the Titans hunt. And I, I, I wax on about that a lot. It's an amazing period of New, teen, of new Titans. It's it brought the, the book back to prominence to the point where they actually had – they spun off Deathstroke. They spun off Team Titans. They, I mean they were really doing well for themselves at this period or just after this period So, because you know, Titans had been in a little bit of a lull. Anyway, art by Tom Grummet. It's a fantastic shot uh, of Cyborg. He is um, bursting through a wall, and he's just coming right at you. He's got his arms out and everything. And just typical Tom Grummet style, where Tom Grummet can draw anyone in this era, and it looks great. It looks spot on. He's like John Byrne was that way in the 80s. He could draw anyone, and it looks great. Tom Grummet could draw anyone in the 90s, and it just looks, you know, on model. It looks perfect. And, oh, look, there's like a weird black smudge on mine. Oh, that's Tom Grummet's signature. Look at that. Huh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, Tom Grummet's just perfect superhero artist. Uh, I am I'm curious as to why this listing ends at the moment he becomes a member of the New Teen Titans, which is kind of weird. I mean, there's a lot of history, but it's kind of weird that, like, you know, you're that's 15 years of hit, or at this point, 10 years of history that is like, oh, we're not going to cover any of that. We're just going to get up to the point where he becomes the character that you know. I got to tell you, the, as far as the history goes, this is the history side of it, my favorite entry in the book. This is written like a story. Uh, it's written by Marv Wolfman, and it is really exceptionally well done. It really tells the the story of Victor Stone, and you really I, – I got like invested in it because I'll be honest. Cyborg doesn't do much for me. I, he doesn't wow me. He doesn't get me excited. When he shows up, it's like, oh, okay, it's the guy from Teen Titans. I don't hate him. I don't have a problem with him. He just doesn't do much for me. This got me engaged. I cared. You know, they tell us the story about his mother. You know, his father's a scientist working on, you know, cybernetics, but his mom is a scientist working on a dimensional portal. She makes this connection in another world, and this alien creature comes through, kills his mother, disfigures him, and then his dad has to put the cybernetic parts on there. And again, the entry just tells a really compelling story to me. So I thought Marv Wolpen just wrote the hell out of this thing, and I think it was absolutely great. 
Hey, so, just, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, go just, ahead. I just think it's interesting that it says created by George Perez and Marv Wolfman, and that it gives mm-hmm. Perez billing ahead of Wolfman. Now, it might have just been alphabetical, but as far as yeah. I've ever seen, when you give creator credits, the writer gets the first credit. You know, it's Stan, yeah. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, or Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, or Bob Kane and, and Bill Finger, or whatever. But this is Perez, is, it's the other way around. Just thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah. and, and then, secondly, like, we may have talked about this when we covered Cyborg's first listing in the original Who's Who, but that was back in 1973, so I don't know, I don't remember. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm curious as to what Cyborg, like if, is, I don't know if Cyborg's appearing in current comics, that's how out of touch I am, i assuming he is, because he's a movie star, too. We had his own series till very recently. Right, okay. Like, I'm fascinated at the idea that, like, because I remember reading the original Luke Teen Titans book, and the whole angle was that he was a freak. You know, that he felt like mm-hmm. a freak. You know, he was like, oh, I don't want to be outside around normal people because I'm whatever. And he was at a – but, like, in just the 28, 38, 38, 38 years since New Teen Titans, the world has changed. Like, we have people that walk around with, like – you know, robot legs. You know, mm. we, we have we have a senator that has two robot legs. We have Olympic runners that run on those blades. We have, we are very accustomed to having people around us who have these. I don't want to use the word cybernetic, but like robotic limbs, and it is no longer they are not like outcasts in society anymore. I mean, they never should have been, obviously. But I mean, nowadays. If you saw somebody in, in like a restaurant with a with a, like a robot arm, you wouldn't be like, "What's that?" You would just be like, "Okay, that's that's what that is." And right. I wonder, like, is there a new story to tell with this character living in that new world? I, I'm fascinated at that idea because so much of his identity in the early days was he was like Frankenstein. Well, now he's not. He would not be considered Frankenstein anymore. Well, I think the movie, uh, Justice League movie, sort of showed us that the, the the Frankenstein version of him there is he was merged with a mother box now, and right. so he's ha- got half alien technology, and the alien technology is talking to him, and right. it's, you know, right. it's scaring him because he doesn't know how powerful he is and where his power comes from. And I know in the new Fifty Two version, it's also connected to a mother box, so it could be that that's the focus of Cyborg now. I mean, he's been in the Justice League comics um, for he's been in the Justice League team for a while in the new Fifty Two, and I remember there he had some problems with the cybernetics giving him trouble and he couldn't control it. And so maybe that's where the freak angle comes in. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I even remember the Superpowers cartoon. He used to wear the hoodie. You know, he was an early adopter of the hoodies to uh, to, to keep people from seeing who he was because he was embarrassed, yeah. yeah. Well, the back, the back shows some great pictures of him uh, being repaired by his father. Gives you an example of his, like, super, uh, I guess, X-ray vision or telescoping vision. And they see him interfacing with the computer. And one thing I love – so I love about this character is all his variety of powers. He's got this tons of powers and gadgets and stuff like that, and you just talked about his motivation. And whenever – it's funny. Whenever I read this kind of stuff about Cyborg, my brain immediately goes to the Mayfair Games DC Heroes role-playing game because Cyborg was one of the characters they used a lot as demonstrations. And like he had the motivation of, quote, unwanted power. And under gadgets, they would just have to lay out all the details of how his gadgets worked and stuff like that. And I, it's funny. I find myself getting excited when I read about his powers because it makes me want to go play the role-playing game again so much. So I love it. It's interesting how much clearly people uh, within and without DC Comics like are fans of him because he, more than a lot of other characters, was plucked out of the pages in a lot of different ways. I mean, of course, he was on the Superpowers cartoon and he mm-hmm. was given a figure. Yep. And then he was, you know, put into the movie instead of Green Lantern or Martian Manhunter. Like he has been ge- a lot of, obviously, a lot of people that, that that work in the periphery of DC Comics and at Warner Brothers clearly see a lot of p- 
potential in this character because he keeps getting plucked away from the rest of the Toon Teen Titans and put into kind of quote unquote the big leagues, no pun intended. Well, he's, I mean, like he and Nightwing are the two that I guess have made good, you know, that sort of been allowed to grow up and, and, and join the big leagues at different points. Yeah. yeah. So for more on Cyborg, you should check out the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast by our buddy uh, Tom Panarese. He does, uh, did a lot of stuff, at least more so on his blog, but he did a lot of coverage of the Titans. You can also listen to the Titan Up the Defense podcast. Now, you mentioned earlier his first appearance was all the way back in the 80s. It doesn't list the year here, oddly enough, but DC Comics Presents number 26 was the first appearance of Cyborg along with the other new Teen Titans. And at this point, as I mentioned, the Titans Hunt, yeah, Philemon, I'm talking to you. The Titans Hunt number, the first issue was on the shelf, and Cyborg was missing and it's interesting the timing of this entry because cyborg is dramatically changed by the titans hunt and so uh sort of this is sort of the last gasp of the traditional cyborg and then right here in the top of the page of my notes it says my daughter loves me because she got a hold of my notes and uh drew on them last night so look at that. it was very sweet so and, and <laughs> all right uh up next is the daxamites uh art by pat broderick and uh, oh yeah, he did the inking as well. Okay, and it is um, it's basically a brochure for Daxum. It's this guy walking around uh, with this beautiful lady on his arm. He's got like a cool sci-fi outfit on. He's got a little, almost like a, a an accountant's green eye shade, except it's blue. See, I thought She's, he was I thought he was a blackjack dealer. <laughs> right, exactly. She's this beautiful woman. She's got like a fancy dress outfit, kind of showing some midriff. You see maybe a cop behind them and tall spires and everything. It looks like you would see it on a brochure for Come Visit Daxum, and uh, so it's very pretty. And on the back side, uh, it's orange for aliens, and the writer is Mark Wade. And basically, it explains what Daxum is. Daxum is a planet similar to Krypton. You know, these people live there that if they get exposed to the yellow sun, they become just as powerful as the Superman, or if not, more powerful. Except they have, they're in, rather than being weak to kryptonite, they're weak to lead poisoning. So, they, so the, the, the pro is a little more powerful than Superman. The negative is just about everything in the world could kill them because there's lead everywhere. So they came to Earth, at least in the 20th century, during the invasion storyline. There they had some dealings with Superman, and uh, then uh, one of the Daxamites from invasion, his son is named Largand, who then comes in after the invasion, becomes Valar, becomes Monel in the 30th century, and really becomes uh, you know the, the linchpin of the post-crisis DC uh, Legion of Superheroes. Then the story jumps forward here to the 30th century. We talk about Laurel Gand, which is the basically the uh, the, the post-crisis equivalent of a Supergirl. Really, anyway, she's from. Uh, uh, Daxum as well, and they talk about the Great Darkness Saga and how the planet of Daxamite was enslaved, and the, pot, the planet actually was reshaped to look like Darkseid's head. It was super creepy. And then they get into some of the 5YL, the five-year-later Legion stuff, uh, continuity, where Galorith has actually wiped out Daxum, and Laurel is now the last daughter of Daxum. On the back, you get inset pictures of the planet. You get uh, Laurel Gand and her cousin Monel, and then you get um, a bunch of fetuses in jars, which is kind of creepy. So, <laughs> what do you think of this one, Rob? Because I know you love Legion so much. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, Super. He first appeared in, in. They first appeared in Superboy number like ninety eight. I mean, I had no idea eighty nine. Excuse me. Transpose those numbers. That's from nineteen sixty one. I had no idea they were that old. Like, I didn't well, know they Mon- went back that far. I mean, Mon-El, I'm just, it's probably Monel. It's probably what it is. I guess so. Um, but I, I love in the first paragraph where it says, because of this trait, talking about that they have Superman's powers are only greater, there is speculation by some spacefaring races that the inhabitants of Daxum were actually colonists from ancient Krypton or that the Daxamites and Kryptonians come from common ancestry. These theories have yet to be proven. 
Then why'd you bring it up, Mark? Like, uh, what are you doing? Come on. I mean, I, I could... There's a word count, Rob. Come on. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't have a whole lot else to say about it other than, yes, it, it does look like a brochure. The, the woman's costume is clearly coming from the, I think that guy's name was Bill Tice, the guy that did all the original costumes for the Star Trek 60s series where it was like as much women's skin as possible. Oh, gosh. In the future on Alien Planets, women will be scantily clad. <laughs> well, one thing I love that Pat Broderick does, and he did this with the uh, Cahunda entry last time too, is he fills the whole page with art. He's got a lot of detail in here. Now, he's a, obviously a past Legion artist, which is why he got tapped for this. But I mean, he takes the time to fill every bit of the page, which I just love that he's using the space available to him. So I like it. I think it's fun. I have to notice that on the last JLI episode, Kyle Baker took you to task for saying Cahund, and uh, then he, he got you to call to say Kund, and now uh, you slipped back the H back here in Who's Who. I did, and you said his name wrong, so we're even. So his name's Keith G. Baker, but that's okay. What Not Kyle Baker. Oh, Kyle, Kyle Baker's an artist. I was thinking the artist. Uh, I always have Kyle Baker on the mind. Uh, that would be awesome if you get Kyle Baker on the show. Well, that'd be, well, yeah, he could be on an episode, couldn't he? So uh, <laughs> for more information on the Daxamites, please check out the Legion of Super Bloggers or check out the First Strike Invasion podcast where they talked a little about Daxamites there as well. And at this point, Legion of Superheroes uh, was on issue number 13 on the shelves, but part of the five-year-later saga. So there you go. Up next is Dr. Light the First by Mike Clark and Mike DiCarlo. And Dr. Light is, I think, robbing a bank. I'm not entirely sure. But he's uh, he's knocking out a couple security guards by creating constructs and blowing out their guns and, and, dis- and confusing them with light shows and stuff like that. It's not my favorite drawing in the world. Um, how do you feel about it, Rob? Uh, yeah, I'm, first of all, I'm a little thrown by the perspective here because, like – Dr. Light is right in front of cop on the left. And yet, if you proportion it, it means that Dr. Light is approximately 12 feet tall compared to right. the tiny little <laughs> cop. Um, I'm, like you said, I'm guessing this is a bank. Can you figure out what that word is supposed to be that's cut off every through? Would we just say R-E-S-S? I don't know what the other word is. Don't want to admit how long I talk thinking about that yeah. uh, in prep. I took a long time thinking about that. I, the nearest I can come up with is express, and I don't even I know guess. what that would mean. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of this just because like, you can't tell what he's doing. I mean, he's obviously robbing something because it's a place that has armed guards. But and I, it looks like it, she looks like a bank teller. And she looks she's like a bank behind teller. a partition, right? Yeah. But, I, but I also will say, you know, there was one time I was in the Hello Kitty store in Times Square, and they had an armed guard in there, so it, it could be that too. <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's what he's robbing. That's exactly it. Yeah, and that would be a very Doctor Lady crime. Uh, is this the first entry we've had where he's marked deceased? I can't I think. think so. of, I can't think of where we've seen that before. It's just that big thump. There and yeah, we like see a stamp. The stamp. Like yeah. A stamp. Yeah. Um, it, this is obviously where Doctor Light is in his total joke phase because the entry is written very silly i mean it's yes. you know it says on the powers and weapons uh, as a hand-to-hand combatant dr light couldn't beat an egg so i mean <laughs> this, he's he's just a total joke at this point and and you know knowing what would happen to him later i guess i would prefer this version but i i don't know i i, I feel like they leaned into this a little too heavily yeah he's kind of a mort but that's okay you didn't need to make him like a complete another jerk but you know that was, well, that was what was going on at the time they they were doing that in Suicide Squad too. They were really trying to uh, harp it up on how much of a, a loser he was. Um, by the borders black for villain, obviously. Um, and the r- writer is again Mark White. Now here's the deal: he was a scientist, and he was illegally selling Star Lab secrets. And his partner was a guy named Jacob, who actually was uh, trying to become a superhero himself, called Doctor Light. And uh, there's a confrontation between the two, and J- Jacob dies. 
and Jacob starts haunting uh, Arthur Light here. And so Arthur ends up taking on the outfit of Dr. Light and then with the powers, and he finds out that keeps the ghost at bay. I don't know where all this came from. Maybe a secret origins. I don't know. I, I, this obviously is all retconned. Um, and he eventually becomes intoxicated with power, and he goes and fights the, uh, the the Justice League of America and gets his butt kicked. And then he keeps losing and keeps losing and loses to the Titans and everyone else in the world. He, he forms the Fearsome Five. He even lost the leadership of that group to Simon. Uh, or Simon, yeah, Simon. And so, again, they're trying to prove what a loser this guy is. And eventually he dies as part of the Suicide Squad, and now he's a ghost. And, in fact, in about... Five months' time, he will come back as a ghost in Suicide Squad. So uh, they're, they're really trying to play that up. I love the <laughs> couldn't beat an egg. That cry, I actually wrote that down. It was so funny to me. And, yes, of course, you know, Identity Crisis would completely uh, re-identify the character, explaining why he became such a fop, if you will. Um, but that's a story that we don't need to talk about right now. Or ever, for that matter. Oh, okay. Well, I, I still think it's a good comic. I just don't necessarily like what it did to the DC Universe. So for more on Dr. Light, you can check out the Task Force X podcast uh, by our buddy Aaron Head Moss. So, Oh, by the way, in his defense, he is a brilliant tactician, and he's a good scientist. He's just everything else in, in life is completely a mess. So. I, I do want to say I really like the thematic idea that um, another person came along as a superhero, taking his name, and became a member of the Justice League. Like – I just love that idea that like one of their longest running foes is now a member and it's a different person. I just think that's like just generationally, that's a neat idea. It's a shame they didn't um, because, you know, as I understand, Marv Wolfman, you know, created her for crisis, thinking somebody would do something with her. And then no one did yeah, it's a uh, shame. for a long time. And then thankfully they picked her up for Justice League, but only for about four or five, four or five issues. Uh, But eventually she joined Justice League Europe and became a, a long term member there. That's cool. All right. Next entry. This is fun. This is fun. You probably read this and you didn't even know what the heck this was. Um, <laughs> the extremists or extremists, however you want to say it. These are Justice League Europe villains, guys. And there's a lot to talk about here. And fair warning, if you're a fan of the Justice League International Blahaha podcast, which is a great show, by the way. Um, I, heard, I heard some- Kyle Baker was on it. <laughs> right. There is going to be some spoilers here, so fair warning for that. If you, if you really don't want to be part of that, skip forward about ten minutes or so. I would normally say five, but I'm really excited about this one. So – uh, on the cover is you've got the f- uh, five members of the extremists, or, or is it six? Uh, five. You've got Lord Havoc in the front who's wearing the big metal suit. You've got Dr. Die Hard in the back left hand. Uh, you've got Gorgon who's uh, this fat guy and who's got sort of these tentacles coming out of his head. You've got Tracer who's on the ground looking all savage. And in the background you've got Dream Slayer who's really creepy floating in the back. And they're standing on a mound of sand and dirt and dead skeletons. It's very creepy. And what this was was in the Justice League International group. This was their first real effort to create new uh, really threatening bad guys. Because, you know, Justice League International is always it was kind of a, a joke book, right? You know, it was supposed to be what was happening in between battles. Well, Justice League Europe was supposed to be more adventurous and have more, you know, action. And so they created a set of bad guys they felt like would be a real threat. And that's where this comes from. So here's the gist of it is. Uh, this group of villains, they're from another dimension. It Let's be honest. It's a parallel Earth, but they couldn't say parallel Earth after crisis, but they call it another dimension. Anyway, they're from the world of the Champions of Angor. You remember them with Blue Jay and Silver Sorcerers and all that? And um, on that planet, there was a a nuclear arms race, and the supervillains decided to end the arms race by basically taking control of all the nuclear weapons. And to force the nations to abandon these, this fatalist, you know, race of for weapons they were in. Well, you know, they're bad guys, so power corrupts. So eventually, the bad guys decided to use the, the weapons and threaten the world and to submit to their rule. Well, the world refused, and the villains actually unleashed all these atomic weapons on the Earth and just laid waste to the planet. 
Now the extremists have come to our earth to do the same. And uh, again, uh, they're really just nasty. They're violent. They're cruel. They're into torture and stuff like that. Now, uh, let me ask you, Rob, anything about these villains seem familiar? Uh, you put me on the spot here. Not, not I know. I did. Not particularly. No. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. There's a lot going on here. Okay. For starters, they're from the world of the Champions of Angor. Do you remember what the Champions of Angor were famous for? No. They were the analogs of the Avengers. Oh, Okay. You know, okay. Blue Jay was Ant-Man and Silver Sorceress was Scarlet Witch and there was a, one, one Jenna was Thor and all that stuff. Right. So they're from the same world. So these guys – and I didn't even know this uh, until uh, a couple of years ago. These guys were analogs of Marvel villains. Lord Havoc is Doctor Doom. Doc, Doctor Die Hard is Magneto. Gorgon is Doctor Octopus. Doctor Octopus. Tracer is Sabretooth. And Dream Slayer is Dordamu, uh, Dormammu. Huh. And so they wrote them as – I mean they, they didn't treat them as a joke. They treated them seriously. They were scary villains. But again, it's sort of following the Champions of Angor idea. They based them on Marvel characters. Now, here's the big, 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 big reveal. Okay, So again, spoilers for you Just League Europe uh, listeners, folks. So again, I told you that they, they used all the atomic weapons right, and wiped out the planet. Well, they killed themselves too. The, the extremists are dead. What happened was – on that world is basically Disney World. They call it Wacky World. And they kept going. And so the, the computers, the systems of Wacky World created animatronics of the people on the planet. The last people alive are the extremists. So they created animatronics of the extremists. And they acted just like the extremists and came to our world. So it turns out you find out at the end of this, these are things are all robots. And it takes like a, a sort of a Walt Disney-like character to get them to shut down. So that was the big reveal at the end of that, which was uh, just really like a big shocker. So – now, to give you some perspective on the timing of this, this, this is when this issue of Who's Who's on the Shelves shows Justice League Europe number 20, they had just defeated the extremists. So this is extremely timely. I mean, it was just last month when they finished defeating the extremists, and it goes right into Who's Who. So that's a great way to do timeliness. You know, they, they, they sync that up quite well. So, and by the way, the art, I didn't, I didn't say who it does. Our Bart Sears did the art. So, uh, uh, q instructor, Bart Sears. And, uh, on the back, it's got little inset pictures of every single character. And then, then uh, there's an inset picture of everybody fighting, uh, the Just League Europe folks fighting them. So let me, you know, stepping back from this, I know how much you love the 90s. Um, what, what do you think of this? Well, again, the, the listing makes no mention of the team's original name, which was the 1990s. That was the original <laughs> name of the team. Uh, you know, well, it is the extremists. It's right there in the name. Yeah, this this is another thing where um, reminded me of I think the first who's who that we did the loose leaf where I'm having a false memory, okay. uh, which is worrying me because I'm starting to wonder if I've been incepted or something because <laughs> I have vivid memories of Justice League Europe number one coming out and mm-hmm. everybody at Cubert being all excited and like showing being excited because Bart Sears was an instructor, as you just said, and a bunch of my friends had him. I didn't have him as an instructor and, and being all like, Oh wow, Bart, you're doing Justice League number Europe number one. But that can't be right because Justice League Europe number one came out in April of 1989, which is before we were at school. And mm. even so Bart didn't teach first year anyway. So the earliest anybody would have had him would have been September of 1990. So my memory of it being Justice League Europe number one cannot be right. It must have been a later issue of Justice League Europe. Um, you didn't stay around all that long. Right. So that, so I'm, I'm just remembering it wrong. I do think it's funny though considering the, a conversation you had on JLI a couple episodes back where you look at the inset shot and we see full body shots of elongated man and metamorpho, flash. But what do we get a power girl? Butt shot. 
<laughs> that's true. That's true. It is a butt shot of Power Girl. That's funny. <laughs> so I they, mean, they I, love their butt shots, don't they? They love their butt. Ben Bart especially loves his loves his butt shots. Um, no, I mean, I you know, I like Bart Sears stuff a lot. It's it's very stylized and it's very extreme. You know, I mean, just that's just was his style. But I actually think that he brought a lot of. Uh, quality draftsmanship to it and if you look at a lot of the dc comics in the mid 90s you'll see a lot of people imitating bart sears's work without the talent behind it yeah and there absolutely. is some there is some grim stuff uh some of it by actual cupid students that were just copying bart frankly but bart bart had the goods you know i mean this mm-hmm. is really exciting and the, the, the designs are very, very ornate and complicated. It must have been a pain in the ass to draw these guys regularly. <laughs> so they probably didn't appear a whole lot because if I would just be like, oh, geez, this is a lot of work. Well, it, it, it's interesting. That it's also sort of, you know, uh, Keith Giffen's commentary on the extreme 90s as sure. they were coming. I mean, he saw it coming in the writing on the wall. And that's part of what these characters are supposed to represent. So, yeah, yeah it, it all's a, it's a nice big package. So, yeah. well, for more on Justice League International and the Extremists, again, listen to that awesome podcast with that dead sexy uh, host. So. All right. Up next is Our Man 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, this is uh, the son of the original Our Man. This is uh, Rick Tyler, not Rex Tyler. And the front is this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous picture by Matt Wagner. He, it's uh, the new Our Man. He's basically in his dad's classic costume. He's got his arms stretched above him, and he's standing in front of what you, it's got to be a giant, you know, like town square clock. And it's uh, just at nine o'clock, and it just looks stunning. The way you know, of course, Matt Wagner's a master of using blacks and shadows, and it just looks gorgeous. What do you think of this one? Oh, it's great. I mean, you're never going to hear me say anything about uh, about uh, Matt Wagner, obviously. Uh, I, I am kind of curious, like, just how tough it's got to be to determine creator credits in comic mm. books because it's just Our Man 2 created by Roy Thomas and Todd McFarlane. I mean, look, hey, I love Roy Thomas. Everybody knows that. But I, I wonder about, like, can you really claim credit by just saying it's the son of the original hero with the same costume and same powers? Is that really creating a character? I mean, well, I don't know. They're, what they're saying is they created Rick Tyler. No, I think not create like Our Man 2. I know. They created but I mean, Rick Tyler. You know, I mean, just say – but, I mean, there's – I mean, obviously, he got a cost. He got a different costume later on. He got the purple suit, which we see in one of the insets. But it's, it's just sort of funny, though, that when you look at him, you're like, well, it's just the son of with everything else is the same. You're like, okay, great <laughs> credit. You know, like, it's just, just a little – like, really? Does that work? But, okay, it's fine. Well, you know, you and I had an interesting conversation with Jerry Conway a couple years back about that very issue. That's right. Where we talked about what is – Create, you consider creating a new character versus creating a right, um, right, right. There was a, a legacy, term. a legacy character. I was think. a legacy? It's, it's, it's maybe not a derivative or something like that. Derivative. Anyway. Dera- I think that's a derivative. Yeah. Yep. Because it's like Nightwing. Actually, you know, you created Nightwing, but that's Robin. Is it really? You know exactly. Yeah. And we, we played a lightning round with him and basically rattled off all these characters he created. Oh, that's and he right. explained to us, yeah, he explained to us whether it was an original creation that, you know, he gets, you know, uh, some financial gain from or whether it's considered a derivative derivative character, yeah, uh, where he doesn't get anything from. You know, like, um, I can't remember what the deal with Power Girl was, but I think she was derivative because she's a derivative of Supergirl and, and Superman, but that kind of situation. Boy, he was a good sport. 
Oh, he was great to put up with our nonsense. I mean, how many, how many times have we interviewed Jerry Conway? Oh my God, up with our idiocy. God bless you, Jerry Conway. Excuse me, Mr. Conway. Thirty years ago, you wrote in a comic book this thing. Could you please tell us why? And he's like, guys, come on. It was it's a job. I mean, he's so nice. He put up with our nonsense. So anyway, uh, Our Man Two. The order, of course, is red for hero. You already mentioned the, cre- the creator credits. So the deal with Rick Tyler was he was a young man who wanted to be an artist. You know, he didn't really want to take up his dad's mantle. But then Crisis comes along, and there's a big emergency, so he takes a Miraculo pill. You know, turns in, becomes the Iron Man kind of thing. Ends up joining Infinity Inc. Uh, along the same time as the new Doctor Midnight, the female Doctor Midnight, and they end up romantically involved. And uh, th- there's a whole thing with his dad. There's a lot of pressure with his dad about not being Iron Man. He's very worried about the addictive nature of Miraculo. So eventually, they develop a non-addictive version. Which, years after this Who's Who entry, uh, Rick actually develops leukemia from this new version of Miracle. It's very sad. Uh, he does end up recovering because comics. And they get involved with the, uh, the Hour Man from the 853rd century from DC 1 Million. The, the Android Hour Man, which was an amazing series by Tom Payer, by the way. So good. If you've never read that Hour Man series, go find it in the dollar bins. Oh my gosh, it's so worth it. Uh, and then Jeff Johns used Rick Tyler to great effect in his Justice Society series. He ends up becoming like a really major player in the team. In fact, he gets another costume, which is basically his dad's costume, but the colors are reversed. Like he's wearing uh, – whereas yellow is black and black is yellow. It looks super sharp, and he ends up marrying uh, Jesse Quick, who at that point was going by her mom's superhero name of uh, Liberty Bell. So great character uh, that really got developed in later years because you know he goes from here. Um, in fact, at this point, he hadn't even been seen in two years. He had been seen last in, like, Invasion and Infinity, Inc. We didn't see him for two years before 1990. He shows up a couple of different places. Then he disappears until 1999, so he goes away again for a long time. But eventually uh, he found his feet, and he's really super cool. I really like the character, at least, especially his later versions. I, I will say this about the original Hour Man, and I mean, no, that's not who we're talking about, but, you know, we're here, so why not? Uh, I wasn't that familiar with Hour Man growing up because he just wasn't in a lot of JSA stories by the time. Mm-hmm. Like he was in a lot of the team ups or whatever. And then um, in JLA 195 through 197, which was a three parter JLA JSA team up, the first issue has different installments of the heroes taking on their villains. Like it's Batman versus Signal Man and Superman versus Ultra Humanite. And Hour Man gets like a couple of pages where he mm. takes on Psycho Pirate. And I remembered – Remember, it makes me think of the maxima like there are no bad characters. It's just how they're written mm-hmm. because I remember being a kid, being vaguely familiar with Hour Man, and that sequence as drawn by George Perez and written by, again, Jerry Conway is so good that I was like, give me an Hour Man series. Like that's how good it was. It was so brilliantly staged and Jerry knew how to use the powers of Hour Man perfectly. That I was like, oh my god, why is Our Man not like a star of the DC universe? Because it was so mm. well done. So it, I look at this and I just think, yeah, there are no bad characters, really. It's just all how you do them. Yeah, I, I, I fell in love with him in All-Star Squadron. And just thought he was a great character there. They did some more to develop him in All Star Squadron, and I just thought he was the absolute coolest. And in fact, he's been—he's so cool, and his powers are so sort of low key, like not special effecty. That there's been there was talk a couple years ago about um, doing a TV series based on him because it was, it was a pretty simple concept. Oh but my then God. I think um, it's like 24, but it's a superhero series. 
Well, it's uh, <laughs> I think Limitless uh, is the name of that show that came along where a guy takes a pill and it does something. Yeah, to him, so right, that kind right, of, right. Kind of put the kibosh on that. So unfortunately, but um, going back to the drawings here, so the inset picture is just him, you know, being an artist, obviously like a beatnik hanging out in a bar, I guess. There, then there's this great shot of him just holding a kid up, just the outstretched arm demonstrating his strength of just holding this kid up in his hand. Very 1940s kind of image. Yeah. I let, and there's a clock behind it, you know, demonstrating the power. And then him there with, like you said, that ridiculous purple costume with Jade and Skyman. So, yeah, super fun. Love it. Cool. Got it. Got a lot more mileage out of that discussion than I thought we would on that character. Wow. This is a uh, high-energy show. <laughs> up next is Jimmy Olsen with a great cover by Kerry uh, Gamble and uh, Dennis Jenke. And it's a Not really a cover, Shag. Cool Not a cover. I'm going to keep saying cover, apparently, okay. for the next 16 issues. So you all might, might as well just suck it up and deal with it. Um, you get this great close-up shot of uh, Jimmy. He's taking a photo. He's got the camera to his eye. And you can see in the lens Superman's pulling away some punk. And apparently there's a product placement for Nikon here as well, too. Nikon cameras. But it's a, it's a nice little close-up shot of Jimmy as he looks in the post-crisis world. And uh, inside, they, they talk about uh, – Sorry, not inside because it's not a cover. On the back, <laughs> they talk about Jimmy. He was a, he, They really play him up as being really smart. He's a tinkerer. He likes to build things. He built a computer at the age 12 in junior highs when he started interning, interning at the Daily Planet. I didn't realize he was that young when he started interning. Wow, that's crazy. And he, he say that he was in junior high when he met uh, Lois and Clark. So he was really young. And uh, he built the Superman signal watch himself. They talk about in the history here. Already since post-crisis, they've figured out ways to tell stories where he's turned into Elastic Lad, where he's gotten caught up with Cadmus, so they really kind of brought a lot of the pre-crisis stuff with Jimmy Olsen and tried to roll some of that into the post-crisis version of Jimmy Olsen. Uh, around this time, he had been hanging out with Jerry White, which was Perry White's son, a uh, very troubled young man, and uh, in that story, they ended up, uh, Jimmy and, and Jerry both got shot. They ended up going to hell, uh, the version of hell from Blaze, the villain that we talked about last issue, and Superman ends up saving them, and Jerry actually sacrifices his life to save Jimmy. It was a very sad story. And of course, uh, we all know Jimmy Olsen, uh, his, his, lo- his love is is uh, Lucy Lane, Lois's sister. And in the back end set pictures, you got him on a date with Lucy, and then you get him flying in the uh, the whiz wagon, which is the greatest name ever, with the, uh, looks like the Newsboy Legion, don't giggle, and then you see him being shot. What do you think of this one, buddy? Uh, you know, for a character that I've never had a lot of affinity for, uh, Jimmy Olsen really has been the recipient of two amazing who's who listings, because this is beautifully drawn <laughs> by yeah. Kerry Gamble. I've always loved Kerry Gamble. He did a great run on... Um, Powerman and Iron Fist. It's just mm-hmm. tremendous. There's a mountain comic in the future at some point uh, above uh, by Kerry Gamble. Just a great artist, solid, beautiful draftsmanship. Anatomy is spot on, but yet also dynamic and exciting. And then, of course, his original listing was by JLGL. PBHN. Right, so, I mean, PBHN, yeah. this is, this, so this is, you know, I mean, if you kind of do the inverse of, to me, like, the interest of character versus how great the listings are, it's it's huge. Because it these are both wonderful listings. No uh, knock on Roger Stern at all, but I kind of wish this one had been written by Mark Wade. Because even though we are now in the John Byrne era of Superman, I really feel Wade would have found a way to mention obliquely that like, you know, Turtle Jimmy or the time that Jimmy <laughs> married a gorilla. Like, it just, you know, I wouldn't be able to get those in. Um, the shot of him, the, the inside of him getting shot is upsetting, but I wish yep. that happened to Snapper Carr, not Jimmy. Um, but, Ouch. Uh, yeah, but uh, no, I think this is a, a great a great listing. I mean, again, I'm not, I've never been that big of a fan of the character, but 
he deserves it. I mean, he's been around since, as they say, Superman number 13. I mean, Jack Larson, when he played him on the Superman TV series, he was so popular, they were considering giving him a spinoff. They were gonna do oh, a, my gosh. They were going to do a spinoff show of just Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. That's how popular that character was. So, I, mean, I all, had no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All props to, to Jimmy Olsen. He's a great character. Great, one of the great supporting characters of all time. Well, and you know, he had his own comic series for sure God, did. forever. Decades. And, yeah, and some important things happened in that. I mean, Jack Kirby came in and did some huge things in there. So, yeah, it's big time. Now, by the way, he's, it's, his border's blue for supporting character, of course. Now, you, you bagged on Roger Stern writing it. I love it. I didn't. Oh, Stern hold on. Writes. Wait a minute. I didn't bag oh, you. Oh, you pooped all over it. It was horrible. I mean, I'm crying tears over here. Go ahead. Make your little weak defense. Just go on. <laughs> well, what I was going to do is correct you. You said the burn era. The burn era is over. At this point, the burn era has closed its doors. Well, and I mean, sir, the burn version of Superman. Is, sure, but I, I think a lot of Superman fans, and I can already see the comments flowing in at this point. We haven't even released the episode, and yet Michael Bailey's already writing an email uh, about how, yes, burn set it all up, but it was really Jerry Ordway and Roger Stern and Dan Jurgens and that crew that came in after burn that really, really uh, brought the Superman books to be ama- to be an amazing, cohesive thing. And create this great universe that we all know is the post-crisis Superman. Yes, Byrne put it all in motion, but these guys really took the ball and ran with it. Fair. And so that's why I'm happy Roger Stern did this. I uh, didn't mean different. to slight all those creators. I just meant this is the version of Superman with the new history. That's all that I You heard it here first, folks. Rob hates uh, the post-crisis Superman. So, uh, Interesting correction. I just noticed there's was going so well. We were having a really good episode, <laughs> and then you just pooped all over it. I did. I did. So this thing's actually got a mistake. Uh, I didn't notice this. Um, it says, uh, you know, it, the cover or the uh, the art is by Kerry Gamble and Dennis Janke. Janke's name's right on there, but the back's actually credited to Brett Breeding. Interesting. Hmm. So, what was it? Arlene Lowe? Is that who he says the copy editor? <laughs> Arlene! So, um, this wouldn't have love- happened under Brenda Pope. That's right. And I do love that Jimmy Olsen's middle name is Bartholomew. That just cracks me up. So for more on Jimmy Olsen during this era, definitely check out the From Crisis to Crisis of Superman podcast by our buddy Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. They're going in and covering all those Superman issues. And by the way, at this point um, – oh, OK. Hold on. I should talk about first appearance. So Superman, first series number 13 back in November 1941. That's wild. That's crazy. And then it's his current version, Man of Steel number two from July 1988. I love it when they do the uh, original or historical and then and then the uh, current. That makes me very happy. Yeah, current so, version, Man of Steel by uh, – who did, who did that? Who wrote and drew Man of Steel? John Byrne, as we said, mm. launched all of that. But the people yeah. that came after him – Really took it further. Okay, I don't like you very much. Anyway, uh, at this point, on the shelves, this same month is an important landmark issue in Superman. Superman number 50, when Clark proposed to Lois. So, pretty big deal. All right. All right. Next entry is Jonah from the Legion of Superheroes. You know how I know? Because it says Jonah right in the logo of Legion of Superheroes. It's on there. And the art here is by Dan Jurgens and uh, oh, Al Gordon. Piece? Al Gordon. Oh, is it Al Gordon? Um, it is Al Gordon. I'm so sorry. And uh, so what you've got here is them. St- it's, it's Jonah standing in the front amongst a bunch of chaos. His clothes are all shredded and ripped up. And, you know, I, I really like this piece because uh, it's Jurgens, but it's done very, very much in the current Giffen style of the 5YL Legion. So I think he did a really nice job here. So going, I'm not going to go over his origin because we have covered – 
more than I think almost any character, I've covered Jonah's origin so many times. I'm, I'm like tired of it because every time we hit a, a, a legion, either the legion of superheroes, uh, either the who's who's, his entries, I've done this so many times. Short version, folks. He's part. He's on a planet Rimbor. He's part of a street gang. He's in a ship out in space that gets followed by an energy creature, which gives him powers. Basically, the powers of Superman, and he has them. He can only use them one at a time. Get it? He gets swallowed by a space whale. Jonah and the whale. There you go. There's your joke, guys. But uh, and I'm not being mean about it. I love this character. He's one of my favorite characters. I just don't. I, I've done this so many times with this character. And you guys, if you've listened to these previous episodes, you don't need to hear it all. So, but here's the interesting things. This is where you get into. He joins the Legion. And you get into the retcons, because originally Jonah was sent back in time uh, as sort of his Legion tryout to be a complete dick to Clark Kent Superboy uh, in Smallville. Well, in the retcon, he goes back in time to give Valor a hard time instead. And then it talks into here, gets even deeper into the continuity where he talks about uh, how he's aware that Mordrew and Galorath are doing retcons during the five-year-later era and how he's sort of trying to stop that. And, of course, his lady love is Phantom Girl, which is very sad because at this point in Legion history, she's gone. She has been lost in time, thrown back all the way, believe it or not, to the 20th century. And she's actually joined the Legion, acronym Legion, Legion, uh, as a totally different character. Now, folks, I don't need you writing in and telling me, no, that's not her. That's her cousin from – no, it, we all know that was supposed to be Tina Wazo as FaZe, and we don't need to argue that. That's that's the discussion for another day. But um, he, as far as in the five-year-later era, he was the second Legionnaire recruited by Rube Daigle, and here he's rocking the ponytail. And as far as I was concerned during the five-year-later era, I, which I absolutely love. I'm a huge fan. Really, to me, Jonah and Rock Crin, meaning Cosmic Boy and Ultra Boy, were really – they were the heart and soul of the five-year-later Legion of Superheroes. And I just – I love this entry. It makes me very happy to see the back. You see him going into the space creature. You see him with his lady love, Phantom Lady. And then you see him melting something with his um, – I forget what it's called, Pent- Pentavision or whatever they, whatever his different vision power is called. So I just said a lot of things, Rob. Um, it's Legion. What do you think? If I am unlucky enough to end up in purgatory, I am sure my purgatory will be me having to sit there and listen to you talk about the Legion of Superheroes uninterrupted for eternity. <laughs> really? It's that painful? Yeah, it really is. By the way, uh, it might be another mistake because as you mentioned, Carl Kiesel is credited on the front as the okay, anchor, also, and yet it yeah. says Al Gordon on the back. So I don't know what happened. Arlene Lowe went to lunch. I don't know what happened, but something's going on with these creator credits. Uh, okay, that's that's why there was that big pause for me earlier. I was like, yeah. what? Okay. Yeah. Uh, look, I have no, I have nothing to say about this. I just don't. Really? I, yeah. Okay. I just, I'm this, like, I, as we all know, I'm not a big fan of the Legion, but whatever version of the Legion that I know of like this version that i'm seeing i like even less where they don't have any superhero names and they have no costumes and they're all bedraggled i mean come on jonah get a shirt i mean it's (laughs) i i just i don't know i look at this and i'm just like can we just move on to the next thing and unfortunately we have to and then unfortunately the next page is another legion listing but (laughs) this is just like at least at the very least on the inset uh we see that middle shot of of Ultra Boy and Phantom Girl and Sun Boy and Lightning Lad. And, like, that makes me – like, I long for that version of the Legion when I look at these – everybody in their their normal, you know, street clothes. Just, ugh, whatever. This may come as a complete shock to anyone listening to this podcast for any length of time. But Rob and I are in complete disagreement. Uh, so <gasps> there you go. I know. Shocker. I love the five-year-later era of Legion. And I will tell you, I will put the first 12 issues of that book – Maybe – I don't know if I want to go say as far as say the first three years, but definitely the first year, maybe up to the third year up against any 
comic from the 90s, and uh, it's just fantastic. It is so freaking good. It builds a great mythology, a tapestry. It's just, I love that comic so much. So, anyway, all right, we'll move on to the next one. So, yes, it is another Legion entry. This one is the Acronym Legion, which, by the way, I, you know, I think we've only had one or two other characters from Acronym Legion, and I think this might be... Did we have the logo for the Legion on the Vril Docs entry? I can't remember or not. But either way, they, they've started to sort of create families of entries for who's who. You know, we've got the Legion of Superhero entries all have the Legion of Superhero logo on the front. Now we've got the Acronym Legion all have the Acronym Legion logo on the front. So it's sort of identifying the different families of who's who, which is nice because, oh, I don't know, if you like to catalog or put your binders in different orders, this might be a way to do that. Nerds! Hate you so much. So the first entry is here uh, is for Larissa Malore. No, she doesn't have a superhero name. Sorry, Rob. Deal with it. And uh, the art on the front is by Barry Kitson, and this is freaking gorgeous. It's got her in the Legion, like they're, they're, they have kind of a cop uniform. She's got it's all black with like yellow piping and the Legion hand symbol. It's got her walking towards you. She's got blue skin with black hair, and then you see a very close up of her face in the background with the Legion logo again. You see. Um, uh, some of the different various characters from the Legion, uh, acronym Legion team, and I just think this is a stunning as hell piece. What do you, you know, I know you don't like the Legion, but what do you think of the art? <laughs> if there's anything I find less interesting than the Legion of Superheroes depowered or decostumed, it's characters in Legion of Superheroes that I've never even heard of. And this God. is one of them. I'm like, I have no idea who this is, nor do I care. Uh, the artwork's just fine. Barry Kitson's a good artist. Uh, the little inset of her with her baby and the thing is cute. But yeah, this is just this was just a blur onto the Mad Hatter, frankly. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll talk for a bit then. So, the board was oh, red. She's a hero. Uh, shut up. And uh, it's written by Mark <laughs> Wade, and she was a really cool character. Like, I remember her in the Legion series. She was kind of a leader, and she was neat. So, the, the gist of this is, and here, I'll tie it back to your the Legion you like, all right? So, she is an ancestor <laughs> of the Legion of Superheroes character Shadow Lass. All right, you, you've heard of Shadow Lass, of right? Of course. She, she's an ancestor of hers, and because there's this whole generational hero thing going on with this family, and in the invasion, she was held prisoner with a bunch of other people. Vril Dox was one of the prisoners. Vril Dox, you know, formulates this escape. They all escape. They go to Kalu, which is of course the home world of Brainiac, and basically Vril Dox, because he's a complete jerk, manipulates all these prisoners that you know he escaped with into helping him overthrow the computer tyrants of Kalu. And then he forms this, you know, intergalactic police force called the Legion and drafts pretty much everyone into the team. So uh, he's a complete jerk manipulating everyone, but she's pretty strong-willed. She ends up becoming an acting commander. And as you mentioned, there's a great picture of her with her infant daughter down here. Well, sadly, her infant daughter is aged to adulthood by Pulsar Stargrave, and uh, her daughter's named Lydia. And Lydia ends up murdering Larissa, so we've got another deceased stamp right on here. And uh, now Larissa is similar to Shadow Lass. She's got these Dark Force powers. Now here's where the, all the it's, – it's a retcon upon retcon upon retcon. Lydia is the character that is that appears in the Great Darkness Saga. In there, there's a shadow-based character named uh, Lydia who they say, oh, this is an ancestor of Shadow Lass. Well, now here they've gone back and filled all the blanks in where you get the ancestor, you get the ancestor's mother, and then all oh, it's retcon upon retcon. retcon and, and patch, and I don't know if I should say retcon. It's more like patching history is maybe a better way to put it. So – Neat character. First appearance um, was uh, in Invasion number two, which was just a couple years ago at this point. And uh, right now they were on Legion 90 because they changed the name every year to the match of the years. So it was Legion 90, issue number 22, and she had just died. So for coverage on the Acronym Legion, uh, the Legion of Superblogs is planning to add a feature about the Acronym Legion in the near future. So be sure to watch for that. All right, Rob, take a deep breath. Here you go. The Bat Villains have begun, my friend. It is time to talk about the Mad Hatter. 
And you know, you know what? You're, you know, you're so excited about this. Why don't you tell us about the Mark Badger artwork here? Uh, it's it's cool. Very stylized. Not to everybody's taste. Uh, we do get a, a picture of the uh, the. It's the second Mad Hatter, though there is a portrait of the first Mad Hatter. And then we see him with a slightly, you know, not a great collection of hats. There's just like four. It's not that big of a deal, really. It's all that impressive. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, very, very stylized. He's, he's got this shirt on that has like no fold or anything. It's just a pattern and this gigantic bow tie. And uh, again, it's, it's not a bad listing. I don't think it's like the greatest thing I've ever seen. But I have always liked the Mad Hatter probably going back to – where I first saw him, which had to be um, the Batman TV series, mm. when he was played by David Wayne, who was always one of my favorite character actors, and he was really fun. On I, I like Mad Hatter. Mad Hatter is, I would put there up with Black Mask as, I think, the two greatest Batman villains that have yet to be tapped for live-action mm. uh, glory. And I think I've heard Black, Black Mask is made it into Gotham. I don't know. I don't watch that show. But I mean, they would mo- seem to reason. Uh, yeah, you would think. Of, but I think movie wise, like I think the Mad Hatter, if done right, could really be a cool villain. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to him because now there's like nine Joker movies or whatever. But uh, I, I don't know. I always dug this character. I always thought he's really cool. I mean, obviously he's taken from Alice in Wonderland, but I don't know. They gave it their own kind of spin on it, and he first appeared way back in Batman number forty nine. So he's been around a long time. Now, a little bit of correction to what you said, because it wouldn't be who's who without me correcting you. Um, Jervis Tetch, which is the classic, you know, Alice in Wonderland version of Mad Hatter, is actually the first version. He's the one who appeared first. But then he disappeared very quickly. And then the version from the TV series became the dominant version of Mad Hatter for a long time. And he's the one that used, like, trick hats and always had hat-themed crimes, the one that you love. And he's the one that's in the photo on the front. He's also on the back. He's got these giant eyeballs that come out of his his hat and is attacking Batman, which is so funny. Well, then Jervis Tech comes back in the I think in the nineteen seventies and straight up murders the version from the TV right, show. Right, right, okay. To, dem- to demonstrate just how dangerous he is, and uh, pretty pretty scary. And an interesting quote here: Unlike most of the Dark Knight's foes, the Hatter is truly insane and utterly unpredictable. And it's written here, by the way, by, by Mark Wade. And that's kind of a scary statement, implying that he's, you know, crazier than most of the Batman villains. That's saying a lot, you know? It really is. And what's, yeah. what's weird is, though, of course, the other version, now we're getting back and forth, the, the, the TV show version, let's just call it that. For, for He yeah. was brought back by Mike W. Barr in Detective Comics number 573, I believe, which was covered over on Nightcast. So, I mean, uh-huh. like they've toggled back and forth between these versions of the Mad Hatter because that, that's the version you see in, in the one drawn by Alan Davis where he – because he's got like the big handlebar mustache and he looks like mm-hmm. the version we see. So they've gone back – and you're right. I got confused about which version is first. It's weird to me that in this listing, which has so much dead space, they didn't do a listing of both. Like they just, yeah. you know, they just, I mean, it's like you had the space to cover both characters if you wanted to in full. Not a lot of text. You're right. Yeah. Now, like I wrote down some of the years, like, you know, Matt Hatter first appears in 1948. Then he doesn't appear, Jervis Tetch version, doesn't appear again until 1976. Wow. And then he doesn't appear again until I think 1982. So, I mean, it really was uh, kind of all over the board with his appearances. And then I would say it was probably maybe the Batman animated series that sort of cemented him as, you know, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they really, they really found a way to make all these characters kind of cool and uh, give present it to a new audience. Like I said, I, I always thought he was really neat. Obviously, he doesn't present much of a, of a, of a. Uh, what am I trying to say? Like much of a threat physically, but a lot of Batman villains don't. Joker doesn't right. to a certain extent, or the Penguin, or whatever. So they find a way to do it. I, I always, again, I always thought he was really cool. I know he's not terribly popular, but I, I just think he's a, he's a uh, fun character. 
I think there's more love to him than you, than you give him credit. You know, yeah. at this point, um, he had appeared. Uh, it had been a little while since we've seen him. It had been a year since he had appeared, and it was in a Secret Origin story where he appeared. And then later on, he would go on to uh, prominence, really, in the Secret Six. Uh, uh, comic by Gail Simone. He was a member of the team for a while, and he was wow. He was creepy on that team. He was he was like interesting and fun, and then he would just do something super dark, and you'd be like, oh my god! Ah. So really enjoyed him in the Secret Six. Now at this point, Batman was on um, Batman number four fifty seven was on the shelves this same month, which was the Scarecrow issue where Tim Drake finally takes the new costume. Oh, so good, so good. And uh, what, if you want more of Mad Hatter, you should check out the, again, Batman Nightcast. Or uh, Michael Bailey and Andrew Leyland do the Overlooked Dark Knight. I'm sure they will probably touch on some Mad Hatter stories at some point. So uh, nice job, Mark Badger. Up next is Martian Manhunter. Woo! Uh, art by Adam Hughes and somebody, Nelson. who Diane ah. Nelson, president of DC Comics. That's right. Or Mark. Maybe it's Mark. <laughs> so, uh <laughs> And it's it's basically it's, it's kind of funny. It's it, to me this is supposed to be a humorous entry because it's JLI, but it's it's also very dramatic. He's saving a little girl, but he's saving her from a, a giant safe. You know, like in the in the cartoons, they're always you know for some reason they're always raising a safe into a bank on a rope, like er, 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 and someone's always underneath it, and the safe falls. And and here he has obviously caught the safe and saved the little girl and her kitten from the last second. And uh, it's a nice little entry. His face looks a little off, um, like maybe he's it almost looks like he's falling asleep. But uh, other than that, I think it's a really Really, really nice entry with a lot, uh, nice use of shade and shadowing. And on the back, you get him as John Jones, the detective, doing you know, in, in, eating a donut in the police station. You get uh, a nice photograph. He's looking at an old photo of the JLI because you see uh, Booster Gold and Fire and um, Guy Gardner there. And Guy Gardner's doing little bunny ears behind Marsh Manhunter's head in the picture. And then you see him in his alien form sort of worshipping a star, a distant star. So uh, I'll get into the history in a second. But what do you think of the, uh, the art? Oh, I think it's terrific. It's Adam Hughes. You know, what's there to complain about Adam Hughes drawing any JLA listing? But you know what I really like about it? Why I think it's so unique? What's that? It's a superhero doing something heroic. Oh. Really very few of these. It's, I mean, I don't mean that as a knock, but it's most of these are pinups of the character looking cool. Very rarely do you see a superhero being a superhero. And here he's saving a little girl and her cat. From being crushed by a giant Acme safe, I think it's I think it's great, and I I see what you're saying about his face, but I took it as that he's straining slightly to yeah, lift this safe, and so yeah. that you're just catching him in that moment of that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, in two seconds later, he's gonna be able to lift it with one hand because he's very strong, but just right. we're catching him at that, and the lighting is great. I love the the, the modeling. Hughes does with those straight lines on the ink. That's just an interesting mm-hmm. little style, and uh, you know, I mean, Adam Hughes now is very famous justly so for his good girl art and i think that's when people hire him to do pinups like that's all they ever want you know it's like draw power girl with her giant tits you know i mean it's stuff like that well i mean i mean really i mean come on that's what it is but it's nice to see him drawing like a man you know i mean he could do lots of cool stuff so i think it's great and i love the coloring i love like how almost neony green uh martian manhunter is i think it's just cool good choices by tom mcgraw Nice. Yeah, very nice. Now, now, history here real quick is it's definitely a retcon. This is probably from the J.M.D. Mateus miniseries, I would imagine, where his family was killed by a plague. Uh, it wasn't – they changed the story where his family was killed by a plague and they fires a purification and he's teleported to Earth and he was completely traumatized. He was out of his brain and Professor Ertl ended up creating a bunch of false memories based on like old sci-fi shows and stuff that he enjoyed, which then um, – and that overlaid onto John Jones's memory. So he didn't re- – so everything we knew about John Jones, they're, they're not saying it was wrong. 
um, he had those memories of, of Mars. They're just saying those were fake implanted memories and because his family was really all dead. And this, uh, you know, having these sci-fi memories led him to being sort of a superhero and leading that lifestyle, eventually joining the Justice League of America and Justice League International. And he, he watched a lot of apparently TV police dramas, which inspired him to become John Jones the detective. And at this point, uh, he had figured out that fire was really a psychological weakness because, that, again, that was the you – know, he watched his family burn. Uh, and so now he's no longer uh, weak to fire at this point. Now, of course, they're going to flip that around. Sooner or later, someone does his origin again. But at this point, he was no longer weak to fire. Uh, except maybe the beauty of the character fire, I suppose. Anyway, on the shelf at this point was Justice League of America number 45, which is when Guy and Ice uh, try and get their romance going again, so that's good stuff. And his first appearance was back in Detective Comics number 225, all the way back in 1955. Wow! Silver Age character here busting through, folks. One of the earliest Silver Age heroes. Uh, and from- uh, is that Silver Age? Uh, well, that's a good discussion. It's a good <laughs> argument, but it's about the same time that Barry Allen appeared, right? Just before, and everyone okay. says Showcase Number Four is the beginning okay. of the Silver Age. So he's kind of like pre-Silver Age. He's not Golden Age, but he's pre-Silver. Well, he'd, he'd be like the end of the Golden Age, unless there's an age in between. There's some uh, weird little, yeah, there's some weird little overlap there. Okay, that's interesting. Good good point, good point, fair. Uh, so for more on Marsh Manor, check out the JLI podcast we've talked a little bit about. Also check out The Idle Head of Diabolo by our friend Frank, uh, which is a podcast and a blog all dedicated to Martian Manhunter. And we did an episode of the uh, Who's Who podcast all about Martian Manhunter uh, about a year ago or so. That's worth checking out, too. That's right. All right, next entry is Nightshade, art by Eric Shanauer. Uh, a name not too common in Who's Who, so this is kind of neat. And she is stepping through one of her uh, dimensional portals because she uses dark energy and can step through portals. And on the left is this crazy mushroomed world, and on the right is the city. And she's wearing, at this point, a different costume than she was traditionally known for. She's wearing a purple body stocking with sort of black leggings and a black body stocking and a very pale skin with, like, purple eye shades is what she looks like at this point. And, and the deal here is her name is Eve Eden, and here's her history post-crisis. She's, uh, she's kind of <laughs> – I was think it was a little bit like the reverse black canary because you know black canary dinah has black hair and wears a blonde wig well eve is blonde and wears a black wig so uh anyway she has this sort of normal suburban upbringing but it turns out her mother is this other dimensional nightshade queen because you know that happens and eventually the mom reveals this to her and her brother she takes them to this other nightshade dimension and while they're there everything goes wrong the mom is killed her brother is captured there's this villain named incubus that's there and she spends uh, and she escapes even escapes but she spends decades planning on how to save her brother. She ends up going through lots of different life paths, as they call it. Uh, she, she becomes a devout Catholic at one point, and then she leaves college. She becomes a media darling. She, she delivers this uh, Washington, D.C. jet setter life cycle, uh, lifestyle. She becomes an, uh, a government operative and a superhero and works for the CBI. And she ends up uh, being teamed up with Captain Adam in the – like Captain Adam has this false history. You know, it's all uh, – they came with a whole false origin, which is basically their way of explaining the Charlton comics. And they tie her into that because, of course, she's a Charlton character as well. And so she has fake history as well. And anyway, uh, eventually in the Suicide Squad story, she returns to rescue her brother. But it turns out she's too late. Her brother's been possessed, and he ends up being killed by this, uh, this creature. And she now has a succubus inside of her. So she has shadow powers and can create these portals, which tell border from one place to another. Um, my short, I, I know I haven't given you a chance to talk here, but my short version of this is I love her powers. I love her original look. I kind of dig her later look a little bit. I love her in the espionage angle. The whole thing with the other dimensional world is just like so unnecessary to me. It's so complicated. It reminds me a lot of magic, you know, from the X-Men. 
with Limbo, where she had the Limbo dimension and she would go there and horrible things would happen there. Uh, it just seems to me that if they had just focused on the espionage thing and just jettisoned the whole other dimensional piece of it, it, w- it would have worked so much better. I don't know. What Do you have any connection to Nightshade, any care, any love for the character? Not particularly. Um, I Yes, I agree. It feels like she's kind of like a more spy character. I mean, it, you yeah. know, she says she's a spy right here. But, I mean, her look and everything else, yeah, it feels very earthbound, very Black Canary kind of thing. And then, yeah, the, all of a sudden you have all this amethyst stuff happening. And you're like, wait, yeah. what is – like it just – it looks very, very strange. I, I – just as a minor note, it's funny. It says first appearance, Captain Adam number 82, which is, of course, a Charlton comic, but it doesn't mention that. And right. then there are other entries for Charlton characters, some in this very book, that will mention that it's a Charlton book. So sometimes they mention oh. it and sometimes they don't. Uh, so Arlene! You, Arlene! So if you didn't know, you would think that DC published Captain Adam number 82 in September 1966, which, of course, they did not. Um, the sentence, uh, Nightshade, still struggling with the succubus inside her. That's just a funny sentence. I can think of some old girlfriends I would describe that way. Uh, it's uh, oh And I, I also look at the front thing, and I think Eric Schanauer, Eric Schanauer used up a whole page of Zipatone for this listing. Was, yes, he did. Yes, he <laughs> did. Just, he had to throw that sheet out afterwards because there was nothing left. Um, yeah, I, I and I actually kind of prefer the original costume. I just think it's just, I don't know, more unique. I mean, I could see being a superhero in a skirt is probably not very practical so the body stocking makes a lot more sense but i don't know just visually i just think it's it's just kind of cooler but yeah i don't i just don't have a lot of connection with this character one way or the other really yeah no, I, I'm kind of the same way. I enjoy the, everything I've read with her, but I don't have a huge passion for it. Again, it's, it feels a little bit too like magic, like Ilyana to me with all that stuff. So uh, at this point, uh, she's Suicide Squad was on issue number 47 on the shelves. Her first appearance, as you already mentioned. Um, and uh, at this point, really, if you want more on the character, you should check out the Task Force X podcast where they're talking about Suicide Squad uh, with our buddy Aaron Head Moss. Up next, as you said, is a Charlton character, and yes, he is credited in the first appearances. Peacemaker's first appearance was in The Fighting, or Fightin', there's apostrophe, no G, The Fightin' Five, a Charlton series, number 40 from December 1966. Interesting distinction there. Uh, Again, another hero. He is basically, (laughs) it's a real weird contradiction, he is a high-tech warrior for peace, Uh, which is (laughs) always such a weird idea. Totally tracks. Right. The, the artist by Grant Meehm, it's, it's a great sort of action-y shot. He's, he's kind of like the Punisher, you know. He's in the front uh, front and center. He's got you know, two, an Uzi in each hand or an Uzi and AK-47 in the other basically is what he's got, like a machine gun. He's got a Tommy gun slung around his back. He's got grenades and a sword, and he's got this very distinctive helmet, which looks kind of goofy and doofy, but it, it's distinctive. It says Peacemaker, and, you know, it and, and tells you that. And he's, he's shooting everything, and in the background you see the PAX Institute, which he represents. Uh, I'll go to the origin here real quick, then we can talk about some of the art. His or and I don't know how much of this is post crisis and how much of this is Charlton era. So forgive me here. I'm just going to tell you what's on the page. Uh, his father was a Nazi officer in charge of a concentration camp, and uh, he escaped uh, capture during World War II. And then later on, uh, he was revealed. And rather than facing trial, he ended up committing suicide right in front of his five year old son, uh, which is uh, this Christopher Smith, peacemaker, and it traumatized the boy obviously. And he went nuts, a little bit nuts, and he was always haunted by the ghost of his Nazi father, who was always sort of like pushing him to be better. It was kind of creepy. And he eventually enlists in the military. He ends up in Vietnam, and he goes to prison for murdering a village. 
And they sign him up for something called Project Peacemaker, where they give him all this kinds of training to be like the ultimate fighting machine. Uh, Project Peacemaker falls apart through a loophole in the system. He ends up getting released, and he goes to Austria to take over the family company. And uh, it was a munitions factory. He dissolves that, and he turns it into basically the Pax Institute, which is pursuing peace. Um, that's, he does that in his civilian guys. In his superhero guys, as Peacemaker, he's fighting for peace. And eventually, by this point, he had been tied in with Checkmate. And again, that distinctive helmet gives him all kinds of different stuff. And um, it's written by Paul Kupperberg, which, of course, was writing the Checkmate series at the time. So what do you think of Peacemaker and the art here and everything? Well, it makes no mention of uh, his run-in with the Vigilante, uh, which was also written by Paul Kupperberg back when Paul was writing that book. And that is – I think I've mentioned this before probably at some point. I had to have probably in the Vigilante listing that we did. Um, that run by Paul Kupperberg where he runs into the – especially the ones with the Peacemaker are some of the most fun – bonkers balls to the wall DC comics you'll ever read because it is written and I know it wasn't written this way but it reads like Paul thought every issue was the last issue and so he was just like leave nothing on the table and just go crazy because at one point Peacemaker kills the star of our book the Vigilante and there's this part where Vigilante's like Peacemaker you have to calm down and he like touches Peacemaker on the arm and Peacemaker's Mm -hmm. like you're touching me you shouldn't do that. And then he just machine guns vigilante to death. It's it's completely insane. And so like that's the, like this character is ridiculous. I mean, if he was an action figure, he'd be the action figure that you can never keep complete because he has so many goddamn accessories. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, look, this is just one of these guys who just he loves peace so much he's willing to fight for it. Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I think Alan Moore had the right instinct to turn him into the comedian. Uh, for right. for yeah. Watchmen because he's just an absurd character. He wants to kill everybody to bring peace, and he's nuts. And I think he's most properly written that way. As he's just almost if ridiculous version of a more extreme version of Punisher, if that's even such a thing. So uh, you know, does he work as a solo lead? No, I don't think so. Does he work as an insane guy running around the DC universe causing havoc? Yes, he does. Yeah, and I think they were trying to get some of that Punisher heat off of the character too. I mean, because Punisher yeah, at this point was sure. over at Marvel, really cooking up some some popularity. Yep. So I know those vigilante issues must have been really close to, close to Crisis because they didn't get the Charlton characters till like right before Crisis. So that 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 must have been that kind of era. I don't remember. Eighty six, eighty seven, and then vigilante, oh, okay. vigilante was canceled a year later. So there you go. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Checkmate number 32 is on the shelves at this point, and we already talked about his first appearance. So there you go, Dan, again. Once again, check out the Task Force X podcast. So, All right. Up next rang, 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 is the Penguin. And if I'm not mistaken, we actually get a created by credit here, created by Bob Kane, of course, Oswald Cobblepot, art by Jim Aparo and um, – You've got the penguin standing there, you know, very classic superpowers, you know, Burgess Meredith style penguin standing there uh, in a high tech control room, which has a tree in it because because it does. And he's got a giant bird on his arm and the tree obviously has a hole in it. Like maybe there's an elevator within the tree. And uh, he's, of course, got the trademark umbrella and he's smoking a cigarette. Now, Rob, you are the world's biggest Jim Aparo fan. What do you think of this one? I think it's fine. I think it's good. It is not Aparo's best by any stretch of the imagination it's it's perfect like to me a, a bad jim opero drawing is better than most people's best drawing okay um but i don't think this is one of his best i think it's just kind of a real you know, he's just standing there with the bird landing on him like okay it's fine you know um it's opero inking himself 
uh, which was this is pretty late for him to be doing that. He was mostly handing over his inking to other people, a lot of Mike yeah. DiCarlo. So this was fun to see him inking himself. Uh, it says created by Bob Kane. I guess they didn't have room to put that in quotes. Uh, but oh, uh, oh <laughs> solid burn. Um, yeah, he laughed all the way to the bank. Uh, I, I, I like the I actually like the inset a lot better. It's a more it's a more exciting pose uh, where Penguin is commanding his his birds to attack Batman, and Batman has his arm up like you know I'm going to get pecked at. So I think that's a when, a when I see that one, I think Aparo definitely. Yeah, it's a Aparo it, was just great at action. I just think the front piece is just you know it's just Penguin just sort of standing there. So it's it's. Again, I don't. I'm trying to like not to be too critical because it's Jim Apparo and I love him, but it's just fine. It's just fine. Yeah. Well, the back sign is written by Peter Sanderson, and this is very much the Secret Origins, uh, the comic book version of Penguin. Here, they basically talk about how he his family had a pet store that specialized in birds. His father ends up dying of pneumonia, and his mother becomes super overprotective because of that, and always makes him carry an umbrella. Hence the umbrella. And this is also the version of Penguin where they go to a lot of effort to point out that, yeah, we get it. He's fat, but he's super fighty. You know, they talk about how he had trained and he could fight a, this bully who had killed all the birds in his family pet shop. And uh, the same bully had nicknamed him Penguin. And he ends up turning to crime and using, of course, birds and umbrellas. And he's a brilliant strategist, but his one weakness is his vanity. But again, they keep going on about how physically fit he is, which is – I get it. He fights Batman. You're trying to make him like a worthy adversary. But come on. Just – let him be the way he is. Let it. Let his strategy stand on his own, I think, personally. But anyway, uh, he had appeared just the month before in Batman, so he was kind of being active on the shelves there. First appearance is Detective Comics number 58, which is, uh, again, 1941. And uh, for more on Penguin, of course, you can listen to the Batman Nightcast or go back episodes of the Secret Origins podcast. Now, you love the Penguin. And, of course, Burgess Meredith really uh, – for me, that is still like the, the pinnacle. The, secret, the Superpowers version and the Burgess Meredith version are always going to be my favorite Penguins. Yeah. Oh, sure. Burgess Meredith just was chewing the scenery, having so much fun playing the, the Penguin. I mean, Penguin is one of the – first of all, it's interesting. He's not the Penguin. He's just Penguin, which is mm, interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, he's one of these. He's never been one of my favorites, but he's a character that has has appeared in every iteration of Batman. Kind of like in the movies, in the cartoon, the TV series. He was made into an action figure pretty much every every time there's been a Batman toy line. Penguin's That's true. part of it. He was a Mego doll. He was a Superpowers doll. He was a Toy Biz figure. I mean, he's just even though he's probably nobody's particular favorite. Although my pal Dean Compton. Uh, loves the penguin. He goes on and on about the penguin. Um, Jack Dower. Jack. He just. Well, we know Jack's insane. But I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's you know he's just he, like you gotta like respect the character because he's just so iconic. And I will say this: it's funny when I was a kid, a wee little kid, and we lived in Philadelphia. There was a, a strip mall that we used to go to pretty pretty regularly. I don't remember what was there, why we went there, but in the parking lot there was a car wash. And the car wash, their logo was like a guy in a penguin suit. Like he looked like the penguin. And every time we, – we must have driven by it 10,000 times in the 70s. And I just I, – the minute I see it, I'm like, oh, that's the penguin car wash. And like I just immediately <laughs> think it's the penguin car wash because that's just – it's so – it's such an uh, iconic look. So, um, yeah, I mean he's, he's one of the – everybody knows who he is. He's like he's, – he's not second to the Joker, but he's close. Yeah, he's sort of like the Batmobile. You know, yeah, he's just that yeah. recognizable. And, yep. and I, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I really think a lot of that comes from the Burgess Meredith portrayal. But yes, 
All right, up next, we're going to stay on the bat roll, folks. Uh, up next is Poison Ivy and art by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. And this one cracks me up. I love this one. She is uh, sort of kneeling, drinking a glass of wine, and she's looking very beautiful, and she's kind of turning at the camera. You see her hair kind of poofing. Like she just, like one of those sitcom opening credits where they turn and face the camera, like, woof, and their hair catches in the air. And she's smiling. And <laughs> cracks me up is in a bucket behind her where the bottle of wine normally would be is a bottle of calamine lotion, hmm. which uh, Kevin McGuire is obviously having a little bit of fun there. And it says, beware of poison ivy on the sign. Now, here's a couple interesting things about this artwork here is uh, she is kneeling in a sea of poison ivy. And I went ahead just to be sure and Googled what poison ivy looks like. And this is accurate. This is what poison ivy looks like. So that's pretty good. If you just you nerds, if you're ever out in the woods, I know you never leave your basements or your parents' basements or whatever. But just take a look at this entry and be careful. Look out for that when you go outside. Now, in the logo, though, where you see the word ivy and it's got leaves behind it. That is not accurate to poison ivy. In fact, it looks more like marijuana than it does poison <laughs> ivy, which is kind of weird. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, on the back, of course, uh, again, it's Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubin. So you get this great picture of her. I like her face in the in like the, the what we call the senior class photo because she looks a little bit like eh, not too sure of herself because that's one of the traits of poison ivy. She was never confident in her own beauty. And then the inside picture, she's stealing a vase, which I have no idea what that's from. I can't figure that out at all. Um, then you've got this great shot of her standing there in a very 1950s Batman and Robin on each side of her, their, well, that's, their heads. that's them redoing a cover. That's a, I believe that's the cover to Batman 181, drawn by Carmen Infantino. I think that's McGuire doing his pastiche. Oh. You mean the middle image? The middle yeah, one, the middle right? one. The Batman and Robin. Okay. Yeah, it's like literally that's the cover image from one of her earliest appearances. And so it's, I think that's just McGuire just doing a tribute. That's perfect. I still don't know where the vase stealing comes from. but And then uh, Poison Ivy about to kiss Batman. And he's got like – his lips are so tight like, don't you kiss me. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's really great. So Pamela Isley, um, sort of the, the, the history here, again, coming from the Secret Origins recent entry, she's a rich, pampered, spoiled kid. Um, but she's – unfortunately, she's emotionally unstable and a loner. And she's way too critical of her appearance. And she ends up becoming a botany student because she understands plants. She gets plants. So she does that. And she ends up getting involved with a science. Uh, it's Jason Woodrow who goes on to become the Floronic Man, and he performs experiments on her with, you know, based on plants. She ends up being not quite human with the power to control plants. She goes on to become Poison Ivy, of course, and she's decided she's in love with Batman, but it's an unrequited love. Uh, he has he has no interest in returning the love, and it becomes an obsession. And she, you know, one of the big things she loves to manipulate men uh, with her beauty and her sexual attraction, and eventually she kind of becomes dependent upon manipulating men. And she, uh, she's got all those plant control powers, and she can excrete various chemicals and potions, and she usually tends to do uh, – to give you – know, pass it on to people with a kiss. So uh, are you a Poison Ivy big fan? Not a big fan, but I think there's a lot of potential in the character. I think she, again, would be a great character for the movies. They've already tried it once and failed miserably, but uh, you know, who cares? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad casting though. Uma Thurman – was a good choice for Poison Ivy. I, I think. guess. Just, I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I just I, think so. Yeah, I think she was fine. I just think it was written so horribly. But oh yeah. But, but you can redo it. I mean, they did re- redid Bane, so I mean, you can redo that. Sure. Um, Jerry Conway again, not to wax his car again, but uh, he did a great storyline in the mid '80s with Poison Ivy that like ran across like six issues, hmm. where she kisses him. She kisses Bruce Wayne or Batman. I forget exactly what, but the toxin she puts in is like slow acting and it makes Bruce Wayne start to like act irresponsibly. And he starts like giving up parts of Wayne enterprises to benefit Hmm. poison Ivy. 
And everybody's oh, okay. like, Bruce, why are you doing this? And he's like, because it's the right thing to do or whatever. And you find out that it's all a, like a slow mind game, which I thought was a really fun idea that like her stuff isn't – she's not going to – she doesn't work as a punch Batman villain or strangle him with her vines Batman villain. It's more of a slow burn kind of thing, which I thought was really cool. So, yeah, she's a great character. Very clever. And then years later, they would team her up as like a double act with Harlequin for quite a while, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's a huge, like, I think she's like a huge on the cosplay scene. Like, you you go to much like Catwoman or Harley Quinn, especially Harley Quinn. But, I mean, you see a lot of Poison Ivies at oh, conventions. Yeah. yeah. And, well, now I was going to make a sexist comment about her costume, but I just leave that alone. So, uh, this, at this, one, point, this one's it, relatively demure compared to the later ones. The later ones. Right, like, exactly. Has, later on, she's a, just got a couple of leafs on her, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Leaf pasties. So, this is an actual yep. costume. She actually joined the Birds of Prey for a while, too, in the New 52. So she, she took a go at being sort of heroic. So uh, At this point, she just appeared in Suicide Squad, but her first appearance was all the way back in Batman 181 from 1966. Yep. And if you want more on uh, Poison Ivy, and quite frankly, who doesn't, other than going in your yard and rolling around in the leaves, you could try Batman Nightcast or, again, the Secret Origins podcast. All right. Up next is the Riddler. Just Riddler. By... What's that? Just Riddler. It's The Riddler <laughs> by uh, Kieran Dwyer and Dennis Janke. And I love this entry. This is one of my favorite Batman villain entries in the book. He is sitting in this giant, like, uh, golden chair. It's just an ornate chair with this huge question mark above him. I mean, it's like the question mark is almost as big as his body. And he's wearing his bowler hat and, and the green suit with all the question marks, you know, the, the suit version of Riddler. And he's got the giant golden cane with the question mark. I just think, you know, if, if someone told me this was like a Bray Fogel drawing, I would have believed it based on the shape of that question mark. It has sort of that... Barry Fogel World or whatever you called it earlier. Um, I love this drawing of Riddler. I think it looks freaking awesome. What do you think of this one? I like it. Yeah, I like it. I like him in his I, – I like both his costumes. I like his bodysuit. Uh, and the original entry drawn by David Mazzuccelli looks great. But I also like him here in his in his you know like his, uh, his zoot suit kind of thing, yeah. which they put him in in the cartoon series and stuff like that. So, no, I, I, who doesn't like the Riddler, you know? I mean, he's one of the great characters. Again, get him in one of these movies. He's been really underserved. Two. Uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah, well, I'm saying, but they've done like nine Batman movies okay. since then. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I love the inset picture because just he's, he's not a handsome man. He's just you know he's receding hairline. He looks like a bit like a looks like Matt Frewer a little bit. You know, I uh, shot at Matt Frewer from out of nowhere. <laughs> I like Matt Frewer. Anyway, and then um, they talk a little bit about the character. Basically, ever since he's a kid, he's been interested in puzzles and cheating at puzzles since he's a little kid. Uh, eventually decides he's so smart he needs to match wits with Batman. And he, they talk a lot about the psychosis he has where he has to send a riddle first. He, he can't stop himself from doing it. And they also talk about a very recent storyline he had appeared in, uh, which is called Dark Knight, Dark City, where he was actually possessed by a demon. Uh, I was actually reading Batman at that time. I don't remember the story all that clearly, but I want to say Mignola either drew it or drew the covers or something like that. It's really dark and kind of creepy. Anyway, uh, and again, they talk a lot about riddles and puzzles throughout it. And again, he has just appeared recently right before this with Dark Knight, Dark City, which kind of like brought him back to dominance, prominence, I should say, probably after that Secret Origin story where I think it was Gaiman who didn't Gaiman write that Secret Origin story yes, where he, he was like, yeah, king of a junkyard, basically. Oh, and he was I kind of like done. So it's a good story. Much. But it kind of took Riddler off the table. Well, they, they brought Riddler back in, in that, again, Dark Knight, Dark City to make him a, an ongoing concern. And um, 
It's a fun character. He's hard to write. I mean, because you've got to be clever as a writer to come up with riddles that make sense. It's enough for the reader to maybe get or maybe go, well, okay, I can see why once they know the answer. Uh, it's hard to come up with those. So anyway, fun character. And uh, for more, I would again suggest, uh, again, Nightcast or The Secret Origins where they talked about him at great length. Yeah, I dig. I really dig. The, I love the inset of Batman with the little Jack in the Box. Mm-hmm. And, like, I know that, like, he's not thinking this. But it, it kind of, the way he the way that Karen Dwyer drew Batman with his hand up to his mouth like he's like it's Batman thinking who sent this you're like well figure it out Bruce there's a big question mark on the side of the box I think you can probably oh. figure out what it is now I again like the Penguin he's one of these characters that's in every iteration he was on the TV show I've, actually the TV show really rescued him from obscurity because he, he was not around for many years uh, and then of course he was done he wasn't a part of the American superpowers line but he was done in Brazil. They, okay. did a, they did the Brazil, and he was basically just a repainted Green Lantern. Um, That's right. I and, knew that. and they said, if you even look at the Riddler action figure, you can see the little indent of the power ring on his glove. Because oh. they just were like, well, I don't want to need to sand it down or anything like that. But, of course, yeah, he's been in the movie, played by Jim Carrey. Did I tell the story about how I almost bought his first appearance? I probably did, right, when we did the well, first. Well, on, on some show, I've heard it before, but go ahead. Because his first appearance is 1948, and like you said, he disappeared for a while, and the TV right. show rescued him. So go ahead. Okay, I'll do it really fast. So when I we was, haven't gone long enough this episode. Exactly. When I, was a, when I was a kid, I used to shop at a comic book store in Philadelphia called Fat Jack's Comic Crypt. It is still around to this day, and they had tons of back issues, and this was like in the blah, blah, blah. This was when I was in high school. So I had – It's the was, 1930s. Okay. Yeah, 1930s. Yes. And uh, we got to stop the Jerry's. Um, and so I used to go over there. And of course, I had no girlfriend to spend money on. So I had, and I was working at a fast food joint, living at home. I was had, making actually pretty good money for a fifteen year old kid. So spending all my money on comic books. And so Fat Jacks would get all kinds of cool old comics. And at one point, they bought a a cache of like classic Golden Age Batman's. Uh, from detect like detectives like and they were all from the 40s and I was like I'd never even seen these like in my physical you know and like in my I've seen in pictures of them but not in my hands and I was so excited and I was buying them as fast as I could earn the money to get them because I was so excited and they had like I think like 10 and one of them that they had and the one that I didn't buy was detective comics number 140 which has Riddler on the cover now this mm-hmm. is of course pre-internet now, I knew enough about Batman history to know that all the Batman villains f- go back all the way to the early 1940s and late 1930s. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this Riddler comic, and I'm like, well, this is from 1948 because I think they even told me, oh, it's from – and I was like, oh, well, this isn't his first appearance. I'll skip that one. And I didn't oh, get it because wow. I didn't know that the Riddler had come along in 1948. He comes along a good five, six, seven, eight years after Joker, Penguin, Catwoman, Two-Face, Scarecrow – they all first appeared in like 39, 40, 41, and then there's this big gap, and then there's Riddler. I didn't know that. Had I had the internet, I would have looked it up, and I would have like, and I didn't buy the comic, and now the damn thing would be worth like a car. You right, know? yeah. yeah. Because certainly. it's the Riddler's first appearance. I mean, this, this is 1988. This is just before the Batman movie where everything related to Batman was skyrocketed in value. So I'm still mad at myself. The dumb me didn't know enough to just buy that. Because I literally could have put any of them back except for that one. That's the one I put back. That, that cover still haunts me that I didn't oh, buy that. Just, yeah, I, I could only cover. imagine. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so uh, let me ask you. All right. So the Riddler. And I know you love the Batman 66 TV show. Which version of the Riddler from there is the better one? What do you mean, from the TV show? Yeah. 
Because we, we had two different Riddlers on the show. Oh, Gorshin. Come on. Gorshin. You think so? Yes. Oh, I mean, I love John Aston, but no way. Gorshin really – Gorshin is one of the few takes of a Batman villain from the TV show that I think could work in the movie. Like you could just do a version of that and not really have to cartoon it up – cartoon it down and it would still work. The way he brought real menace to it. Uh, no, I think it was great. Yeah, I mean like John may, Aston. Maybe I'm broken. But John Aston is Riddler to me. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, really. I, now, was it Aston was the one in the movie, right? No, that's Gorshin. Is it Gorshin too? Yeah. Okay, well, I Aston, don't know why Aston is the version to me, but I, obviously, I watched a lot of the show growing up. But that's uh, that's my only, Riddler. Aston only played him one time. That's it. What? Yes, he only played one time. Frank Gorshin. They they wanted to shoot the show, and Gorshin was like off doing a movie, so they recast it. And it was only one. He only played it one time. Gorshin did it the movie and all the other episodes. What the heck? Yep. yep. That, huh. that episode must have really left a mark on you because it's only the one time. I'm Googling this as fast as I can. I'm like, okay. I, uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. All right. We'll come back to that. we got stuff to do. All right. Uh, up next is a really unique entry. They did something very different with this next one, folks. Um, the front image, the art is not uh, that unusual. Well, I do. Okay. It's the Sandman. It is the Vertigo Sandman. Just before Vertigo was a thing. But it's the Vertigo Sandman, you know, the, uh, the Neil Gaiman Sandman. Art by, uh, uh, I can never say this guy's name, Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And it shows Morpheus, and he's standing there against this beautiful starscape. His right hand is raised, and the sand is coming flying out of his hand. And his left hand is holding a marionette who's uh, who's in a dreamlike state, the marionette is. And he's got some statues at his feet, and you see different things there with him. It's a beautifully drawn image, and they've got the Sandman logo from the series. Now, when you flip to the back is the big, what we would call the kapow moment, where, of course, it's got the purple uh, border for Supernatural. However, normally the way these entries are designed, it's just white space with black type, just like, you know, paper, white paper with black type. They did a reverse, which is basically the way the Sandman's word balloons are in the comic as well. His word balloons were always black with white letters. So they did the same effect here for his entry. The entire back sheet of the paper is black and all the letters and, and, and lines and everything are in white. It is super striking. It just totally told you that this is different and this is important. And it really – it was a great way to, to do that. I, I don't know. I was blown away by it. What do you think of that? I, I feel like this listing should come with like a Cure CD or something. <laughs> like it just oh, has my that gosh. Feel to it. Um, <laughs> oh, the pain, the pain. No, it's great. I, and I – as we know, that like, I'm not as huge a fan of the loose leaf format. But I will say this is one of the things where they took advantage of being able to play with the literal format of the entry – to match the character, and they will do that later on for another character from Sandman very effectively. Yes. Um, so I like it. I like that they were willing to play with it and, and really make this one distinctive and like, whoa, we got reversible type here. That, that's fun. I mean, it, it, that's, I, it really gets – it sets this character apart, which of course he did because the Sandman was so unique. Well, and you know it's interesting. They were on issue twenty at this point, in the Dream Country storyline, and I mean that's less than two years old. And DC already knew they had caught lightning in a bottle yep. with that series. They already knew it, and so that's why this gets such attention. You know, nowadays you would never see the Sandman characters, you know, next to Riddler. Are you kidding me? That would never happen. But here, uh, they they were still trying to figure out how that works. So, all right. So, in case if you've never read the Sandman series, the the, the, the short version here is he is the personification of 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 dreaming. 
right? You know, he is he represents and uh, he represents, he personifies, and he controls our dreams. When you go to sleep, one third of your life is spent in his kingdom called the Dreaming, and uh, he's part of this family called the Endless. There's seven of them, and at this point, they had identified all of them except for one. One was still a mystery; we didn't know at this point. And uh, basically, these Endless beings were created when sentient life was first created in the universe. They represent seven different major components of, of living beings, and about seventy years ago. Uh, Morpheus, as he's as he's known as, was uh, captured in a ritual that was intended to capture death. So he spent seventy years as a as a prisoner, like in this guy's basement, and which then also because of his prison imprisonment, which ended up causing the dreams from Wesley Dodds, which he goes on to be the the golden age superhero Sandman. It also create uh, in his kingdom two of his creatures escaped, Brute and Glob, the escape from his dreaming, which goes on to be part of the Jack Kirby Sandman, um, you know, from from the seventies and. It's it's basically their way of retconning how it's all connected, which was rather clever, or I should say they being Neil Gaiman. And um, let's see. Uh, oh, in, in, uh, right, uh, to this entry, he had very recently been uh, freed from this state within the last two years. So that's when Sandman number one comes along. And uh, one of the biggest things that came out of the series was his sister. They created a personification of death, which was the ultimate cute goth girl, basically is what it was. And uh, what a damn great comic. Oh, my gosh. Just absolutely amazing comic book. I, you people at home don't need, it, need me to tell you that. But uh, great series, great entry, and uh, really stellar. And I look forward to covering more characters from The Dreaming as we get through this in um, Who's Who. I did not envy Robert Greenberger having to summarize <laughs> the Sandman right. in a Who's Who listing because you can capture the words but not the music You know of, yeah. of Neil Gaiman's prose and his whimsy and his – Ability to sort of toggle back and forth between serious and funny and and dark and light and and try and write it as a history because if you just write the events, it doesn't capture any of the and he does a decent job here. I don't mean to to slight him, of course, at all, um, but it's it's hard because it's it, you mentioned he's only twenty twenty issues in, but as you say, they also they they knew that they knew what they had right from the very beginning and they struck a deal with Neil Gaiman that I don't think they've struck with virtually any other creator in the history of their company. Uh, in terms of what they're able to do with this character and not able to do with this character. And so mm. the fact that he's even here at all is almost shocking. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, he kind of played in you – know, he played in Game Inverse and that was it. Um, but here he is and, and, again, they do some other characters. So, yeah, and again, uh, the reverse type is a nice touch. Well, Gaiman's clearly a big fan of DC Comics. Oh, sure. He brings yeah. in all sorts of continuity. Yep. I mean, he brings so- in the Silver Scarab for Pete's sakes. So at this point, I think he was probably fine with being part of the DC universe in this way because he was just having fun. I mean, heck, in issue number was it six or seven? I don't remember what it, you know. He has the JLI in it, you right? Know? I mean, but that's but that's the that's the characters coming into his world. This right. is Sandman going into the other. This is the flipping the yeah. script. And I could see if Neil Gaiman really wanted to be difficult, and I don't get the sense that he is. He could say, "I don't want him even in Who's Who because that's that, that, that's out. He, he's out of my control now. Now he's somewhere else." Yeah, good point. So uh, now, if if for whatever reason, if you read the same series and haven't kept up with Neil Gaiman since then, I mean, he's gone on to be a New York Times bestselling author. He's written you know television series that have gone huge. Heck, he, he's kind of a British national treasure. Like when I watch Doctor Who stuff, because you know I do a lot of that, and Neil Gaiman's written a couple episodes for the show, which were uh, some of them were spectacular. Um, he, I mean, he's he, it sounds like he's kind of like a national treasure over there. I mean, he's he's, yes. he's a big deal. So I, I have a handwritten note from him telling him how much he liked my book. So that's a wonderful thing. Wow, you've told me that once before, and I completely forgot, and I was just taken back by that again. Wow, that's fantastic. Very nice man. 
Uh, all right, up next is Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday. Uh, art by Ch- is it Chaz Bracefield, I believe. Um, interestingly enough, inked by George Perez, which is very uncommon. So uh, it, it's basically it's uh, Solomon Grundy in Slaughter Swamp. You know, there's a really ornate, uh, nicely detailed swamp behind him with a kind of looking thing that looks a little bit like Solomon Grundy in the front. Uh, basically, he's you know he's half Incredible Hulk, half zombie, folks. That's what he is. The illustration on the front, I love the swamp. I'm not a huge fan of Solomon Grundy himself, but um, it's a purple border for uh, Supernatural. I'll cover the history real quick, then we can get into the art. He in the, in the 1800s, uh, this guy named Cyrus Gold was murdered in Slaughter Swamp outside of Gotham City. He was attacked and left to die there, and his body rotted at the bottom of the swamp, and eventually he was reborn in this creature. In some versions, not mentioned here, uh, of Swamp Thing, they say that he was a failed elemental. Anyway, he, he comes he comes back uh, to being a being in the 1940s. He falls in with some criminals. He ends up battling the JSA and Alan Scott Green Lantern specifically. Years later, uh, he would come back, like in the 80s, and he would try and hunt down Alan Scott's children, but eventually became friends with Jade. And, and Jade becomes ultimately the only person he trusts. And he, he doesn't quite become a hero, but he is helping Jade do certain things. So um, let's see what else. Uh, well, what, you know, tell you what, what do you, well, the inside pictures is him fighting, uh, uh, Alan Scott. He's trapped inside of one of his bubbles. He's got him pummeling obsidian, which I think everybody wanted to do. And Jade's behind him. And then he's lifting a giant rock. I love the, the inset pictures I actually really, really like. Um, I just wasn't thrilled with the front. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I'm right there with you, actually. Um, I really like the, the, the backgrounds, the, the swamps and the, the birds and the, the moon and the, the silhouetted trees and everything else. It's the figure. The figure, yeah. and my problem with it is he doesn't appear massive enough. He looks like a regular guy. Mm-hmm. And part of the thing is Solomon Grundy is that he's obviously a zombie, but he's also seven foot five, 517 pounds. Right. So, and you don't get any of that from the front image. Now, you don't need to go super far like uh, Ernie Cologne did on the cover of the original Who's Who, where he looked <laughs> like uh, he looked like Mr. Creosote. But I mean, here he's just too—he just looks like a regular dude. So, it's mm-hmm. a, I wish he had managed to convey the bulk of this character. Um, and you don't even really see it that much in the insets. Like he looks like he's about the size of Obsidian or the size of Green Lantern, and that's not what he is. He's a big—I mean. Proportionally, Doctor Light is bigger than Solomon Grundy, and that's, yeah, that's true. not right. So, but well, I, I, mean, dig, I dig the inset picture on the right where he's lifting the rock. I think that one looks fantastic. I've always liked the character. I and I, I don't. I wish they didn't feel the need to like me say he's a plant elemental or some kind of nonsense. He's just a zombie. Like sometimes things are creepier when you leave him alone. You leave him yeah. un undescribed. He's just a mobster that died and came back to life and has not died since. Like he's just a shambling. Hulk zombie. That's terrifying. That idea is terrifying. So (laughs) leave it alone. Well, they did something interesting later, which is where they did a a, a story idea where every time he dies, he comes back like zombies do. But it's a different version of him. And so like in James Robinson's Starman, he actually came back as a gentle creature. And developed a romance with uh, the Michael Starman creature uh, character, and so like you know again it's a way to explain that he, you know later on then he dies and comes back in the Brad Meltzer version where he's like kind of a genius and he's manipulating everything even though he's still kind of a zombie. So it's it's interesting. I like that kind of concept because it gives them the freedom to do whatever they want with the character. But I get what you're saying too. Is just you know don't don't mess with the formula if it works. But I just think sometimes um, think not everything has to be explained within an inch of its life. <laughs> True. So keep Roy Thomas away from it. So uh, that's just – I'm just playing. Yeah, but anyway, so, 
Because you've been so kind this episode. I've so, been uh, wonderfully positive. S- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, last time we saw Solomon Grundy was about two years ago in Infinity, Inc. And if you want more Solomon Grundy, you could uh, listen to the Tales of the JSA podcast where they cover all kinds of different appearances of things like that. But if you'd like, he also appears on a couple of podcasts on our network. He shows up uh, from time to time on the Supermates podcast. And he shows up in the Dun- – or he's actually a supporting cast member, I would say, in the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. So Solomon Grundy is part of the Firewater Podcast Network. He, so. is, he is the muse of a great many people here on the network. It's kind That's of amazing, right. really. It all comes back to Challenge of the Super Friends, I think. I love it says powers. I love it says powers and weapons. Grundy is far too simple minded to fully comprehend any powers he might have. That's a line that will appear in my Who's Who listing when eventually we do it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right. Up next is Sonar, drawn by Gil Freakin' Kane. I love this entry. Uh, it looks great. Sonar's in his really traditional costume where he looks like, you know, a, a, a band leader, and he's got his sonar gun and great. <laughs> Waves, he does. He's got the, the waves of uh, sound coming off of his weapon, and the, and the and the skyscrapers are collapsing behind him. And he's got a fist raised in triumph. It's interesting. You told me last time that uh, Gilcan by this point was only using these pens, right? Pentagrams, yes. Right. And so every line was the same shape. Yeah. Now he must have been using different pens here, because if you look at the outline of the cape, it's a much thicker line. The same thing on a, one of his, on his uh, right leg as well. So I actually have been paying it. I learned something from you last time, believe it or not, and I've been wow. looking for it. So I guess he's using different width pens. Is that what's happening Yes, repetitives come in different weights. There's like a .5, which is almost like a needle thickness and then there's like a one which is a little thicker and then a two which is thicker still so uh one of two things one either gil kane yes used different rapidographs depending on what he was working for because as, you, as you, you're right the, the the line on the cape is much thicker than the line on the buildings that he's crumbling in in the background um which helps gives it some sense of depth or I mean, Gil Kane was just that good. He might have been able to manipulate a single rapidograph to change the line. That's really hard to do. I was never able to do it, but I'm not Gil Kane, obviously. <laughs> I love the smirk on his yeah. face. I love yeah. that he looks like a band leader because, like, you think his alter ego is John Philip Sousa, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right, I right. think this is a great drawing. He's laying waste to the city, but my favorite part of this, <laughs> my favorite part of this listing is the logo. Because it looks like something you'd see on the side of a refrigerator. <laughs> it just has that look. <laughs> like does. only use genuine sonar parts. <laughs> it just has that look to it. I just love it. It's like something – it's like uh, that's the kind of a brain you only got at Sears. You know? It just has that yeah. look to it. So I, I love it. I think it's just, it's a really fun listing. I love his character too, as far as like his origin too. He's from the small little Balkan country called Medora, right? And and he's you know he's he's this genius with sonics, and he wants to make Medora a, a world power. He wants it to be a global superpower, so he decides he wants to build this like giant sonic bomb. Comes, <laughs> Good to the, plan. comes to the United States. I know he comes to the United States to steal the parts he needs, and he goes on a crime spree as Sonar. And he gets kind of popular, and so he stays and he keeps fighting Hal Jordan, and he's doing all this like out of this Medoran patriotic pride, and I love that. And you know, <laughs> and we're supposed to think this band leader is like you know the the formal costume of Medora. I don't know, but everything's done in sonic powered weapons. Now, after this, shortly, right, not too long after this, there's a wonderful elongated mini, uh, man miniseries which takes place in Medora. And uh, Sonar is a, is a kind of supporting character in the story. He's a bad guy. He's an antagonist. But he's, he's, he's in throughout the whole thing, and he's hitting on Sue. He's like sort of like the Medora, like, you know, royalty, and he's sort of like wooing Sue at the same time. It's a great story because it's drawn by Ty Templeton and Mike Parabek. Oh, so yeah, awesome. 
Um, unfortunately, it's written by uh, a particular writer who's gone to do some absolutely horrible, terrible oh, things yeah. in the world, oh, whose boy. name won't be mentioned. But it's still a fun miniseries. Uh, it's a fun miniseries and uh, gorgeously illustrated. And he's a great character. I love him. I, <laughs> I love the inset because it, it's him and his in his like his little jodhpurs there or whatever <laughs> in front of his castle, and it looks like a scene from uh, Sound of the Mu- Sound of Music right. comic book. I mean, he's just like sixteen, going on seventeen. <laughs> Alter ego is Beto Wilden or Beto Wilden, who I believe is the guy who's running against Ted Cruz down in Texas. I'm not sure. Oh my um, god! Like, occupation terrorist. I just love the idea that his plan to boost his country is like through sonar technology, as opposed to like I don't know joining the UN or something and getting involved <laughs> in economic prosperity. No, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to do something. Like that. And the inset of um, him uh, putting a whammy on Green Lantern. Uh, I, I I was saying on the episode of Find Your Joy that I did with Ryan Daly on Hope Two Sixty One, mm-hmm. where I said that Sal Buscema. Drew like the most distinctive yes. punch in comic books because it's like you always know if someone's getting hit in the crotch, it's a sabusema. <laughs> but this is close. Gil Kane loved to do upside down figures, and you can you never can confuse it for anything else. If you see somebody being flipped backwards and their body, their limbs are contorting in four different directions, that's a Gil Kane drawing, and that's what Sonar is doing to Green Lantern here. It's just great. It's a gorgeous thing. Up and down. I, I love this entry. It's, it's yeah. one of my favorites so in the issue, actually. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he had just recently appeared in Justice League America, and his first appearance is Green Lantern number 14 in 1962. And for more on Sonar, you should check out the Lantern cast, and we will touch on him in an upcoming JLI episode. So, speaking of timely characters that are on the cusp of being like you know one of DC's hottest stars <laughs> and in publications, because you know who's who's all about the contemporary DC universe. Up next, folks, is Son of Vulcan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, didn't he have? I think he had one of those. He had triangle numbering on all four of his monthly books, right? <laughs> um, the deal with Son of Vulcan is he was this reporter who was covering a civil war in the Mediterranean, and unfortunately, he even lost a leg in that conflict. It's very sad. And uh, uh, during all this, he's he finds himself resting in a Roman temple. It's a temple to Jupiter. And he just gets mad at the whole thing. Just uh, the chaos and the war and his injuries. He just gets mad. He's just yelling at the gods. And he's actually transported to Mount Olympus when he's there face-to-face with the gods. And Vulcan, who is the uh, the blacksmith of the gods, uh, who's also lame, and I don't mean like boring, but like he's you know injured. Uh, he's lame. He actually relates to this reporter because the reporter's handicapped and, and, and Vulcan is handicapped. And so he sort of takes the reporter on as a ward I don't really know how that works, but anyway, um, I guess the guy maybe said okay. Anyway, Vulcan provides him with a shield and armor and weapons, and uh, Venus then gives him strength and vitality and gives him his leg back, and he is declared the son of Vulcan, and he's sent back to Earth where he's uh, fighting to make right, basically. And he, he appeared in 1965 in five comic books where he starred. Then he appeared in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and the last time he really had a starring role was 24 years ago, uh, at least in 1990. So why is he here? I don't really know. But I should mention, uh, art is by David Williams and Al Gordon, and the text is written by Kevin Maroney. All other than um, Al Gordon, all of these are names I don't know. So I got to think maybe somebody was pitching a miniseries to DC or something. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I have no knowledge of this character at all. I do like the artwork you mentioned. Yeah. I think it's pretty – I think it's it's, it's kind of um, Mignola-ish, okay. uh, very stylized. I like it. I mean, his costume is 
kind of doofy. Um, oh, we didn't we didn't describe that. Why don't you describe the costume? Uh, well, he the guy looks like uh, you know like a guy you would see maybe dressed as a greeter at a casino that's like a kind of like Roman based because he's got yeah. the, he's kind of Thor a little bit of Hawkman. He's got this red cape and then he's got the helmet and he's kind of got a skirt, big V on his belt and he's got the like metallic tunic and the metallic uh, boots and he's got a shield and he's got a mace and he's coming down and he's dropping the. He's going to about to smash the heads open of some some crooks and stuff like that. Uh, it mentions um, his first appearance is Mysteries of Unexplored Worlds, number 46, which is a Charlton comic, but it does not mention that. Um, mm. I know nothing of this character at all other than what I read here, except for one piece of comic book history that Son of Vulcan is connected to. Do you have any idea? I'm going to make, make a wild guess. Knowing it's, it's got to be video comics. No. Oh, okay. No. What? Okay. Son of Vulcan, uh, I don't know what issue number it is. Oh, it's number 50. I'm looking at it right here. Son of Vulcan number 50 is written by Jerry Bales, one of the earliest comic book kind of fans turned pro and the first guy, along with Roy Thomas, to do like a fanzine. And on the cover of Son of Vulcan number 50, the second Trojan War, it says, Attention Fanzine Readers. Charlton's challenge has been answered. The story in this issue was written by one of you. Don't mm. miss it. It is the first comic book in print ever to mention the word fanzine. That was not a really? word before this. And now it has been it – it was named in this comic, in Son of Vulcan number 50, because it was written by Jerry Bales, basically the first fan to turn pro. I had no idea. That is so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So did they did, – did the Son of Vulcan comic create the phrase fanzine or is it the first time they acknowledged the term? I don't exactly – I don't think they created it. I think Jerry Bales created it by, by doing his magazine, by doing his, his fanzine. But it's the first time it was sort of acknowledged in an official comic book that that's what this is. It's a fan, there's a magazine about comics by fans, fanzine. Okay. How interesting. Okay. My connection to the character came from this really interesting miniseries in the year – I want to say it was 2005-ish. And uh, they, they redid the character. It was like a six-issue miniseries. And it, I don't want to say it's anime style, but it looks a little Final Fantasy-esque because he's – like the sword he's carrying is like – it's kid. And the sword he's carrying is enormous. And it was a fun little miniseries. I really enjoyed it. I thought they were going to do more with the character, and, and it didn't, never really came to be. Now, he may have appeared in the New 52 or Rebirth era, for all I know. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, and I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize it was a Charlton character. I didn't pick up on that until you yeah. mentioned it. I wonder if okay. DC even owns him anymore because they don't own all the Charlton characters anymore. They own most but not all. Well, so. they, they, I know they lost Peter Kane and Thunderbolt. Right, 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 lost. right. Uh, you know what? That's the only one. So maybe that's because that, that was a weird deal with that character. So maybe that's right. the only one. But certainly they haven't done anything with him in a very long time. I always thought it was funny with Peter Kane and Thunderbolt. They, they went ahead and published a series and had no right to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oops. Which is just too funny. All right. Um, all right. Moving on to the next one. Um Toy Man, the Superman villain, and this is not the fun version from Challenge of the Super Friends, folks. This is uh, what's what is this character's name? Uh, Winslow, Winslow Percival Shot. That's right. He's got a great name. Great name. Anyway, he was a toy maker for 40 years, and there was a change in management, and he was suddenly fired. And it turns out in the post-crisis universe, all this was the, the fault of Lex Luthor ultimately as, a, as, a, as the owner of the parent companies. And so he ends up creating these deadly toys to get revenge against Lex, and that goes that plot goes on for quite a while. And he ends up getting tied in with inner gang and all this stuff, and he kidnaps children because it seems like you know a logical thing. And on the cover here, you've got art by Steve Purcell, and, and Mike Mignola is the inker, which is – crazy but it's uh it's an elderly or a middle-aged guy 
in a you know funny suit with a giant bow tie, and he's got all these toys around him, but they're all deadly. Like the bear's got giant claws, and there's an half flying alligator, and there's a tank which looks super cool. It looks like a Tex Avery tank, really, and uh, all kinds of uh, toys that look threatening marching on towards you. And the logo looks a little like um, those little toy letters kids would get and put on magnets. On yeah, the on the fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, later on in the future, uh, they would tell a story where he actually murders Cat Grant's son. Uh, and then later they would retcon that away to say it wasn't really him or some such robot. I don't remember the deal. I mean, it's, you know, comics. But um, – and then the inset pictures is him arguing with somebody as he's being fired and marched out the door. And then you see Superman fighting all these little tiny action figures. So um, interesting character. He's got, he, they got a lot of leverage out of uh, – a lot of – uh, stories out of him over the years. Yeah, mileage. Thank you. And uh, again, uh, the, the other version we knew, of course, was from Challenge of the Super Friends. Was like that creepy marionette sort of super skinny version. So, uh, what, what do you, what's your history with Toy Man? What do you think of this character? Um, I think the best version of Toy Man is the one done on the Superman the animated series. I really mm. think that because because he he's a guy and he's got a giant doll head, and so when oh, he right, when, right, when right. he talks, he doesn't move. Like it's just a you know an emotionless face, which made him mm-hmm. very creepy. Because I mean, I always found it. You, Toy Man being who he is, it's hard to contrive a real threat against Superman. He seems like a Batman villain, not a Superman mm-hmm. villain. So I always – I have never read a whole lot of stories where I thought he was particularly compelling because I just think you have to really move heaven and earth to make him at all a challenge for Superman. Um, I did enjoy his brief appearance in um, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I know Mike Bailey is currently throwing his Zune at the wall that I'm bringing it up. But I mean I liked it. Like we know that that's the first wave that Superman's villains have gone dark when prankster and toy man team up to kill Pete Ross. Like I thought that was such a great turn that these, these kind of super villains that Superman regards as merely annoyances come back as killers. And he's like, what happens when the killers come back? You know, like I mm. thought that was great. So toy man and, and prankster are kind of like the first line of, of villains that Superman doesn't really worry that much about. And so I've never been able to take him too terribly seriously. I do wonder why, comic book writers cannot figure out how much things weigh because it's like <laughs> toy man like we see the picture of him right he's a he's a heavy dude there's no yeah, doubt he's a about very it. heavy dude very yeah, heavy yeah. dude height five four weight 155 pounds oh no. my gosh no. no i don't care that you're only five four he's probably at least 255 pounds not 150 yes and i the, would put him at 250 and, yeah. and, and penguin is the same they have penguin at like five seven 175 like no no, oh no. Oh my gosh. Guys, no. You, you, like, it's okay that you have the, if you have a guy with a big rolly belly, he's over 200 pounds. Trust me. So that's, I don't know why comic book writers just can't figure that out, but, but nevertheless. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think the, the BTAS version is, is the, the, the best version of this character. BTS. So it's Batman animation? Oh, I'm you sorry. STSTAS. Okay. I'm yeah. used, so used to saying BTAS, but STAS. Right, right. Yeah. Now, interesting. There was another. And gosh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. Bailey will correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, there was another version of Toy Man, which was around probably 2005, when the the Superman Batman or Batman Superman comic was going, and, and Jeff Loeb was writing that. And I want to say he was like um, a young, like Japanese teenager who would build giant mechs and stuff like that. And he wasn't a villain. He was kind of like. Um, almost like a support kind of helped the heroes begrudgingly because he was a bit of a smart ass and he would build giant like uh machines for them but he'd always do it like uh begrudgingly and it would always be kind of a toy theme like they were flying like a giant voltron at one point kind of thing that he had designed for him but uh anyway just throwing that out there okay. all right next character is the trickster 
And he has uh, – I'm curious to see what color – he has a black border for villain, but at this point, I would argue he should have had a blue border for supporting cast because he was no longer a villain at this point. Anyway, this is James Jesse, and uh, art here is by Tom Lyle and Gary Martin, and uh, it's – he's – Trickster is flying through, I guess, the mall. He's flying through the mall, and there's little explosions going on around him. He's using his air-walking shoes, and uh, there's – there's. I love the, the movie theater. It's called A Cinema at the Mall, which is hysterical. And, uh, and it's showing porn. Porno for some reason. Well, it says Debbie does macrame. <laughs> that, that might not be porn. That might not be porn. I mean, it's, there's a lot of Debbies in the world. Anyway, the people are all looking like horrified by the little explosions, and obviously Trickster's doing this to either irritate people or as a distraction for something. And um, the piece is okay. The, it's a little weird in his face. Uh, I don't know that it works great. And the logo is clearly just the leftover letters from Toy Man. Um, <laughs> Just not colored, you know. But I do like the back, though. The, the inset picture, like his senior class picture, looks kind of menacing. I like that. He's fighting the Flash. Then he's hanging out with Blue Devil. I think that's a nice little picture. It's just the front one. I don't know. It's, is it just me or does something look a little off? No, no, I like it. I, I'm okay. fine with it. Uh, you funny you mentioned in the, the Toy Man listing that, you know, the uh, the version on Challenge of the Super Friends is that, that Toy Man. Well, isn't that Toy Man basically that comics Toy Man plus comics Trickster? Equaling Toy Man? I mean, isn't it? Because, ba- like, the, the, the Toy Man in the Challenge of Super Friends has basically the Trickster's costume, essentially. Uh, a little bit, a same, little bit, same yeah. Same colors, same kind of scheme. So I always figured that that version is the Trickster and Toy Man smooshed into one character and then put in the cartoon series. I would say it's more Punch, as in Punch and Julie. Okay. Because, right, you know, Punch is designed to it, – it, that's what the Trickster's costume is supposed to look like hmm. from Challenge of Super Friends. He's supposed to look like a, a Punch and Judy right. uh, thing. Yeah, so – um, Trickster, I love Trickster. I love my love, my love. Him. Anyway, it's James Jesse, and uh, it, it, I don't know where this origin comes from. It must be from Secret Origins or something. They talk about how he has an acrobatic family called the Flying Jessies, um, and he had a fear of heights, so he designs these air walking shoes. Now, that's where I'm wondering about the origin because if this had been around for a while, how the heck did they never tie him with Nightwing? The Flying Jessies and the Flying Graysons? Come on, hmm. it, it seems like there's a joke here that I'm just missing. Is what it feels like. Uh, let's see. So he eventually turns to crime and ends up in Central City, and he fights the Flash. And he becomes obsessed with the Flash, really. And then after Crisis, you know, Barry's dead. He gets bored, so he ends up going hanging out with Blue Devil because they're both special effects stuntmen in their in their real lives, and uh, Trickster ends up going straight he quits committing crimes and and he's still a smart aleck and pulls pranks and stuff like that but he ends up becoming a not necessarily a bad guy anymore hanging out with blue devil and it's a great run he he makes a great supporting character in the blue devil series in fact uh gary Cohn and uh um dan michigan were actually planning a trickster miniseries at one point that just never came into view which is such a shame but he uses lots of gadgets and pranks and you know rubber chickens and that kind of stuff and according to this his most surprising weapon is his unpredictability so I, I love this character. I absolutely do. I'm going to say something that's going to upset people. But uh, the Mark Hamill portrayal of Trickster on The Flash isn't my favorite. He, he's basically kind of playing just a Joker. Yeah, really, he's a me. Joker, right. Yeah. Which obviously got him a role on Batman animated series, but it's not my favorite version of, of the Trickster. And I certainly don't really care for the later version of Trickster where they, they, they came up with a new kid who took over the Trickster job from Jesse who's an obnoxious jerk. And he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be like a young punk you don't like, uh, and which kind of makes sense for pranks and all that. But he's um, – I don't know. I miss this version of James Jesse where he was kind of a good guy. I thought he always operated best when he was being essentially an annoying good guy. So – do you have a lot of connection with Trickster at all? No, I don't. I didn't really read Blue Devil, and by the time they kind of turned him into the the friend of the Flash, I was kind of not reading as many 
comics back then, but I like the Mark Hamill version. I agree it is kind of just the Joker. I mean, it's funny that they would give him, I think in his second appearance as Trickster, they give him a female sidekick called Prank, who is Uh-oh. who is basically Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn, essentially, because it's, oh, wow. it's a girl who dresses up in the costume and is in love with the Trickster. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean okay. it, it's it's absolutely Harley Quinn, and um, they they I know this isn't really about the character so much, but they released the two episodes, of the two Trickster episodes, as a movie uh, in Europe, and no. yeah, and they smooshed them together. It was one of those things where it's like the Tricker Trickster goes to jail, and then they stick in some ADR of like, well, six months later the Trickster's out of prison, you know, and then it's the second case. <laughs> And we used to play that in the video store because it came out on VHS. We played that constantly at the video store because we okay. enjoyed the Flash show too much. We being Rob Kelly. But. No, we all, all right. Okay. You know, I, you know, I was assistant manager. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 I like this character just fine. And, and again, I like much like with Dr. Light, I like the idea of a legacy that like he – once Barry Allen was dead, a lot of these villains didn't have a necessarily like a great reason to keep hating on Flash. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of turned friendly, like some of them did at least. I think that's a that's a fun idea. So yeah, it's cool. I mean, he goes Flash first appearance one thirteen July nineteen sixty. Flash right. started in one oh five. So within the first year or so, they had that they were establishing all these amazing long lasting villains. Now, qu- quick credit to the current Flash TV series because you know they brought Mark Hamill back as the Trickster and even introduced a, a legacy version of Trickster, kind of like in the comics. So I mean, that was that was a very clever bit of work they did there. So yep. that was neat. Good stuff. So. At this point in 1990, um, the Trickster hadn't been seen for about 12 months. Yeah, he had last seen in The Flash. And two years ago, he had appeared in Secret Origins, which is, I'm guessing, where the fly in Jesse's came from. I'm not really sure. I don't recall. And uh, if, if you really want more on Trickster, there's, I don't really have a great place to point you. But I would tell you that just recently, a series of blogs and podcasts did a crossover about Underworld Unleashed called Best Event Ever 2018. And James Jesse played a major role as a supporting character in Underworld Unleashed because he was there with Neuron the whole time. So definitely check out some of those if you want some trickster action so up next i love this one so much it is vigilante it's the classic vigilante but from the 1940s but in the 1980s is a retired old fat guy uh <laughs> it is by mike parabek and paul frick and uh he just looks so happy he's in front I love this idea. Okay. So here's the story, and then we'll talk about the, the drawing here. So, <clears throat> so he's around in the 1940s, right? He was a Western hero in a 1940s setting. And according to this version of the history here, he is a Western celebrity, sort of like a Roy. He was as popular as Roy Rogers, they said. He was popular for his singing. He was called the Prairie tr- uh, tr- uh, was it the, the Prairie Troubadour. And uh, he's because his father was a sheriff in the in the West, and by the 1940s, during like the, he was killed in the his father was killed in the last stagecoach robbery ever, I guess. And then he goes on to become this hero called the Vigilante. He tries to make things right in the 1940s. He ends up with a sidekick named Stuff, the Chinatown Kid, and he joins the All Star Squadron and he joins the Seven Soldiers of Victory and all this. Uh, years later, he is retired now and he opens a chain of restaurants called because again he's a famous Western celebrity like Roy Rogers. He opens Greg Sanders. Roundup, which is a series of restaurants. So that's where this picture comes in. He's standing out front in his old costume. He's just bursting at the seams from, you know, his big gut. He's spinning his guns, smiling, and he's standing in front of the, uh, a last Roundup restaurant. And there's Stuff right next to him, who's now his business manager. And uh, he ends up taking an interest in modern vigilantes like El Diablo. So he goes and seeks out El Diablo to become a friend and kind of like a mentor almost to him. And of course, Vigilante's well known for having his cool motorcycle back in the day. And Justice League Unlimited. Really did some great things with this character. 
which I thought was very brave of them to do, to use this version of Vigilante, especially after like you know the 1980s, you know Adrian Chase version had been so popular, and uh, they they went back to the you know and brought back the original. So I okay, I love this unabashedly. I love Mike Parabek anyway, but I love this piece. What what do you think of this thing? I think it's great. I'm never going to say you know Peg Meg Parabek did a bad job because I don't think he ever did. Um, I will say that I am a little sad that they didn't get Tony Salmons to do it because Tony Salmons or Salmons, I don't know how you okay. pronounce it, drew the Vigilante City Lights Prairie Justice miniseries that ran for four issues, which I absolutely love. Is that the James Robinson one? James Robinson one. It is fantastic. Now, I could also see that it wouldn't be necessarily appropriate because that's that miniseries is classic Vigilante from the 40s, not the older man here. And by this point, Mike Parabek had been doing the JSA book and or was about to and uh so I see why they got Parabek to do it. The I wish they I really do wish they had done Who's Who in the Golden Age cuz then it would have right. been perfect to get Tony Sammons to do a vigilante listing cuz Tony Sammons work uh on that series is is unbelievable. It's one of my favorite. I got we got to like find wow. your, I got to like find your joy that mini series. That mini series is so freaking good and like, nobody knows it. I'm flipping um, through it right now. I, I, own, I own the trade. It's sitting on my shelf in my two-read stack, and I'm flipping through it right now, and wow, I see what you're talking about. It's yeah, let's do a Find Your Joy together yeah, on this one. That'd be fun. Brilliant, brilliant. And, you know, Vigilante, he got his own movie serial, which is – Seriously? Yes. There's a, it's the, yes, it's a 1947 movie serial. He's played by Ralph Bird, who played Dick Tracy in the movie serials. And so it's like of all the characters to pop and get – like a movie attention, the vigilante did. I mean, obviously they realized it's, Hey, it's a cowboy. It's cheap, you know, but nevertheless, right. I mean, Superman, think of the characters that got movie serials, Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, spy smasher, Captain America, Blackhawk, the vigilante, really vigilante. <laughs> and yet he did. So vigilante had this, you know, like he really popped. People really knew who he was. He was kind of famous outside of comic books, which is kind of amazing. Um, but I, I do love this listing. I, I think it's a fun idea that you could have a superhero that retires into old age and is kind of like a happy old man as opposed to you know having some sort of miserable existence right, or whatever. Right. So it's it's fun. I've always loved this character. He's got a badass motorcycle. I just mm-hmm. I really love everything about him. So it's it's really fun. Well, the elderly version is super fun because it comes from the El Diablo comic. Right. And that's why you've got Mike Parabek drawing it rather than the guy yep. you would say because yep. that's what yep. he was. Yep. Yeah. Um, and actually, now that you mention it, I don't think that Vigilante series that we're now going to cover for A Find Your Joy, um, that hadn't been published by this point. No, I didn't realize that. So they, yeah, I James Robinson why they wrote it. it. James yeah. Robinson didn't come to D.C. till like 94, I think. Yeah, this, like this is pre that. So, of course, that's why that's why I'm realizing yep. that Tony Sammons couldn't have done it even if they had thought to because the mystery yep. didn't even exist. So, nevertheless, it just – that's the first thing I think of when I think of the Vigilante is that miniseries because it's so freaking good. I love on the back that the, the inset pictures is him in the 1940s singing on the radio on the NBC radio and stuff's there playing the harmonica with him. You see him with the uh, the, the Seven Soldiers of Victory, the Laws Legionnaires, whatever you want, however you want to call them, and then you see him there with uh, with El Diablo as an older man. I I just this thing's a hoot to me. I absolutely love it. So he um, El Diablo was uh, he had appeared in El Diablo just four minutes four months prior to this. And uh, if you want more on and the best thing I can really recommend is to check out the JLU cast because uh, they will eventually get to some Just League Unlimited issue, uh, episodes where he's featured. Yep. First appearance, Action Comics number 42. Oh, gosh. Thank That's you. That's how far back he that. goes. Isn't that amazing? And if they ever did him in a movie today, you'd have to get Ned Beatty. I think you have to get Ned Beatty. I think Ned Beatty's retired, but Ned Beatty could do it. 
You mean this version of him? I guess yes, so. Yeah, old, old, old heavy set vigilante. I would yep. love to see Ned Beatty or maybe John Goodman. He's probably a little young for that, but there would just be somebody avuncular and fun and be like, hey, I loved being a superhero. That'd be fun. That'd be all. And yeah, larger, larger than life. Absolutely. In a, in a parallel universe, this is the same universe that they did do Who's Who in the Golden Age, mm-hmm. uh, was they made a vigilante movie in the late 70s and Johnny Cash played him. That's the alternate. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's a lot of fist fights then, I guess, huh? Absolutely. Right. A lot of drinking, a lot of shooting. Yep. Yeah, that would have been perfect. Well, that is who's who number five, folks, in the books. So, Rob, I always put you on the spot here, so it's not on the spot. You should be used to this by now. Who are some of your favorite entries from this book? This is this is a really good issue. I really enjoyed this one. This was fun. Um, I a lot of great ones. The Batmobile is great. Chemo is great. The Martian Manhunter one is great. I really like Sonar and his brand of washer-dryers. Uh, the Vigilante is really good. I don't know. I think there's a lot of really, really good ones. I, if I had to boil it down to one, hmm, that's a good I, – I don't, I don't know. I, I, I am leading towards the, the Batmobile, I think. That was just so okay. fun. Yeah. All right. For me, some of my favorites are Our Man uh, by Matt Wagner. I thought that one looked great. Uh, Larissa Malore, the the lead acronym Legion, one you completely dismissed. I think that's a. I think just the way it's designed, it's just gorgeous. Uh, the Matt Hatter entry, I think, is a lot of fun with the scratchiness by uh, by that was uh, Badger. Wa- right? Yeah, Mike Badger. Yeah. Yeah, the Sandman entry mainly for the black on the back, really mm-hmm. more so. I mean, the Drinberg, Drinberg did a nice drawing on the front, but the back is just impressive. The Vigilante one, I waxed that car like crazy. Uh, I think the Riddler looks fantastic. Uh, the Sonar one we've talked about, uh, Chemo, it looks great. I, I think if I had to boil it down to one, it would either be Our Man or Sonar, I think. you know, Th- This issue is, like we said, it's got a lot of really solid ones. It's not like you, you don't have an Art Adams like piece that just blows everything else away. So it's, it's harder to choose because there's a lot of really you know absolutely wonderful ones here. So cool. Solid book. All right. Well, folks, we are going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we are going to get into your listener feedback. It began with the origin of his comic book fandom. This is the very first comic book I have ever read and also ignited the spark of my comic book collecting over the course of a 1974 weekend. Professor Zoom Yukinori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. Balance of Power. Have Horse. Will Fly. Solomon Grundy. Wins on a Monday. Superman's Unbeatable Rival. Green Lantern. Master Criminal of the 25th Century. With unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts... Call me Terror Man. Solomon Grundy am co-host this time. I am Lanos, the, the lexical archive of minutia, expositions, expositions, and origins. Goodbye, me am Bizarro. I am Libra. This is Aya from the Green Lantern. It is I, the Reverse Flash. Which had ended with the destruction of the universe. Or... Has it? Why in Tunderation are we? I regret to say that you are my prisoner. Without our interspatial time conveyor, we are all essentially trapped here. Can't summon the willpower necessary for my power ring to pull me free. For nearly two decades, I had carried her ghost within my heart. Experience the wonder. Great wings of Mercury! 
of an all-new season. Solomon Grundy, fat little pointy-eared man before. Let us get back to the story, shall we? Down, down, and approach. Of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Allow me, Entity Terra Man. That does it. They ain't messing with no timey lines ever again. Folks, now we're going to get into the who's who, hows and whys, which is your feedback from the last episode of Who's Who. Looking forward to this. So first thing off is our iTunes reviews. Folks, we always appreciate the iTunes reviews. It really helps raise the profile of the show. We got a good few this time. So, uh, you know, please, we would really appreciate it if you could drop us some more. Only takes a few moments, and it goes a long way to help building this community. Our first one comes from Mr. Therrington. He writes, fantastic flashbacks. Maybe, and he says, maybe my memory isn't so bad after all. Every time I listen to Robin Chai and go through one of those 80s issues, I can see each illustration in my head as clear as day, even the ones I haven't reread in years, especially anywhere she's hot. <laughs> Thanks for the terrific podcast, guys. Well, thank you, Mr. Therrington. I appreciate it. I feel like I'm talking to my uh, like high school English teacher. Yeah, Sorry, like, isn't he the boss on Bewitched or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we got another iTunes review from James Hussey. Always inspiring. This is the podcast that made me want to be a podcaster. Wow. The two hosts have a genuine joy for the material, and their enthusiasm made me want to hunt down these issues and characters. This podcast is a don't miss for me. Great guys and great material. I found my joy. What a great review. Thank you, James. That's awesome. Then we got one from Mike Zumkowski. Mike writes in, uh, he calls it a top-notch stroll down memory lane. And he writes, the JLI Wahaha podcast was my intro to the network, and now I'm checking out their other shows. This one is a great stroll down memory lane, great network of podcasts, and they ducked me in. Well played, guys. Well, thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. That's fantastic. And then we got another one from Netministrator. <laughs> it's a great handle. Terrific podcast with great banter and discussion. This is a late review as I just discovered the podcast a year ago, but like fine wine, it ages well indeed. Oh great, my goodness. Great to hear a slice of comics from a time period when they were actually classic and relied on story beats and characterization rather than shock value in many comics today. Looking forward to future installments. Well, thank you, Mr. Ministrator. <laughs> All right. Uh, our next one comes from Ian Fletcher. Now, I, I, uh, I got to tell you, I, I have a rule here with, uh, with in, uh, iTunes reviews that we always read everything in the iTunes review. Ian, my friend, I'm so glad you've written in. I have to make an exception for the first time ever, simply because Ian has written a Diablo Frank-sized dissertation. Now, it's not as crazy as Frank might be. I mean, that stuff's just nuts. No, it's all very nice and very complimentary and has a lot of great information here. So, I But it's – it's it's long. So what I'm going to have to do here is I'm going to just cherry pick some of the stuff, but I think I picked the most relevant things. So, Ian, I hope you forgive me, uh, but uh, I, and we really appreciate the review, and he says some great stuff here. So let's get into your review. Ian writes, a fun romp through DC history and characters. And uh, he says, sometime back in July 2018, I decided I needed to find a podcast about DC history to aid in some research for a role-playing game I was going to run. I'd only read one issue of DC's Who's Who Index comic in my youth, and when I heard the premise of this show uh, cover each entry one by one, I was skeptical. Now, months later, I'm listening to them cover the DC annuals and looking eagerly forward to all the episodes. 
Then jumping forward a bit, he says, Rob is more quiet uh, – is a more quiet, thoughtful fellow with a sharp <laughs> wit and an, I know, and an excellent insight into the comic book industry. Shag is much more talkative and sometimes brash, but the two work well together due to this contrast, like a setup of a buddy cop, uh, cop show characters. Um, this guy, okay. This guy's very perceptive. Uh, well, except for the part that we actually get along, but anyway, uh, now I'm going to jump forward quite a bit here cause he talks a lot about like, you know, whatever happened to the man in tomorrow and he has a lot of good stuff here, but I'm just go- jumping forward here. He says, hearing about Shag getting his son and daughter into comics makes me smile. I actually have done the same for my own children, even passing on the majority of my actual comics and trades to them. It was my own dad who got me into comics and he, cause he was a fan of the flash in the 1960s. That's awesome. Now, uh, jumping forward a little bit further. It says, Crisis on Infinite Earth is the comic that got me back into DC, but it wasn't until the 2000s that I returned at all. I had read some DC comics when I was a kid and watched Super Friends, but my friends were all into Marvel, and the Marvel cartoons were, uh, in the 1980s, a lot more fun. I always maintained a soft spot for Superman and felt that the DC animated universe treated many of these characters better than the comics did. You know, uh, I'm not going to argue with you there, Ian. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, but when a friend elected to run a superhero game set in the DCU and wanted to use some Golden Age characters, I began to do research. This led me to picking up the crisis trade and discovering, yes, discovering the work of Perez. From then on, I was much more of a DC fan. My personal sweet spot for DC is right before and right after the crisis, a nice era of the mid-1980s. Again, pretty good, pretty good sweet spot there, buddy. And then he says, since you guys have promised to read all iTunes reviews, again, <laughs> forgive me, I'm, I'm doing, I'm reading quite a bit of it. Uh, because I'm going to put the, this point here, just in case Shag ends up having to read this, quote, Rob was right, end quote. Oh, man, oh, never going to forgive so you for that, Ian. sweet. <laughs> I sincerely hope he groans, as I did, uh, while reading this point. And he goes, just to lo- show some, th- uh, throw some love at Shag, Firestorm's major role in Crisis actually got me curious about the character. I'd sadly never heard of him before reading the Crisis, but I keep thinking that would work really well for a TV treatment of the character. He was built, uh, he has a built-in supporting cast that TV shows feel compelled to add to all heroes. Um, now I will just say, Ian, I wish they'd done that for Legends of Tomorrow. Anyway, uh, keep up the good work, guys. Like I said, I'm about two full years behind in listening right now. Now, so this comment is based on a solid three months of li- binge listening to the episodes. Well, thank you so much, Ian Fletcher. That was absolutely wonderful. I sincerely appreciate it. And folks, remember, if you go out to iTunes and leave a review, we would sincerely appreciate it. And again, it'll help this community of fans grow. Uh, of fans of who's who, not fans of us. But All right. So we are about to cover your feedback from Who's Who number three and also the Aquaman Family episode. Uh, we're going to be reading your website comments, your emails, Facebook, Twitter. Folks, this one got an unbelievable 73 comments on our website. Oh, my gosh. When I saw that, I about fell out of my chair. So given the amount of feedback we're getting, which is absolutely phenomenal, I think what we're going to have to do is going forward – we're going to have to change the way we do feedback in the show, or we're going to end up doing more feedback than we do reviewing the comic, right? So uh, what we're going to probably do is we're going to continue to cover the website comics, comments like we're doing. We're going to continue to review the iTunes reviews, and we're going to continue to review the emails. We probably are not going to pull the comments from social media. So if you want to hear your comments on the show, make sure you leave them on our website or email them to us. It's just There's just a little too much, folks, to get through this. Um, now, we will still cover the folks who share are the show on Facebook and Twitter. We want to give everyone credit if we're acknowledging to help promote the show. But again, the website, what Rob, what's that website? Firewaterpodcast.com. Yep, that's the best place to leave your comments. All right, Rob, let's get into the comments. You're up, buddy. Can I say that if you total up all the comments left on the 78 so far episodes of Pod Dylan, you wouldn't have 73 comments? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's possible. It's possible. It's, it's more than possible. But that um, show is beloved. I mean, there's no. I know. That. I'm just saying. It's just very funny to me that Who's Who really drives people to comment. It's very funny, well, especially um, the loose leaf edition. Yeah, I mean, well, wow. people were dying for this. And you know what? Remind me when we get to the end of the feedback. I have a comment about Who's Who in general that you and I have discussed regarding something you and I discovered online about Who's Who. But we'll get to it at the end. Anyway, okay. uh, first comment is from Joe X. He says, "Isn't the only reason to do a barter story to let the artist fill the shop?" with easter eggs <laughs> so i've got i've got a story to share here real quick um just recently i got at baltimore comic-con i picked up a kickstarter that i did a while back carl kessel and tom grummet did a great graphic novel called um section zero it's kind of a challengers on the un- of the unknown riff it's really a lot of fun i mean it's it's Kessel and Grummet together, you can't lose with that combination. But in there, there is a character, I don't remember the character's name, but Kessel, in the back matter, in the commentary, straight up admits that he lifted this character from Barter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a female this time, and she's like super hot. She's still a little bit like a, um, feels like a Madame Xanadu kind of thing. But she's basically Barter. She's got a shop. She does everything for trade. The shop magically appears wherever you need it to, and things like that. It's, it's essentially, he lifted his own character and put him in this book, and I'm thrilled that the character's still around. Because I, like I said, on the last episode, I think barter is a great concept, and it works. So I'm glad it's alive in Section Zero. That's very fun. That's neat. Yep. Um, the next comment is from David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer for Pod Dylan, and uh, I'm not going to do the joke that Shag wrote here in the comments. So, David, that you would own... be the no, no, owner, no, 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 David, I tried. I really did. We have a shirt now with and, the Katana Banana. God, oh it all originated in oh, Who's Who. You David, have to tell people. I'm you sorry. can go out to T Public. Uh, Rob's going to edit all this out. You can go out to T Public and you can buy the Katana Banana t shirt now at the fruit stand. Zoom, you can already do a logo and everything. It's 1.20 in the morning, Shag. Uh, David David wrote I'm sorry David He wrote My dearest friends I think you should just My dearest friend at this point Another lovely episode Spotlighting one of my favorite Comic characters of all time Wonder Woman It was this incarnation That I read and collected Without fail And even in times of poverty And unemployment Up until the Gail Simone run It was a true labor of love For George Perez And one I returned to With great frequency And fondness Regarding the human target, yep, a total blip on the 90s TV landscape as it was a mid-season replacement with only a handful of episodes produced. Even as a fan of the work of Danny Bilson and the late wonderful Paul DeMeo, I can say the series was not their best. However, it was faithful to the concept of having Chance replace his clients, unlike the Fox series of years back, which just had Chance acting as a bodyguard. As a bonus, The Flash himself, John Wesley Shipp, cameoed on the Designed by Chance episode as the clothing designer marked for death. Very cool. Thank you, David. That's great information. Uh, We have another comment from Chuck Coletta, our pal, who is currently doing the uh, putting together the Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, which you can find on Twitter. He says, I don't think Bob Haney is entirely at fault for all the Wonder Woman confusion. Yes, he should have read her previous appearances more closely, but in those days, Wonder Woman, Wonder Girl, and Wonder Tot all regularly interacted despite being the same character at different chronological ages. That's fair. That's true. He's not wrong about that. Yeah, I think, I think it was Kaniger that did that. Kaniger was the one that put them all simultaneously. I think Haney was just picking up and running with it. Well, but I mean, but I think the Kaniger stuff, they were still, it was still all Wonder Woman. It was Time Lost Tales where they were traveling through time and interacting with themselves, though. So either way, it's, you know, hey, is anyone going to begrudge us having Donna Troy? I don't think so. So, no. All right. Then we heard from Dishwater Danny. He goes, love. This is funny. By the way, just so you know, there's no punctuation. There's no capitalization. It's just one big run-on thing. Love the show. I drink a bit at, of times. That she, 
I drink a bunch of times that Shag says characters are hot. That was a game I played anyway. Love the show. Keep it rocking. Love the network very, very much. Can't wait for all the shows. Love it, love it, love it. Better than TV. <laughs> Well said. Admittedly, last episode, I said she's hot a lot. I mean, I had Wonder Woman and Troy and Phantom Lady and all that stuff. So poor dishwater Danny. I probably killed his liver. I'm so sorry. Then we heard from another great handle, Slobberknocker. Uh, he says, the Shag Show, because we referred to something as the Shag Show last time, doesn't sound very kid-friendly. Sounds like you should have had a, an adult explicit tag. <laughs> Thank you, Slobberknocker. I agree with that. Uh, Chris Franklin from our network does Supermates and JLU cast with his wife, Cindy. Uh, I, uh, I I just recently had the opportunity to have dinner with his, him and his family. It was absolutely wonderful. All right. He says, uh, Rob has been nothing but high energy on Superman Movie Minute, which is his only other show with a consistent co-host that isn't Shag. So is it the material on Who's Who or the co-host? Hmm. Uh, exhibit A, Legion of Superheroes. Okay. Anyway, uh, Chris goes on to say, Human Target, Dick Giordano inked that first Christopher Chance adventure and then drew almost all of his solo appearances after that. He loved characters like this and, uh, and his own Sarge Steel. He was kind of like John Bushima in that way. He didn't really care for costume superheroes other than the Batman. Hmm, good observation. Then about Light Ray, we talked about, oh, we waxed the car, Light Ray, that, that Art Adams piece. He goes, I love this entry, the art, the dynamism, uh, the fact that Adams didn't get the memo to ignore the superpowers designs of almost everyone. Absolutely true. Uh, Oh, God, I love that entry so much. Uh, we, he also said, Alter the Multi-Alien. If Light Ray was a sales pitch for a new God series, then this is definitely key art for an Ultra presentation. Why isn't this guy in Cartoon Network? Fantastic piece. Yeah, it's, he really should star in a bunch of shorts on the DC Universe app. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he also says, The Persuader. Is it snowing oats in July? I don't know, is that a phrase? Rob likes a Kurt Swan piece, and all it took was a, ro- was a Road Warrior meets Jason Voorhees makeover to finally get him on board. Who knew? Uh, Luke Giaconetti follows that up Luke Giaconetti uh, From the Two True Freaks Network And he also does his own podcast called Earth Destruction Directive And he's on several others He says, Chris, I noticed that a lot of the fourth world characters Were in their superpowers duds for the light ray image on Twitter Which is very cool I was introduced to the fourth world via superpowers and super friends As I assume many fans were at my age were And those redesigns hold a special place for me Mantis especially I feel is an improvement over his original design Looking more alien and menacing in his armored appearance You know, I totally agree, it's funny I have a special place in my heart for Mantis as well because the, the, the superpowers Mantis uh, or the superpowers Firestorm action figure it came with a mini comic right and the mini comic was all about Firestorm versus Mantis and so that version of Mantis has always held a special place for me because I had that action figure and I had that mini comic so outstanding. Then we heard from Sean Walsh, who goes by Sergey Bamba. He wrote, uh, Now onto my pals, the new gods. Something you guys mentioned that I long thought was unfortunate was the brevity of some of their pages here. Fastback, of course, who is barely even a blip on the fourth wall radar, but also decide and even granny to an extent. But in 1990, the new gods were relatively light in appearances, or rather, as I realized listening, official appearances. Much of the new gods material prior to 1990 was relegated to a multiversal dust been thanks to the crisis. The return of the New Gods books were cut short by the DC implosion and utilized many of them, these characters, but the era were pretty widely ignored by the time Kirby's Hunger Dogs came out in 1985. And a lot of the remaining 1980 experiences were superpowers comics, hence unofficial to the canonical resource like Who's Who. Outside of the top tier characters, they hadn't been much done with them a lot uh, yet in the post-crisis DCU. Even Desaad, whose entry here only includes events from Kirby's first run, was just starting to get more exposure in Starling 
Marlin and Evanier's New Gods book. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The fact that the New Gods, you know, a lot of it just boom out of continuity at that point. So that makes a lot of sense. That may explain why a lot of them are a little light in the in the text. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Uh, Tom Panarese from Pop Culture Affidavit, required reading with Thomas Della, and lots more. He says, as always, another great episode, and while other teachers believe Rob should get a gold star for his increased enthusiasm, I come from a generation older than millennials and don't believe in participation trophies, so there. <laughs> I would not want to be a student in Mr. Panarese's class. Um, Thanks, Tom. Anyway. Anyway, let's talk some more about Troya. I personally love that George Perez drew this entry because as much as I love Tom Grummet, he is my second favorite Titans artist, his Troya always looked much older than she actually was. It may have been the shorter haircut, but when I when he was on the art, she always looked like she was pushing 40 rather than rather than in her in her 20s. You know, he makes a really good point because in the New Titans book, she was sort of the mother hen of the group. And by the time the team Titans comes around, she is sort of like taking care of them. And and she should really probably only be like seven or eight years older than him, but she looks a lot older. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, and he goes, and I still maintain that the Wolfman Perez retcon of Donna's origin worked and that it was John Byrne who screwed up that character. Well, uh, I agree that John Byrne screwed up the character. I don't know that I agree with the first part. Then we heard from uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion of Super Bloggers. He writes about Donna or Troy's origin. He goes, if you first don't succeed, Troya, Troya again. Oh, wow. What a grown up. I bet Ange could not wait to get that on. Like, he probably, like, as soon as he heard the episode, he was like, dropped it and couldn't wait to get, because he, he wants to get those puns in as soon as he can. <laughs> and then he wrote about Barter, because he's a big Hawk and Dove fan. He goes, as I anticipated, Barter gets no love. I actually think his power hook and that he has to Barter is what makes him interesting. He cannot give something away, he cannot accept something freely. There has to be an exchange transaction. That means he's traded something, either an object or information or something, to procure that power back. In the second Hawk and Dove annual, you know the Armageddon 2001 uh, annual, which shows that neither Hawk nor Dove will ever become monarch. <laughs> That's his own little retcon there. Or I'm sorry, he says ever, ever, ever become monarch. He goes, there's a future story where Barter gives something away freely and basically withers and dies. Wow. Uh, so then he goes on, because you know, we always seem to pick on the characters that Ange loves, right? So he goes, as an aside. Much like I did when you guys trash uh, Reactron and the gang, I will remind you that you both – that in the original <laughs> podcast series, you waxed the cars of the Fisherman and the Enforcer. And he hated hashtag D-list, hashtag bias. <laughs> now, to be fair, come on, Ange. It's the Fisherman, who's a villain of the Aquaman. The Enforcer, who's a villain of Firestorm. This entire network was based on Aquaman and Firestorm. Of course we're going to be okay with yeah. those characters versus Hyathis. I mean, come on, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm just saying, Ange, if you want to uh, have a podcast where somebody goes on and on about the gang, somebody needs to start a Supergirl podcast. Yeah, there you go. Just saying. All right. Uh, anyway, he also mentions Human Target. I have never seen the costume Rob is talking about, so I'll have to do some research. Giordano is synonymous with the Bronze Age character so much, uh, so it makes sense he is on the art. I might push his Vertigo series many years later by Peter Milligan as a fantastic comic worth hunting down. Yeah, I, I talked about this ad that I saw with Human Target where he was in like a white jumpsuit with a target on his chest. I have not been able to find that house ad. After I talked about it on the show – I poured through a ton of 70s DC comics, and I was like, I know I've seen it, and I could not find it. And I even consulted Greg Arujo, who is like the master domain, uh, has like a yes. master of, of comic book ads. I can like ask him, 
you know, there was this Spider-Man ad that featured like a guy and like on the left-hand corner and like a minute later, he'll send me the scan. So he's that good and he couldn't find it. So maybe I'm just making it up. I don't know. Maybe I'm imagining it or something. But I, I swear to God, I thought I remember this human target costume, but I could find no evidence of it at all. So anyway. Remember that Who's Who episode where we just made up a bunch of stuff to frustrate the – to try and get the creators to respond? Yeah. I, I think that's what you're doing. Maybe you're just so. right, making stuff up. Now, Dick Giorgiano's not going to write in, but no. maybe, you're, maybe you're hoping somebody else will. I'm not yeah, sure. I don't know who cares about Human Target at this point. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he goes on. He says, The Persuader, this does look more like Jason Voorhees than Fatal Five. I miss the sleek blue armor. But in a de- decaying world of 5YL, I suppose the burlap bag shirt makes some sense. But did I hear Rob say, describe a member? Did I hear Rob describe a member of the Fatal Five as the giant guy with an exposed brain? Come on, dude. And he continues on, Phantom Lady. Whoa, Nelly. So the question really is, which ender do you prefer? The Dave Stevens original Phantom Lady or the Hughes update? I got to go Stevens. Mercy. Yeah, me too. It's, uh, to me, if yeah, any drawing, if there's a version of Dave Stevens that did it, then Dave Stevens is the one I like. Yeah, I'm going to vote Stevens as well. But, um, but, yeah, but you know, I'm <laughs> the, the Adam Hughes one's not one to be ignored, though. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, he writes in about Troy. He goes, I think Shag echoes the thoughts of every red-blooded comic reading hetero male in the 80s when he said that he had a crush on Donna Troy. Who didn't? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he also mentions Alter the Multi-Alien. He played a very crucial role in the first story arcs of Jeff Lemire's Justice League Unlimited. Those are worth looking for. I didn't know that. I read some – I did know that. I can't believe I didn't mention it. Okay. I read some Justice League United, the ones with Mira, which I thought were really good. I like Jeff Lemire, so I'll have to go find those because I love Ultra the Multi-Alien, of course. And then I responded to Angie's comment about uh, Validus where I said, I know who Validus is. I just thought the giant guy with the exposed brain was funnier. And then Angie responds, that makes me feel better about the world. And he's the doctor. You you helped him sleep at night. That's good. All right. Then we heard from David A. Gutierrez again, owner and operator of the Katana. Uh, and you can buy that shirt. Uh, um, <laughs> he says, I feel as though I must defend Rob's criticism of Kurt Swan, or as I call him in polite company, Kurt Yawn. I won't diminish his importance to the history of Superman comic books, but it can be argued his work is quite stiff. Reading the Swan-drawn adventures as a boy, I often felt as though Superman was depicted as a stern, unfun old guy, constantly finger-pointing and telling others to get their acts together. Adventure comics, more, more like le- – I can't say it. Act- Adventure comics, more like lecture comics. Oh, goodness. Well, I only read that so I can get to these next parts from Chris Franklin. Chris says, for anyone on the fence, I can't recommend Eddie Zeno's Swan biography enough. When you see his pencils, many of you may change your mind. The man has never been incorrectly, even by the masters like Murphy Anderson and Al Williamson. And Chris goes on to say, my journey with Swan was somewhat similar to my eventual appreciation of Kirby and Ditko. At some point, I began to appreciate the quiet grace Swan brought to all of his work. Maybe quiet grace isn't exactly what one looks for in superhero comics, but I tend to now think of Swan as an early version of Alex Ross. His people were solid, and they were real, and they just happened to wear funny costumes. It grounds the fantastic elements of the stories and makes them somewhat more relatable. Wow. I, I, I just found all that very eloquent, and I thought Chris really did a great job uh, expressing his point. I can't stand watching David and Chris fight. Uh, I think Chris pounded him. It was just like pff, right in the dirt. I'm not alleging who won who. I'm just saying I don't like to watch it. It's unpleasant. He squashed him like a banana, like you might squash with a katana. So, 
then we heard from Brian Linton, and he says, KG Beast to NKV Demon. Of course, this duo's greatest claim to fame would come years later when they teamed up with the other Soviet-themed villains to go head-to-head with Aquaman and the others. What a claim to fame, yes. How did we not remember that? <laughs> he also, we covered that series. We did, issue by issue, too. Uh, it's, it's Brian, awesome. We should yeah, this. Yeah, Brian points out, Star Labs, your observation that Star Labs would continually pop up in new locations made me realize the true secret identity behind this institution. In reality, Star Labs is the most successful franchise in the DC Universe. Take that, McDonald's and Starbucks. Absolutely true. And he's not wrong there. Then we heard from Jeff Tischer. He wrote in about Blaze. He says she also took on Captain Marvel and the Wizard Shazam in Ordway's Power of Shazam series. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, absolutely she did. Then with Cheetah, he says, if you're miffed about them not pointing out Priscilla Rich or Deborah Dormain, uh, Domain in the first appearance, what about Dan Garrett's first showing up in the Golden Age for Blue Beetle? Then again, they do use Sandra Knight's version for the Phantom Lady, so chalk it up to major inconsistencies? Arlene Lowe! <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Saad, because as twisted as he is, I never thought Kirby really expressed that well. Aside from uh, how many parents would have been okay giving their kids a Saad action figure if they realized he was an S&M torturer. Good point. Uh, he says, this piece, while harsh to look at, at least conveys just how depraved he is. That's a very good point. And he goes, human target. Here you go. Now, Rob, just a moment ago, you said, who cares about the human target? Well, here you go. Human target. He's still on TV. He was used properly in the last season of Arrow, where he assumed several identities to help cover for Ollie and his team. It should also be pointed out that while playing Ollie, he knew things he shouldn't have, which lends well to the whole notion of he totally gives it, uh, into the identity he's assuming. Hmm. All right. Uh, and then Jeff goes on here. He says uh, about Rocket Red, poor Dimitri killed during the Infinite Crisis lead up. Shag's response is, WTF, what? You are got to, I, What? I um I don't think I knew that, and I'm seriously pissed when I found that out. So uh, I'll have to look at it. It was apparently during the OMAC project, which I read, but I have no recollection of that. So uh, I'm pretty unhappy. Anyway, his replacement was created in Justice League uh, Generation Lost and really was a step down as far as the characters go. Hopefully Rebirth will bring him back. Yeah, yeah, they better. Dimitri's an amazing character. You can't just go killing him willy-nilly. <sighs> He goes on to say, for real Docs the second from the Acronym Legion, it's been retconned a couple of times, but last check, he is now the biological son of Brainiac. He was recently reintroduced in Justice League No Justice. Okay. And he goes, uh, Weather Wizard, the reason he and many of the rogues went legit a couple of times was retconned as because of the mental manipulation in the aftermath of Dr. Light's attack on Sue Dibney in Identity Crisis. Jeff Johns really turned that lemon into lemonade and made it into a great lead-up to the rogues' war. Hmm. All right. Now, on inking. All right, got some stuff for you here, Rob. Because, again, we talked a lot about inking and brushes last time. Regarding inking, I'm great friends with former inker Mark Lipka. Uh, I used to help him out with filling in blacks when he was in the industry and I was in art school. He was fantastic with a brush and taught me all um, about how to use ink different ways to achieve different textures. How to layer the ink thickness and to increase depth of field, the right use of zip tone, etc. He would use pens for some things. Uh, background buildings notably, uh, but he preferred the brush. A key thing to inking with a pen is a steady hand. There is no forgiveness. When you ink with a brush, the natural bounce of the hairs can help forgive a little shakiness. And as Rob pointed out, you can flow thick and thin within the same line so easily. Hmm. All right. So these brushes, I mean, I've been thinking about it. Are they, is it like, you know, like just a kind of a paintbrush, like a standard paintbrush, or is it connected like a pen 
hold like you'd hold like a pen. No, like, it's, it's like a very tiny little brush. Yeah, I mean you would hold it like it would you, like you would hold. Yeah, it looks like a pen, but it has a little tiny brush at the end of it. Wow. Okay. And you I, just change the heads, or do they have a whole different? No, you different. You have, there's a million different size brushes. You could you okay. you have a million of them. I have seen people ink straight lines with brushes, which to me is just madness. I don't know how really? anybody does it. Yeah, but I've seen them. I've seen people do it. I'm just it's just stunning to me that you can get a straight line that looks like a a line that belongs on a building with a brush. That is, I'm just thinking, yeah. that's a magic trick. Wow. Okay. I just it's funny. It's it, reading comics for. Oh my gosh, 35 years, and I'm I'm still learning about how they're done. So, fascinating. Then we heard from our friend Diablo Frank, who writes uh, really, 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 really big, big, big uh, things, which are just wonderful to read, and sometimes a little frightening, but uh, we're just, we're just going to cherry-pick some of this. Now, uh, Diablo Frank's from the World Spine Podcast Network. He does some shows such as Diana Prince, New Wonder Woman Podcast, and the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. Uh, let's see. He goes, uh, given your relief that Blaze was a non-sexualized villainess, I'm sorry to report that she got a new 52-ed. I didn't know that was a verb. In her more recent appearances with uh, Pendulous Boobs, uh, reveals, revealing a plunging neckline down to her navel. I don't know if it was Reign of Hell or Supergirl, but the images I stumbled upon online, she was basically rendered like Purgatory from Chaos Comics. Ew. Thanks for that, Frank. Um, he goes on to say, I've been impressed with the artistic stylings of Ty Templeton, but in this period where he made his biggest play for mainstream notoriety, notoriety, I was underwhelmed by his blandness. As with his, um, as with the same period, Paris Cullens, I liked their earlier, earlier and later work, but the post-crisis period, they were exactly the type of bloodless journeyman that drove me back to Marvel. Wow, dude. I know you hate anything nice and happy, but seriously, I, Ty Templeton and Paris Collins in this era are just at the, I love their stuff. They're top tier DC artists. I'm sorry you didn't like it, but you know, go over to Marvel then, you stinky little turd. <laughs> Frank gonna be Frank. He says, how did Shag read all those ambush comics referencing Bob Oxner and not know Inkers use brushes? Sorry. Any, anyway, I like Gil Kane's repitograph years. That's just how he looked for the last few decades of his career as drawn by the master. That chrono suit looks fine, but since it was typically drawn by Graham Nolan, it was a snore. The classic suit is an eyesore, and I preferred this to the We Give Up Black version post-Zero Hour, but it just it just isn't Kronos without the f- white, full face mask. The Richard Nixon resembles proves once again the comics have always been political. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You're not wrong there. Uh, he says, those vicious coons strike again, and just look at them big hairy legs holding them up. Freaking fantastic entry art by Pad Broderick for the extra Klingons. Yeah, I love that. What a bunch of uh, coons. Then he's, and I think that's the – what you say? What a bunch of coons. <laughs> and I think that's the only uh, comment about that entry, so I wanted to bring it up. He goes, I would argue that the light ray entry is a testament to how lame the character is. Because if Art Adams had drawn an Orion or Dark Side entry, he would have just drawn a, the subject character. This is a new god's drawing that inexplicably highlights light ray instead of a character that actually matters to the story. He's not enough to justify the efforts of Adam Art Hughes. Art Adams, I'll just make up a bunch of names. He's not enough to justify the efforts of Art Adams, so all these other better creations are shoehorned in to add value. Wow. I mean, that's pretty brutal, dude. Um, you might be right, but at the same time, I don't want to argue because that piece is absolutely gorgeous. It's one of my favorite pieces of New um, new God's Arts ever, so uh, I'll, I'll take it. 
He says, hey, remember when Who is Donna Troy was a beloved Titan story in an instant classic of the new DC rather than a groan-inducing punchline? Or when the Titans were legitimate competition for the X-Men instead of a team of staff with nobodies wearing ill-conceived Perez-ish designs like Azrael, Cole, Jericho, sorry, Philemon, and Troya? It's almost as if Perez torpedoed a portion of his own legacy by hawk-worlding Wonder Woman. Also, why does everyone keep insisting on keeping the star pattern when Donna looked so much better wearing red? You know, he's right, he's right about that last bit, at least. Donna Troy certainly looks better in red, and they keep going back to the black starfield pattern. Hmm. Now, we had talked about Kerry Gamble in the last episode, and he had said something about Kerry Gamble not having a lot of longevity, and we were both like, really? So he gives us some figures here. Kerry Gamble did roughly 12 issues of full pencils on Superman, plus finished pencils over uh, pencils over George Perez's layouts for six issues of Action Comics, and one on his own. He got a bit over a year on Power Man and Iron Fist out, and a dozen total issues of Marvel Team-Up. He drew half of the eight issues of Fallen Angels miniseries. Beyond that, his career is a lot of spot fill-ins, Ohatmu entries, and covers. That's shocking to me because to me Kerry Gamble was like a you know a, a, a standard artist of the 80s like he was everywhere but yeah. maybe he wasn't yeah I didn't know that I, I, hmm. I liked his stuff a lot but maybe I didn't see it as much as I thought I did maybe um, I read a lot of fill-ins I don't know maybe so uh, Luke Giaconetti says that regarding Kronos looking like Nixon all they think is take that DC universe you won't have Kronos to go around anymore <laughs> had to had tip to Futurama <laughs> thank you Luke Sphinx Magoo follows it up by saying, I think even Fred Hembeck made fun of the fact that his first appearance, Kronos, looked like Richard Nixon. I tried to find a picture, but the only one I could find was the first Who's Who series, and the distinctive receding hairline is missing, but you can see in the face uh, in that image that it's clearly Richard Nixon. Yeah, he's not wrong there. Then we're from Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcast Network. He writes in about Blaze. He goes, Blaze is one of those characters that made me love the early triangle number era of Superman back in the early 1990s and continues to make me love it to this day. Her introduction was played out over several months, and I like the idea that Superman would have a supernatural elements to his rogues gallery. <laughs> I agree, Mike. And he goes, the Soul Search storyline uh, is where she made her first big play and is still one of the better short storylines from the pre-Death of Superman era. Not only for the rolling up its sleeves Superman has had enough of your shit cover from Action Comics number 656 by Carrie Gamble, y'all, but also for the end of which Jerry White subplot, uh, which hit me really hard at age 14. Hmm. All right, we've got a comment from Noah Tarno. He says, great, great episode. Thanks for showing up, Rob. The perfect soundtrack to my afternoon of clearing thousands of spider webs in the backyard of my sister's new house. See, so I did get a participation trophy from Noah Tarno, so screw you, Mr. Panneries. <laughs> Welcome back to Mr. Pan Reese. Um, I always like KG Beast and KV Demon. Super, and this is Noah still continuing, by the way. Superhero comics are plagued, plagued by hyperbole. And one of the most frequent annoying examples is how every villain seems to be framed as the toughest, most dangerous, scariest threat the hero could ever possibly imagine. But the Beast and the Demon always struck me as honest-to-goodness, genuinely frightening hardcore badasses. Even the Beast's S&M-tastic outfit says to me, I'm such a tough guy, I don't give a crap what you think of my clothing. Actually, cursed. But anyway, uh, though I was shocked to hear Rob say that he has zero memory of NKV Demon, considering that he starred in an issue of the early 1990s Aquaman series with an excellent cover, a beautiful Kevin Hooper cover of the demon standing menacingly over the Sea King. I did forget about that, yes. Dude, that's two appearances by NKV Demon in Aquaman <laughs> comics that we told, and your exact words in the last episode is, I have no memory of this character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't you do some stuff with Aquaman for a couple of years? I don't remember. I don't remember that either. <laughs> 
Uh, he says, I have very clear memories of that Phantom Lady entry doing certain things to a 15-year-old me. I do love the idea of Power Lady, uh, I'm sorry, Phantom Lady being in World War II Cheesecake Icon, a DC Universe version of Betty Grable. I seem to recall a scene in the Jack Knight Starman where he mentions that the original Phantom Lady was his cousin, and his tattoo artist says that he once inked her onto some World War II veteran's arm. That's awesome. Oh, James Robinson Starman is so good. Uh, then we heard from Jeff R., who gives us our egregious emissions, and we only have another 11 issues to wait until he gives us our next egregious emissions. He says, uh, also, at a risk of causing more art chat, can you get a variable width from a pen with a rec- rectangular nib, like a calligraphy pen? Is there a reason comics anchors never use anything like that? Now, Jeff Tischer chimed in. I do want to hear what you say, Rob, too. But he goes, uh, Jeff says, there are applications for calligraphy pens, but they're limited. You can get better versatility out of a brush than you can out of a calligraphy pen without the limitations. So I, I thought the same thing. Wouldn't it just make more sense to have a pen that has a, like a, a wide side and a thin side? Yeah, uh, but it, it all depends on what you're comfortable in using, you know? And it really comes down to that. When we were at school, some of us used pens for everything and other people used brushes. I mean, I would have preferred the brush look, but I just could never master it. I just was never that good. My hand was never that steady and stuff like that. And yet we would watch uh, Mark Pennington ink his shade pages and just be able to zip, 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 and, or Kim DeMulder and do stuff like that. So I would really – and you can get varying widths with a pen nib. It just takes a lot of skill. So when you say shade, you mean shade the changing man? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You got to watch those pages get inked? I got to help on those pages get inked. Ah! I never you told that broke story. my brain. Okay, we got. Oh my God, it's like three in the morning. But I will briefly tell the story. I had Mark Pennington as my uh, anatomy uh, life anatomy teacher third year. We all that was part of our track, and uh, other people in the class include John Tiffany, who has been on a couple of my shows. My pal Dan Eaker, who was on Pod Dylan, some other things. And this was when Mark was inking Jade the Changing Man. And Mark, the way the classes worked is like you had a morning class and an afternoon class. And Mark taught life drawing to two different classes on Fridays. So it was like our class was in the morning and then there was lunch and then there was the second class. So Mark had to work on – that was when he was working on Shade the Changing Man. And when Mark was particularly far behind, he mm. would hand out Shade Changing Pages to all of us to fill in the blacks. Oh, my um, god! Now, to those of us in the class, of which I was not one, who was little, who were a little more far along in their skills, he would actually allow some of them to maybe ink, you know, like a, a coat or a, a background element or like actually do inking. The rest of us that were further back that he probably couldn't trust to do that kind of work were just spotting blacks. But there were times where he was so far behind, you would come in and look and you would see 20 people with pages in their laps finishing his shade pages and when he was really really far behind we would be finishing his shade pages his brother mitch would come in on their lunch hour pick up the pages and drive him to dc that afternoon oh my gosh so the the penciler was was that uh i forget who was doing chris bacala was that who was uh, that's uh, that's where i was going to was bacala or bacala however you say it that's what i was thinking too but wow yep that's that. Those were times when Mark was really, really far behind. Now, sometimes we, if we had a, a, a we we had a life models, we had free, we had the you know real life models that we were drawing. Sometimes they didn't come in or they were late or whatever. And then there were other times where Mark was like, "Hey, here's some real world experience. Everybody, take a shade changing page and start finishing it up." And so that's what we did. And so there were, and then then the books would come out and we'd be able to point and say, "Hey, that was the thing I worked on." Stuff like that. 
That is so – I love that book. You got to ink a Peter Melligan written story. Oh my gosh. That's insane. I, I never knew that. I've heard that certainly about a, another book that you and I are going to talk about someday, but I didn't know that <laughs> 25 one. 25 so. years from now, yes. Right. All right. Wow. Okay. So uh, Philemon, you're going to have to follow that up with something good here. So let's see what you got, buddy. Uh, our buddy Philemon writes in next. He's the president of the Jericho Fan Club, which meets every third Thursday of the month in the in the treehouse on the corner of Grant and Rose Avenue, by the way. So check that out. It's a very quiet and, uh, <laughs> and if anyone gets the reference to the streets, let me know. So, All right, so Philemon says, okay, uh, I know I'm going to regret this shag, but if I'm going to be forced to hear about the Titan story that must not be named, his quotes, every month, he means Titan's hunt uh, because he needs to reread it. Maybe maturity will soften my opinion of the issue, although I think the ending will still infuriate me. Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair bet the ending will still infuriate you, Philemon. I think so. <laughs> and uh, Now, we, we bagged on the cadaver. Uh, not, not horribly, but no. we had some things to say about Cadaver where we just, we didn't quite get him. You know, we didn't really see the, the, the power of that character, I guess. And he, and, and Philemon, because he's contrary to everything we say, he said that Cadaver was his new favorite character unread. So he went back and reread these stories. He goes, I did read the Cadaver stories as I said I would. They certainly won't go down as classics, but Cadaver himself is a fairly interesting villain. Not quite as insane as the Joker, not quite as obsessed as, Two- as Two-Face, not quite as crafty as Penguin, not quite as mercenary as Deadshot, but containing enough elements of each of these classic rogues that he feels an appropriate nemesis for the Dark Knight. There's also a surprising amount of character development for just uh, three two-part stories. I wouldn't object to him making a return. Huh. All right, fair enough, Heilemann. I appreciate you doing the research. However, I would like to point out that pretty much the whole description of him was not quite as. It was pretty much everything <laughs> you just said. So that's kind of where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Cadaver. Well, I appreciate Heilemann defending the character and doing the research. I think we were, I, I think to be fair to us, uh, my suggestion would be if you're going to try and join the greatest rogues gallery in the history of comics, you got to bring it. That's all. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. now if Cadaver was, say, an Aquaman villain, he might have <laughs> he might have rose to the ranks a little more quicker. But if you're going to be in there with the Joker and the Penguin and the Riddler and Catwoman, you got to really be good. So anyway. Well, Alan Grant was thrown uh, – and Steve, uh, Steve Wagner, is that right? Yeah, Alan Grant and Steve Wagner. Um, they were thrown a lot of the wall. So, I mean, some yeah. things stuck, like Scarface. You know, some things didn't. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, he says regarding Kronos, Rob, I'm sure you've expected hate for the soliloquy about inking methods. No, I didn't. But I found it very enlightening. Early Gil Kane is one of my favorite artists, just as late Gil Kane is one of my least favorite. I wonder how much of that shift has to do with the inking changes you mentioned. Also, Cronus's classic costume is the only one he should ever wear. Oh. Finally, I'm surprised neither of you mentioned that under hair color, Wade specifically mentions that Clinton is balding. Way to kick a man when he's down, Mark. <laughs> oh, Philemon, I love it. Uh, he says, I know this is sacrilege, but I'm not particularly enamored by Adam Hughes' rendering of Phantom Lady. What? Uh, he says, uh, the uh, anatomy is lovely, uh, but the face is muddy in the 80s hooker hair. Just doesn't do it for me. What I am loving is the creepy skull face guy with the scissors in the window. That stuff is just nightmare inducing. I will admit, I will admit I hadn't noticed the missing furniture before today. Yeah, none of us did. Nobody noticed the missing furniture as exactly as Phantom Lady's costume was designed to make you not notice things. Uh, let's see. Troya. Because I'm not sure how I became the patron saint of ill-regarded comic book characters, but I take the responsibility seriously. This time it is again Terry Long. Did no one else notice that Troya's marital status is listed as married? Terry doesn't get mentioned to the known relatives. There's one mention of Mr. Long in the history section. Quote, Donna later met, uh, met and married a college history professor named Terry Long, end quote. But its brevity and placement implies some level of embarrassment that I don't think it's warranted. Stepdaughter Jennifer has apparently been completely erased from the story at this point. Hmm. 
Look at that. Uh, you're right. None of us noticed the, the missing Terry Long, and that's because none of us like him. But um, – <laughs> Well, we all know Terry Long was a stand-in for, you know, Marv's sort of, supposedly, he was a stand-in for Marv's feelings as a middle-aged guy. So that's kind of what, that, that's that's the story. And apparently he looked like Len Wein, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, but yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, all right. Uh, it finally goes, all right, now it's my time to turn the tables. I have gently accepted Shag's good-natured rebuke that I say things that are counter to reason, but I'm sure I'm right on this one. How do you not love Alan Weiss's Weather Wizard art? The unique camera angle on the splash page gives you a clear depiction of Martin's power while also giving you both the sense of dread of what it must be like to be caught in the midst of said power and insight into just how insane the villain is as he's seduced by the power of having the power in his grip. Also, look at the senior picture in said picture. Uh, I'm talking about the little photo in the back. I'm not sure I've ever seen a picture like this that is so faithfully recreates what it would look like in the real world for someone to walk around with a domino mask on. The face is distinct, and the mask looks like it's an addition to the face, where so often it seems that the face was made to wear the mask, uh, if that makes any sense. Anyway, I'm not saying that this is the best entry in the issue, but there's certainly worse entries, and I quite like this one. You know, you make a fair point, Philemon, and I will give you credit for that. Uh, I do remember the Weather Wizard drawing. I, I didn't take to it. However, there is sort of a mad glee in his face, and I do remember him really sort of reveling in the power usage, and you did clearly look like the wind was whipping. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. So, fair point. So, uh, even a blind squirrel sometimes finds a nut, I guess, huh? Alan Weiss is a great artist, and maybe we weren't as complimentary to him as we should have been. He's done, he's done a lot of great work. I would not necessarily say that the Weather Wizard portrait is one of his best things, but he's a terrific comic book artist, un- undoubtedly. Yeah. Uh, Zoom Yukinori from our network, he does the Done One Wonder podcast wonder show. He says, fun show as always, partway through, but for your convenience. Star Labs is based on the W.R. Grace building on 6th Avenue, New York City. Thank you, Zoom. I could not find anything on Google about it, but I knew that the building was real. So thank you for, for bringing the information. And uh, Zoom will be coming back into the listener feedback section in a moment. Yep. Then we're from Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians and podcast I Love Vista Baby, and he's guest starred on a lot of shows on our network. Uh, Mike says, Jill Thompson did indeed design a wrestling shirt for her former WWE wrestler, uh, I'm sorry, not her, for the former WWE wrestler CM Punk, who was a big comics fan, and then he gave us a link. Look at that. Wild. Okay. I did I, I know. We learn something every day. Then we heard from our buddy Siskoid from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as FW Team Up in the upcoming Zero Hour show and much more. And he says the Cahoons have an obvious connection to Invasion, but it looks to me like they're the ones uh, – there's ones Rocket Red is fighting on the main image. So is this an untold Invasion moment? Uh-oh. Well, uh, Siskoid, I got to say it's another Invasion appearance that you missed. You just dropped the ball here, buddy. I'm just – I'm so disappointed. So – um. All right. Then we hear from Nicholas Alheim. says, Robin Shag wondered a bit about the history of the JSA limited series that Mike Parabek drew a couple of issues of uh, shortly after the book came out. So what, what I had asked was he, he did the Vandal Savage image last time Mike Parabek did. And I said, I wonder if he knew he was going to be drawing the JSA limited series coming up. Uh, so – my, uh, Nicholas has got some answers here. He goes, he almost certainly was working on it around this time, as the book existed solely to give the lined-up impact comic artists something to do before the line launched. The editorial in the early issues pretty much explained it completely. Rick Burchett would go on to draw Black Hood. Grant Meehan um, plotted out and drew the shield. Mike drew the fly, and Tom Artis drew the web. Cover artist Tom Lyle would plot and draw the comet. By the time all eight issues were out of the, uh, meaning the 
the JLA book, uh, the JSA book, the initial five impact books were already launched. So it was likely they were working on the JSA book months ahead of time. Of course, the next year, Parabek would exit, sadly, the sinking ship of impact to draw the first ever JSA ongoing, which disappeared far too early. And it's still a favorite, ta- my favorite take on the characters. Yeah, the Parabek, uh, Lynn Straczynski JSA series was absolutely gorgeous from uh, cover to the last issue. It's wonderful. That is my main excitement about doing the who's who and impact is to look at the artwork. Because I know they right. had a lot of yeah. great artwork. I know nothing about the characters. I have no attachment to them. I've read a handful of comics, but I, I know the artwork is really good, and that's the stuff I'm looking forward to looking into. Well, it's essentially just the Archie Red Circle characters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. I, I just – I mean you th- you guys think I have very little attachment to 90s DC? Holy moly. Wait till we get to the impact. But I know, the, right. but I know the art is really good, and that's what I'm looking forward to. We'll have to read that Archie Superhero Digest so you can get some red circle in before <laughs> right. then. Yes. So. All right, then we're here from our buddy Tim Price. He goes, uh, a couple of points about Dimitri's entry. He's six foot seven. Really? I think he hit a growth spurt when Bart Sears drove with JLE because in previous appearances out of his armor, he was shown shorter than John Jones and definitely shorter than Lobo in JLI number 18. Everybody, goes, yes. everybody hit a growth spurt when drawn by Bart Sears. <laughs> he says, yes, when Kilowog helped create the original Rocket Red, it was part of a genetic engineering part power suit. And after the Rocket Red Brigade was created, it never demonstrated their biological abilities ever again. So I'm glad he validated my concerns last issue where I'm like, Rocket Reds don't have powers. He goes on to say, that's a delightful drawing of Plastic Man. I do see Max's point about all the Foglio Barta miniseries. I enjoyed it a lot, but likely because it was Phil, it was a Phil Foglio story and not really a Plastic Man story. I do hope the Terrifics return him to glory for Max. Then John K. Schnarder III drew maybe a year or more of Suicide Squad. The big stories were the Janus Directive crossover with the other covert ops DC titles and the Mission to Apocalypse. I'm curious how Rob would react to some of the new gods entries drawn by John K. Schneider III. Hmm, I bet true. I'd like them. I had no idea. He, I had no idea he ever did any regular DC work. That's news yep. to me. It's amazing. And if and if memory serves, I believe Tim Price was standing there right with me when I was talking to John K. Schneider the third. All right, stop uh, rubbing it in. What's that? Stop rubbing it in. Well, no, I, Tim and I. It's funny. Like we we would hang out at the convention, and then we'd split off and say, "Okay, I'm going to go look at this guy, and you go do that." We split off, and then invariably we'd end up back at the same creator's table all the time. Like I like he always he beat me to the table. I'd be like right in line behind him every time. It was crazy. Did Tim roll his eyes every time he saw you? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Okay, sure. Uh, we got a comment from uh, Ward Ward Hill Terry regarding the Phantom Lady discussion. I remember seeing her picture in the library's copy of Seduction of the Innocent. Also, other examples of headlight comics, injury to eye motif, and other stuff I wanted to see. Thanks, Dr. Wortham. So I clicked on over to a Mike's Amazing World and found that the Phantom Lady only appeared in police comics. What? For the research showed that once quality was done with her, her shop, Eisner slash Iger, sold her to Fox Comics. That's where she had her own title. But is it considered the same character? Has anyone done a piece on this? Chuck Coletta, do you know of a monograph on the subject? I didn't know any of that. I not, wow. not that I really thought about it, but I didn't know that she was like sold to another company. That's news to me. Huh. And um somebody's gotta know. Yeah, so right. folks let us know in the comments, yeah. please. Yeah. That's curious. Yeah. Um we heard from Iced D. He goes, I know most fans barely consider Christopher Chance a blip on the comics radar, but the Vertigo series by Peter Milligan is some truly intriguing stuff. The comic examines the impact of impersonating people on a long-term basis to the point where Chance questions his identity. Uh, he's not sure whether or not his actions are his own or someone else's. Definitely a recommended read if you like psychology mixed into your action. Wow. That does sound really cool. That might be worth checking out. I, I haven't read that. I, did you mention earlier that you'd read that? Is that right? No, I have not. 
Okay. That'd be worth checking out. I mean, Peter, Peter Milligan writes some great stuff. He had some weak inkers sometime, um, when he was doing shade. But other than that, uh, Peter Milligan's stuff was really outstanding. All right. Anthony. Oh, come on. That was a great callback. Okay. All right. It's, dude, it's three in the morning. Uh, Anthony Durso, aka the toy room, who does the custom Mego boxes, which are just unbelievably amazing, these things. If you've ever seen him go on Twitter, check his Twitter feed out. It's crazy stuff. He says, I always thought Barter would have been a great counterpart to Madame Xanadu. You mentioned that. Jack at the top of the show. The, uh, I didn't even realize that yeah. his comment was here. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. It's, it was like, it's, it would be like a whole block of stores of Barter and Madame Xanadu. They could live on uh, Timothy the Street. Danny uh, the Street. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Danny the Street. There you go. Sorry. I did my best. Um, <laughs> and he says, Alter the Multi Alien has been a favorite for years. One day I'll figure out how to make a custom Mego of Ace Arn. I oh, think geez. I've, <laughs> I think I guess you have to take four dolls and cut them up and stitch them together. He says, <laughs> I think I've always liked him in similar split composite heroes villains. Composite Superman, Metamorpho, Super Scroll, Super Adaptoid, even Two Face. Can't get enough of these guys. I'm thinking about it for me. He goes all the way back to the Darlu, the villain of the JLA story in number 130. It was reprinted in the Tempo Justice, Justice League paperback in the 70s. I had that book. I recall drawing a similar Justice League composite character in Miss Millie's 8th grade art class for one of our, for one of our projects. And yes, it was Miss because of the 19 because of 1980. She loved it. Wish I still had it. That's super cool. I love it. <laughs> that is too funny. Oh jeez. I think I've got that Justice League uh, trade paperback too. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yep. yep. Uh, then we heard from Michael Lane from Comics in the Golden Age. And by the way, I get to hang out with Michael Lane also at Baltimore Comic Con. I'm not trying to rub it in, but what a nice guy. Just so friendly. He actually spooked me. We were in line for Jerry Ordway, me and, and I, I want to say, I think it was Keith G. Baker. And this guy at the front of the line looks at me and mouths without saying, wordlessly, are you Shaq Matthews? And I was just like, I'm going to end up in a field dead somewhere. Oh my gosh. So, but it turned out to be Michael Lane and it was wonderful. So That's super funny. nice yeah, guy. Usually the police don't say them like that. They just walk right up to you and they say, are you Shaq Matthews? That's <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, and Michael just wrote in to say some nice stuff. He basically he, – when I jokingly said we were guests at Baltimore Comic Con, he legitimately believed us. Uh, believed me I, I, that I was being serious. That, but no, Rob and I were – we were I was just going to have fun. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Chris Lewis wrote in. He says, uh, again, we'll alter the multi-alien. He alters such a weird amalgam of beings that his creation could only be fully realized in the unique style of sci-fi comics. Although he's adopted all the powers of the constituent alien races, super strength, flight, magnetic, and lightning powers, making him a relatively potent hero, his frightful hybrid appearance and tragic backstory give him an air of pathos. We just feel sorry for the poor guy. That's going to be in my who's who listening. He says, I know Jeff Lemire did a take on Ultra for a Vertigo anthology book, Strange Adventures, in 2011, which captured the heartbreak of the character. In fact, I think Ultra would make for an interesting and very different Vertigo book, exploring how the character deals with the grief of losing his loved ones, transformed to a human into this ugly fusion of alien beings, and coping with their arguing voices in his head all the time. I have no idea why Ultra holds such an appeal for me, but I'm always ludicrously happy when he makes an appearance. Look at that. He's got a, he's got a, he's got a constituency, Ultra the Multi-Alien. He does. He does. By the way, last time you talked about the sci-fi companion where you can see Ultra, I realized I've got a trade paperback on my shelf. It's called Pulp Fiction uh, Library, Mystery in Space. Got an Ultra the Multi-Alien story in it. So definitely right. if, we, if you – We've recommended it on in-stock trades like a dozen times already. Yeah, so a great, great trade if you don't have it. So, all right. Then we're from Ian Fletcher, who left us that amazingly great uh, uh, 
iTunes review. He says, after a few months of casual listening, I finally caught up to the latest episode. Starting back in early June, listening on the way to work and while doing chores has been an awesome trip from beginning to present, and I'm eagerly looking forward to new episodes. Then he gives us a few more comments here. He says, I knew absolutely nothing about the Loose Leaf edition of Who's Who, but after seeing some of the art, I'm seriously wishing I had a complete copy. I love the idea of the Loose Leafs, and I would absolutely organize my binder in personal idiosyncratic fashion. Sorry, Rob. Uh, and he says it was a lot of fun hearing Rob was more engaged in the last episode. And then he said it would be nice if Shang didn't sass Rob when he had a contrasting opinion. Um, you know, Ian, you're still new to the family here. Don't push it, okay? <laughs> it, it would be nice, Ian, but I've learned to live with disappointment. Uh, <laughs> Ru- Russell Burbage uh, from the Legion of Super Bloggers and Friends of Justice Original JLA Comics, which he does on his blog, who just sent me a very nice Halloween card, by the way. Oh, very, very charming. Yes, he sent me this great Halloween card featuring classic universal art. Loved it. Thank you, Russell. He says, y'all need to change the logo for this show. I keep getting excited when I see the logo, but then remember you're on the loose leaf. Shudder. Oh, Russell. Russell. He's wearing his angry pants again. Oh, boy. Uh, Then we heard from Ranger, Gord Tolton. He says, Phantom Lady... (laughs) Phantom... Can't say it. Phantom Lady to her letterer. Quote, hey, wrong. Word balloons. You put the words up in there. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Then we heard from Aaron Head Moss from the Headcast Network. He says, just starting to listen to this episode, and Negative Kelly is making me want to turn it off already. Dismissing banter, I'm sorry, barter and hawk and dove so readily for shame. And then uh, he goes on a little bit more. And then David A. Scudiers comes to your defense. And he says, Rob Kelly is the hawk to Shag Matthews' <laughs> dove. Which then just, this incites a whole string of conversation, which is hilarious. And you end up getting called Positive Kelly by the end, so that's something. So I do love Sean Hannity, so me and Hawk have that in common at least. <laughs> So, uh, okay. Uh, Let, let's, uh, let's move on to the Aquaman family episode. Yeah, let's do that. So, uh, yeah, we got a bunch of comments from, from the Aquaman family special episode where we pulled clips from previous episodes of all Aquaman-related characters. Um, I, I just want to say that was a great surprise. I didn't know that was coming. Rob did that on his own, and that was absolutely wonderful, and I enjoyed the heck out of that. So thank you so much for doing that, Rob. Uh, you're welcome. They're, they're, they're kind of labor-intensive because I have to go through all the old episodes and pull the clips, but it is fun to listen to our old shows, I have to admit. I don't go back and listen to what we do after we've recorded it, but uh, those were fun going back and just hearing that stuff again. That, I mean, good Lord, we've been doing this for seven years now, so it's just sort of interesting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, we got a comment from someone called Earth 2. I guess he's older. Uh, remembers the World War Two. He says, "Great recap episode of your Who's Who podcast is terrific." One point of correction: discounting the crisis, Ocean Master did face other heroes. He battled Batman in Brave and Bold '82 and Superman in DC Comics Presents Five. Yes, or two. That's technically correct. But in both those team ups, Aquaman is present. I, when I said that, I meant that Ocean Master never fought another villain independent of Aquaman. Um, another, another hero. Another hero. I'm sorry. Yes, another hero. Yeah. But so, so basically, anytime Ocean Master ever fought a member of the DC universe, Aquaman was present in some way, which is what I meant. I mean, it's not that he never like just took on Superman or anything like that. So, yeah. There's that. Uh, David Gutierrez. He says, "Nice recap. Nice recap episode. It's also great to hear how Shag and Rob's relationship evolves as the entries progress." I think he meant to say devolves, but it might just be a typo. Uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, that was a fun clip show. I'm not sad that the Craig Hamilton Aquaman suit didn't catch on. It had a purpose in the mini, but it's too faffy and off-color for Arthur to use often. The design works in red for Garth, though. Marine Marauder 2, Outsider's Nonsense. Remove her from this podcast. (laughs) 
Now, I love the camo suit. I really do. It's just, no one could ever make it work. Even the action figure, it looks like a, an ice skater you know, costume. It just doesn't work. But uh, so cool at the time. All right. There from Joe X. He goes, Thanatos. That was the name of the crappy villain that co-opted the camo suit in the 1990s. Um, you are correct. It was Thanatos. And interestingly enough, if, if I remember correctly, Thanatos was actually a villain from the uh, original 1960s series. That is true. And they brought him back in the Sean McLaughlin series. That, and yeah. I think they were I think they were going some places with that. If they hadn't got cut short, I think there would have been more there. Yes, he's in. Uh, he appeared in Aquaman number fifty four, where uh, Aquaman is trapped in like his own dream world, and he takes on an evil version of himself. It's re- drawn by Jim Aparo. Great comic. So yeah, that. I, I I always thought Sean McLaughlin was going for something because there's like a young boy in that series that's very prominent. I always thought Sean McLaughlin was going to reveal that Thanatos did something. Which actually well, saved Sean McLaughlin Aquaman. was just the artist. He wasn't the writer. So. I'm sorry. Uh, who was the writer? No, wait, Ken, we, Ken Hoover. Hold on. We're, the... all, we're all conf- wait, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm getting right. all confused. I'm thinking of Sean McManus, who drew every, right. Lord of Atlantis, uh, Sword of Atlantis. You, yes. Yeah. Sean McLaughlin, of course, is the writer of that right. 90s series. Yes. So uh, there was a younger boy in that one. I always thought they were going to reveal that Thanatos actually saved Aquababy. And hit him away, and he grew up as, to become his teenager and under another identity, and he was going to be revealed that he was still alive. That's where I thought he was going with that. I've never had a chance to ask I him that. I never thought about that. I wonder. Uh, anyway, Gothos Mansion writes, he says, I first saw Ocean Master in the Superman Match 2 game that came out in the late 1970s. Oh gosh. <laughs> I liked his visual, too, for some reason. Hey, Aquaman did get a villain into the game. I think Heat Wave was the only one of Flash's rogues that made it. Obviously, since it was a Superman game, several of his rogues and supporting characters were present, as were Batman's big Four from the 1966 TV show. I got the game for Christmas one year, and yes, I still have it. This is a picture of it I found online, and then he has a link. Um, yeah, I covered this on the Aquaman Shrine. That game is amazing because they have so many game pieces. They had to go deep bench. They couldn't just do like you know the top ten heroes and villains. So, so yeah, you've got Heat Wave, Doctor Light, Kronos. I mean, they really had to go. The shark is in it. I Meaning they really had to go into the the recesses of the DC Comics history to, to fill out all the game pieces. That's what makes the game so unique. Wow, I, I am not familiar with this. So, okay, all right. Um, by the way, I have to admit something earlier in the show. I kept saying that Ashton was my Riddler. No, no, no. I had that completely mixed up. No, Gorshin is absolutely my Riddler. Ashton was the the, the guy from Adam's family, yes, right? Yes. Okay. No, I had that completely wrong. Frank Gorshin was my Riddler. I'm so sorry. Completely mixed that up. I got the names completely mixed okay. up. So right. please, everyone that wrote those comments, actually go back and delete them now. I'd like to see you do that. So anyway. All right. Um, Gotho's Mansion goes on to say, the Dave Stevens dolphin drawing is gorgeous and made me wonder who she was. I only saw her in the DC Comics Presents and action stories with the Forgotten Heroes. In, in several interviews, Dave Stevens' ex-wife, Scream Queen uh, Brent Stevens, said Dave often drew her figure and stuck someone else's head on it. And that is what dolphin Dolphin's drawing looks like to me. That explains a lot. I mean, I remember Brink Stevens because, uh, you know, when I managed the comic book store in the 90s, we used to sell a lot of Scream Queen magazines, and she was always on there. She's gorgeous. I mean, just stunningly sexy lady. And that would make a lot of sense with what Dave Stevens liked to draw. It also makes sense why Dave Stevens didn't draw so much, really. <laughs> <laughs> Got stuff. To, I have I have other things to worry about. Um, anyway, uh, David is Gutierrez comments. He says, "I wish Paul Lind were alive to host this." Well, that's true of anything, David. Of course, Paul Lind would be great. <laughs> Center Square. Uh, Paul Hickster wrote in from the Waiting for Doom podcast, also the DCOCD podcast. He says, "Can you do one of the clip shows for the Omega Men and the Forever People <laughs> next?" We'll get right on that. 
Oh my gosh! You know, whenever I think of this clip show, I always think of like uh, Star Trek: Next Generation, the like season two or whatever they ended with the clip show, and everyone's like, "Really? Second season clip show already?" So anyway, uh, but you know, we're on like our seventh season, so it's okay. Heard from Tim Price. He goes, "I have to admit, I'll never catch up on the original episodes of this podcast. The shame is real. So I'm grateful for these occasional best of clip shows. Thumbs up. And that dolphin image, just about to enter college, and um, yeah, I remember it quite well. Oh my." <laughs> Uh, Ian Fletcher, the wise man, comes back and he says, uh, I enjoy these clip shows and it has made me a bit more curious about the Aquaman family in general, especially with the movie coming up. What's a good trade to start on if I wanted to read some good Aquaman stories? Uh, great question, Ian. There's a there's a bunch of them. There's the Sub Diego storyline by drawn by yes. Patrick Gleason. That's a really good one. The Aquaman Death of a Prince, uh, which I believe is out of print now, but I should be able to find it. That on. fast? Yeah, I think so. But I, you should be able to find out on Amazon or eBay. Uh, prints the reprints the um, adventure comic stories from the mid seventies, drawn by Jim Aparo, which is my favorite run of the character. There's a new. Uh, Search for Mirror hardcover coming out, which is another one of my favorite runs by Steve Skates and Jim Aparo. Uh, and uh, the, the the unfortunately the uh, Craig Hamilton miniseries has never been collected. And then there's the, there's uh, three volumes of Showcase, which reprints the Nick Cardi stuff from the '60s. So any of that is a good place to start. Now, I would say if you want something more in vain with what the movie's going to be about, I would pick up the Jeff Johns trades yes, from the absolutely. New 52. The new the, yes, the beginning of that. The, the first like 40 issues of that series are reprinted. So. Yeah, and you know a lot of good and bad has been said about the new Fifty Two, but the, the Aquaman series was absolutely outstanding with, by, under Jeff Johns and Jeff Parker. So yeah, oh, the big winner of the new Fifty Two was Aquaman. Undoubtedly. Yeah, Undoubtedly. no doubt about that. Uh, Chris Feinkun wrote, "The hatred was real in the early Who's Who episodes. Now it's only mostly real." Um, I don't know about that, Chris. I think it's still real. Uh, seriously, it's fun to go back and hear how <laughs> deliberately argumentative Shag was back then. Rob still hasn't forgotten it. Uh, hashtag Earth Two Aquaman forever. Oh my gosh, <sighs> you people! We don't make this stuff up. Anyway, um, then. Zoom Yukonori. All right, so that, that finishes out the comments, folks. Now we're stepping into Zoom's Who. Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the direct, uh, definitive director of the DC Universe. Zoom, as you probably remember, has done some amazing custom Who's Who entries for us. He always does the yellow dots. He does the whole thing. He, he takes classic artwork and merges it and makes these amazing custom Who's Who pictures. Uh, Rob has a TRS-80 WizKids Who's Who entry oh, on a T-shirt. I love it so much. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's classic Who's Who entries about you and me, Aqua, Shag, or Aqua Rob and Fire Shag. I mean, it's, it's amazing the stuff he's done. Well, Zoom has outdone himself again. He has taken it to the next up. He has produced his first loose leaf uh, original character for the uh, Zoom's Who entry. So he's done a loose leaf one. Unbelievable. He actually created this for the Done in One Wonders podcast, episode six. Uh, it is on Lanos, uh, who is actually a guest star on, or a, a, a co-star, I guess you should say, on his show, the, the podcast Wonder Show. Support, so, supporting character. That's probably the word for it. Yep. Okay. A phrase for it. So on the cover, on the front page, or cover as I like to call it, is uh, it's Lanos, N-A-N-O-S uh, with periods and with a logo. And there you see uh, Hal Jordan and Kilowog staring at this glowing uh, translucent green box with a circle on it. And that is Lanos from the Green Lantern animated series. And the gist of it is – so Lanos is uh, – his alter ego is Light Speed Astronomical Navigation Operating System. It's obviously an acronym. And he – yes, he is from the Green Lantern animated series, a much-beloved series by a lot of people, uh, episodes 1 through 15, first appeared in 2012. And essentially the, the – 
story, a cartoon, the Green Lanterns were given a ship to cross great distances called the Interceptor Ship, and it had an artificial intelligence named Aya, and eventually Aya was downloaded into an android body. Well, then the new AI that was implanted in this Interceptor Ship was called Lanos, and Lanos uh, had sort of an um, antagonistic relationship with the Green Lanterns. In fact, they went on to call him, instead of Lanos, they'd call him Lamo, uh, and, uh, and I think Terra Man even took that on in, in the uh, Podcast Wonder Show. Anyway, um, eventually he ends up being presumed destroyed, but clearly he has survived that experience and gone on to live on in the uh, Podcast Wonder Show. So there you go. What do you, what do you think of this one, buddy? Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, most of this stuff we have from Zoom, it's him mimicking somebody else's work or mm-hmm. deliberately trying to work in their style. Uh, so we don't have as many examples of him just pure Zoom Yukonori artwork. I mean, we have some, but we don't have that many. But like, I love this little inset that he drew. Of uh, the the alien laying there with all the the yeah. probes, and it's just well, that's Aya. Aya, yeah. the Aya. I'm sorry, I forgot the name. It just is. It's beautiful. It's such a beautiful, simple little drawing, and his line work is so crisp and clean. Um, it's really great. He's just a amazingly talented person. It's just it's just stunning. And I have to say, um, he's very generous because I when I did the um, FW presents on the Adventurers Club strip, mm-hmm. and I yeah. came up with my own Who's Who page for the Adventurers Club. He he very generously handed me his Who's Who template, so oh, I cool. could create my own Who's Who page. And I got to say, creating your own Who's Who page for a character you love is really fun. That is like a really nerd thrill to just like be like, you know what? I'm going to be the editor of Who's Who for a moment and create my own <laughs> listing. I got such a thrill creating a Who's Who page for Adventurers Club that like if I had the time, I would just create Who's Who pages for all the characters that I wish had gotten listings. It, it, oh, there's something cool. r- 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 amazingly thrilling about it. I can't tell you exactly why, but it was. Well, I want to touch back on the art Zoom did here. Yeah, he's crediting himself. Normally, he right. credits himself in someone else. So yeah, right. but uh, I would say though that the Green Lantern image is definitely done in the style of the animated series. Um, it's not directly. I mean, it's a little more comic bookish, but there is a, a, a hint of the animated series here, certainly. And then the image with Aya and that little guardian in the back. Look at the look at the inking on that alien's face. Uh, the guardians that that looks like a Gil Kane thing to me. I mean, just which of course you know he drew Hal Jordan and stuff. So that I, I feel like he's really uh, captured the spirit of a Gil Kane face there. I don't know. You tell me. I'm, I don't know if I see cocaine in it, but I love it anyway. Really? Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, it's a gorgeous piece, and uh, we sincerely appreciate you sharing that with us, uh, Zoom. And, uh, and we'll put it, of course, with uh, on the um, the gallery post. But uh, being your first uh, loose leaf image, I'm I'm really impressed. It's a lot more text to put together, too, though. Oh, uh, yeah. Loose leaf's got a lot of text. So, wow. I'm very impressive. All right, folks. Well, this is the part of the show uh, in Hour 17 where we like to thank everyone who shared our show on their social media timeline on Facebook and Twitter. We sincerely appreciate it. It is a very long list of names. I realize that. I know that. But – we want to be sure to recognize every single person who helps to promote this show. It's, it really goes a long way to helping grow this community. I mean, think about how large this community of listeners are now and everyone who loves who's who. And we're just finding more and more people every day. So here we go. I'm going to roll through these. Now, some of these get kind of funny because of Halloween. People change their Twitter handles up. But here we go. Uh, Adam of the Living Dead. Uh, our thanks, by the way, obviously, to all of these folks. Uh, Al Girding. Uh, Alexander Osias. Bill Cruz. Bowling Green State University Batman Conference. Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher M. McGurl, I think is how you say that, or McGurry? I'm not sure. Uh, Chuck Rodriguez, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Reflections, David A. Scudieres, David Morgan, DC in the 80s, D. 
Dinomite at Classy Octovids, Diablo Frank in his Rolled Spine podcast account, Doc Strange at Billy Delicious, Dr. Ange, Dylan Knows, Grant Richter, Greg Arujo and his The Beyonder handle, Headcast Network, Jack Rocha, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jesse W. Campbell, Joe Dredd, Jonathan Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Justice Trek Podcast, Kevin Hasty, King of the Seven Seas, Kirby Gast, Con L, Legion Bloggers, Luke Dobb, Luke Giaconetti, KV, uh, LKV Blog, which is Katana Virtual, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Max Romero, also pl- is Plastic Man in the Mirror Factory, Max Traver, Michael Lane at Comics in the Golden Age, Michael O'Brien, Mo Walker, Mr. Pumpkins, hello, I'm Mr. Pumpkins, Nathaniel Devon Sanford, Nathaniel Wayne, Nicholas Alheim, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Paul Kenzie, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, who of course are also do Trekker Talk podcast partners, Rad Adventures, Warlord Worlds, and Xenogzog Xenophiles. They're trying to catch me with their Twitter handles. Uh, <laughs> Randy at Caucasian of the Body Snatchers. That's oh, it's friggin' brilliant. Randy Caldwell, Ranger Gord Tolton, Read More Comics, Reggie from Comic Treadmill Podcast, Richard Dupuis, Russell Rosenkild, Ryan Daly, Scott X who I actually got a chance to meet recently and had dinner with. What a nice guy. Absolutely. Sean Ross, Sean Ross and the Nerdy Dads podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Resists, Supergirl and Bereniac 5, plus Nia, The 108 Sage, Tim Price, Viz New Ganon, Warlock Thanos podcast, Willie Yarborough, and once again, Zoom Yukonori. Woof! Well, thank you so much to all of you folks. We sincerely appreciate your help. Now, uh, Rob, tell again the folks where they can find some of these images from this uh, from this issue. Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. There we go. And I think that's going to do it, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, who's, who's next? next? Can't live by psychosis alone. It's the car, right? Chicks love the car. <laughs>